Tyson, can you hear us? Oh, I, um, Brian, can you hear us? Okay, I think he got kicked out. Okay, he's requesting again. Let me get him on. And we also have, uh, guys, pardon me a little bit. This is my first time of hosting a space. So if I'm a little choppy here, um, it's, uh, pardon me a little bit. Um, add a speaker. Okay, good. Um, you on, Brian? I'm on now. Yeah, the last time it muted everything, I couldn't hear anything. Okay. But yeah, I'm here now. Can you hear us? Yep. Okay, good. Yes. Tell us a little bit about what you do and, you know, and, okay, good. Melissa Tate is here. She's going to probably, um, as a host, she's going to help to, um, moderate what we're doing. Go ahead, Brian. Uh, for me, so, I mean, I'm a family physician, um, but family, oh, actually family practice trained, uh, but, um, ER physician and urgent care physician for many years. I own my own practice out here in El Centro and Brawley now, um, have, uh, two urgent cares with two more coming. And, um, I've had a wide variety of experience, 13 years at a level one, level two trauma center, Arrowhead Regional Medical Center is where I was at, uh, did hospital work as a hospitalist for about 16 years, did ICU care, um, anywhere from St. Bernardine's to San Gregorio to Redlands Desert Regional. Um, so I've been all, I've been all over as a physician, opened my own practice, um, and the urgent care about, well, it's been five years now, um, out here in El Centro, which is a border city. Um, we were basically, we're a rural community halfway between San Diego and Yuma uh, to kind of give you guys some geography. It's basically in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert. Um, we have one of the largest agricultural areas, though, in Southern California. Um, so we have a large uh, ag community out here. Um, and, and we have a large migrant population out here. Uh, Imperial County is literally the poorest county in the United States. So not a whole lot of resources either. And when COVID hit in 2020, um, we knew it was going to be problematic because we don't have a regional center out here. Uh, we only have two local hospitals, both rural hospitals and, you know, San Diego being 89 miles away and uh, Palm Desert, uh, Desert Regional and Eisenhower being about 70 miles away uh, makes it tough for people who are sick to get uh, treatment at larger medical centers. So uh, we put our big boy pants on and we started treating COVID patients in person. Uh, we never uh, just went to the straight telemedicine route. Uh, we started with basically a triage center out in the parking lot, built that into basically a mobile clinic. Um, we treated everybody uh, that, that entered our facility or showed up at our doors um, anywhere from two months old all the way to 102 years old. And we've now treated over 20,000 patients successfully for COVID-19. Um, we have a success rate of 99.9997%. Uh, we've only lost four patients uh, to COVID-19 and all four of those started treatment after day seven. Um, we wrote a book, me and Dr. Fareed, uh, called Overcoming the COVID Darkness. 
how two doctors treated over 7,000 patients. Um, our analytics for a paper that we tried to get published is in that book uh, because we couldn't get a journal to publish it because uh, they you know, basically didn't really want uh, to know about early treatment. Um, I broke early treatment uh, success at uh, KUSI News in San Diego, um, which immediately received a lot of uh, publicity. And then it hit Facebook and YouTube, and it got censored and shut down. Um, I was part of uh, the American Frontline Doctors' second summit uh, with Stella and uh, Urso and um, the the crew. Um, and, you know, we did uh, a big a, a big summit there. Um, I had my speech, told everybody, you know, we've got treatment. Treatment, early treatment works. And uh, again, that went viral just to get shut down. So we've been fighting the censorship for this whole time. And that's basically who I am. Okay, thank you. I had to let you speak so I can get other people on. Um, well, I'm Dr. Stella Emanuel, and people, a lot of people know me from uh, a very, very public uh, splat in 2020, um, July 2020, when we spoke at the, uh, the steps of the Supreme Court saying COVID was treatable. And to, to give you a little background on me, I went to medical school in Nigeria, where I trained as a general practitioner. I came to America, got the first... Um, got the first residency that I could get, which was in pediatrics. So I did a residency in pediatrics and moved to Louisiana, opened a practice. And while I practiced as a pediatrician, I continued to work in the ER on and off. And somewhere about a few years ago, I actually just stopped working as a pediatrician, just worked in the emergency room. So that kind of prepared me to um, be in a position to do the work that I was called to do. And, um, so in 2000 and maybe sometime 2005, I can move to Houston and I, 2019, after I got my Texas license, I opened a practice, uh, in, in Houston. This was like in September, uh, a doctor that had just passed away that had 15 to 20% of his patients from, uh, China. He was a Japanese doctor. So we had a lot of Asian patients. He passed away and we, we bought his practice. So, uh, because of that, I was now put in a position where, uh, COVID showed up in the early 2020 and I had to deal with COVID. Why did I have to deal with COVID? Because we had patients that were basically from China and from Japan and from everything and we had to deal with it. So initially it was scary for all of us. We, we were wearing all the Tyvek suits and the mask and everything. I ordered a bunch of N95 masks way early, like in February and early March. When the thing really hit and they could not have masks, we were shipping masks to doctors all over the country. People were spraying them and reusing them. That is the atmosphere we're in. So um, uh, uh, a pharmacy friend of mine told me that, um, that they were using hydroxychloroquine in Europe. So I went digging and I found an article that was done under Anthony Fauci, the NIH, uh, in 2005. And you can go Google this. It said... Uh, Chloroquine was a potent inhibitor of SARS-CoV-1. It was easy for me to jump in to start using hydroxychloroquine. In fact, in those early days, the government was hoarding hydroxychloroquine. So we started using mefloquine, which was also one of the quinolones, and we used uh, the quinones. So we used mefloquine, and it worked. As usual, I went online, and I was excited. This is a pandemic. It's something new. We don't know what's going on, and I'm using this, and it's working. So I went online, I was excited and telling other doctors, oh my God, this is exciting, it's working. And <laughs> I got attacked, I got vilified, I got attacked. 
They were like, no, it doesn't work. We need a randomized double-blinded study. I said, no, in a pandemic, when things are so uncertain, we don't need a randomized double-blinded study. We're using something that's working. You're supposed to hear and try it. That is how physicians work, especially in situations like this, especially too, because the medications we're using is something that's been around for a long time. At the same time, President Trump had come out to say that hydroxychloroquine works. And so they attacked me. It was crazy. I was somehow attached to President Trump. Regardless of what I, what I vote, I was, they vilified my medical practice and decided I was a Trump operative. And because of that, they attacked me to Trump. Me as we went, as the days went by, I've never met Trump. I've never spoken to Trump. I don't have any personal relationship with Trump, and um, it was crazy. So, and in that situation, we started just meeting online with people like Doctor Orso. He's on on here today, and just comparing notes, which is what doctors do when there's something crazy happening that we don't we don't have the full idea. We're comparing notes, and we're just happy to treat patients. Initially, when I found Doctor Orso, and he was in Houston. I called him. We talked for hours. We were scared. We were being threatened by bots. We were being threatened by other physicians to report us to the bot. And we were all, it was a, a terrifying situation, but we just knew that we couldn't stop treating patients. Doctor also is an ophthalmologist. So you can imagine ophthalmologists rising up to treat patients because other doctors were not doing what they were supposed to do. So when I talked to him, the next day he tried to call me and he couldn't reach me. He was so scared that something had happened to me. So, and as usual, when you are doing something like that, it's just good to get really loud. So we went to DC and in the first summit, it was actually the second summit. And of course, uh, in, by God's mercy, we went viral and the whole world kind of, I, I, I could say today that that was a watershed moment. Prior to that, the whole of humanity was caged in this fear and we're all going to die. And so uh, our voice at that time just came in as a voice of hope in a dark world. And from then to today, we've treated over 120,000 patients. We, at some point during Delta, we were, uh, we were seeing seven, 800 patients a day, uh, nationwide. We had about almost 40 physicians, 40 physicians and nurse practitioners working for me. We were not sleeping, but we were there to take care of the American people. So it's, it's, it's been a really interesting journey. I was vilified. I was called names and, um, my religion was pulled up. I was turned to a quack and just all kinds of stuff. But I'm glad that we stood and we fought and we stood strong. And so um, this is where we've been. So I'm going to let Dr. Oso kind of speak. And then before we start going into the true protocols of um, of um, medicine, Dr. Oso, you cannot unmute and say something. Sure. Um, so we're sitting here with the two um, most experienced uh, doctors in covid um, in the entire United States. So it's pretty awesome. Both Stella and Brian, um, you know, like, she, like Stella said, a lot of what happened was um, a collaboration. We talked to each other and, and these two have uh, had so much experience that, um, like I said, a lot of what's, um, the, what, what, what we know is probably the best formula right now, the McCullough protocol comes from Brian Tyson and Stella Emanuel. So, you know, it's like uh, they've had a tremendous impact Um for me, it was pretty easy to step in. I'd done drug design. I've been 11 years in the lab, invented an FDA-approved drug. Um, I spent six years running a small ER, um, so I knew I felt very comfortable in you know, t- treating patients. Um, and basically, I didn't want to treat patients. I work with my colleagues always. Like, um, if somebody has a pulmono- pulmonology problem, I send my friend the pulmonologist, but yet I have a very strong conversation about, you know, 
what I found and why I'm sending them. And so it's normal to kind of rely on your colleagues to kind of stay in their lane more or less. Um, but I've always done what I would consider to be functional medicine um, in a sense. So they call it functional medicine now, but I've always thought the body's all connected. Um, that's how I practice. I, I did nutrition for Major League Baseball, NBA, and Olympic teams uh, as a as a, a formulator. Um, so I've had a lot of experience in that. And then eventually, um, you know, uh, left the university system, uh, built a huge practice, one of the, I think, the biggest in the United States um, of its kind. And, and so, you know, I've had a lot of good things happen. Um, you know, thankfully, um, now what's happened over this last three years is we found our tribe of docs that are willing to go out and do the right thing and take care of patients. And that's, that's who this is. That's who, that's who did the early treatment. We were, we were scared. Um, Sel said we were scared, but the scared, the scaredness was, was this. And I, and I think this is really important. Brian Tyson, and Stella Emanuel are looking people in the eye every day. Scared is they're dying. The patients are going to die. If you do nothing, they die. You're not going to be that scared. Individually, you came, to, you came to help people. It's really easy to sit in an office and do data punching and say something doesn't work. If a patient dies in front of you on the ground, right, let's say, you don't say, uh, let me check CPR, do a randomized control trial. You don't say, um, I'm going to find out if shocking the patient, let's do a randomized control trial. That's not how medicine works. This is a rapidly uh, evolving process in a disease that occurs very, very quickly, Right, so you don't have time. This nobody ever does randomized controlled trial in a, in, a, in the middle of a disease that has rapid uh, progression. Is never, never. I'm going to say never. A death, a deadly disease doesn't ever. Not single one ever has a randomized controlled trial attached to it. Okay, that's not that's never been happened. So let me let me reiterate that this whole randomized controlled trial in the face of a deadly disease doesn't happen. What they did was in the randomized controlled trials they did. You know, um, I forget the guy's name, Brownwell, Bardwell. I can't remember the guy's name. He's a loser from Minnesota. Um, he put together wrong dose, wrong time, wrong patient, sent the drugs out late. Some of the people came in on the drugs, didn't separate it. Really bad data collection. If it looked like it was going to be positive, they cut the data short, basically only enrolled five 500 patients. Brian Tyson put the ultimate study out there um, with thousands of patients showing that he's, his patients still has all the data that would basically the same thing but his patients published literature 98 percent more um uh 90 better than the surrounding community so in a sense we could have saved 98 percent of the people but we sort of round the number off somewhere between 85 and 90 percent just to be fair but bottom line is we've got some great great um uh people that are the best um um david bulware um so Thank you, Molly James. Molly is also tremendously experienced. Um, she just sent me David Bulware. I think it, it's worth just saying that name because he's been the key person in putting out fake studies um, for ivermectin and for hydroxychloroquine. They literally like said, hey, we need a good fake study. Well, let's go find David Bulware. I mean, literally, that's who the guy is. I don't mind saying it. David, if you're listening, you're welcome. Sign up the lawyers. Come on. I'm ready for you. Anyway, that's that's what I have to say, and um, thank you for having me. Uh, one more thing that I want to um, add here, with, uh, like what Dr. Oso was saying about okay, the fear of seeing patients in front of you that can't breathe, and um, 
you know, initially we were terrified just as physicians and doctors because we didn't know the disease. But once we started treating patients, my staff, we knew that this thing was treatable. So um, all we, we, we dropped all our Tyvek suits. Sometimes we wore the, the N95 mask to make the patients comfortable, but we dropped all our Tyvek suits and we were there to take care of patients. Most importantly, we were able to hug patients and tell them they'll be okay. Think about it. See yourself in my clinic sitting down and a patient walks in that is 75 year old and is a diabetic and has high blood pressure. They are crying. They are scared. All they know is that they're going to die. And I tell them, don't worry, sit down. We can take care of you. You're not going to die. So we're going to be discussing our protocols, my protocols and Brian, all of us will be bringing the protocols, simple things that we did to keep patients alive. Before we even go into the controversy of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, uh, one of the things that uh, Richard and I talks about all the time is that, number one, COVID, there are two kind of diseases in COVID. is the viral infection and, of course, the cytokinin storm or that comes in, uh, that comes in, in the sec- later part of the disease. If, there, if the intervention was done early enough, you did not get to the cytokinin storm. So what we did initially was to stop the disease, the viral disease. Even for people that did not believe in hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, they, we, they, there was a thing that they did in the hospitals, in the urgent care, in the doctor offices, which was so anti-medicine that did not make any sense. COVID disease had the um, the viral part. We They had the inflammation. They had the respiratory part. They had the respiratory distress. They had the people had anosmia, which is they couldn't eat because they, they, they lost their sense of smell and the dehydration. We found out that most patients that walked into our clinic, if we gave them fluids, rehydrate them, gave them a breathing treatment, uh, gave them a... Um, and just give them vitamin B complex shot to just just give them energy. That alone got most of the patients where we gave them budesonide. We used to put in budesonide and mix it with uh, Zoponex to just give them a break. So these were little things that we did, which any doctor could have done. People stopped giving breathing treatments because they did not want to aerolize the COVID into the atmosphere, you know, but you could have given the people a the breathing treatment and given them a machine to take to their home. So there were simple things that every physician does with the flu or with RSV or with any other virus that is supposed to be, there were simple things that we could have done, that doctors could have done to just manage uh, COVID in a way that could have kept a lot of people alive before even any antivirus that we were, we used. And Dr. Osa, I want you to talk a little bit about that too. Well, I'm going to let Brian talk about it too, but, but basically, historically, we, we can't cure diseases all the time. So a lot of our strategies are based upon mitigation. You know, and I always kind of go to hypertension. We don't cure hypertension. We mitigate the potential damage to the stroke by, by taking a medicine every day. So it was very simple early on when I was looking at this back in February to think about the blood clotting and mitigate the potential blood clotting with something mitigate the inflammation with something, steroids, other drugs, um, you know, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin are both very good anti-inflammatories, by the way. Um, but many drugs can fill that that role. And then the respiratory compromise, basically, if you can't breathe, there's lots of asthma meds and they work for this disease too. So mitigation strategies are number one. But even back in early March, um, the first look I had, I found cyclosporin, phenylfibrate, protease inhibitors, nucleoside analogs, hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, ivermectin, 
um, oh, singular might have been helpful. I, there was, I think it was like nine drugs um, that I had. Um, I mentioned phenylfibrate, uh, I think nine drugs, and that could actually be used to potentially attack the virus early on based on literature reviews. So when somebody says, hey, we tried something, it's not willy-nilly. It's based on potential um, mechanisms of disease where you see it might interfere with the virus. So you, you, you break things down, you treat what you see, and, and that's what we did. So, Brian, I know you talk a lot about this, so please go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Richard. And, and I think for everybody, I think the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway from all of this was the hands-on approach was neglected by the physicians for everyone, basically, with COVID-19. I talk about um, taking care of patients and doing and, and treating what you see. So being able to see a patient in front of you, you see that they can't breathe. So you check your oxygen level. Do they need oxygen? A lot of the patients, like Richard said, were presenting with asthma-like symptoms, chest pain, shortness of breath. Um, it hurt to breathe. So we gave them the asthma treatment. We gave them uh, an injection of steroids, either Decadron or um, Solumedrol. Uh, we gave them breathing treatments with uh, albuterol, uh, atrovin, and budesonide. Um, we saw, and I think we were one of the only ones who were doing chest x-rays initially because I really wanted to see what the x-ray pattern looked like, um, especially as we got later on in the disease. And we started seeing the COVID pneumonia. So we started treating with antibiotics, uh, Zithromax and doxycycline. Um, we knew that there was an inflammatory component. Um, so we used anti-inflammatories. Um, we started out with uh, hydroxychloroquine. Uh, the chloroquine study was already... Um, out there from 2005, that chloroquine was a potent inhibitor of the SARS coronavirus and its spread. That was the basis of all of our uh, SARS anti-inflammatory treatment. Um, but I also used a lot of colchicine um, because, again, that had a lot of anti-inflammatory. Um, I used Singular and we used uh, Pepsid. Um, there was a lot of GI issues, but also uh, Pepsid's uh, an H2 blocker, a histamine blocker, which, again, prevent trying to prevent the cytokine storm that we were seeing and hearing about. Um, and then we were seeing a lot of blood clotting. And I think right now the blood clotting seems to be the main pathogen um, in the pathophysiology that's leading to a lot of the, the disease and death. Um, and I really want to take, take note of, of that. But we were using full-dose aspirin and um, apixaban or Eliquis um, with our high-risk patients. And that seemed to uh, generate um, enough of a response that, you know, all of our patients seemed to do extremely well one way or another. Um, I had my patients always come back three days later uh, to see how they were doing. And if they needed another round of treatment, did they need more uh, steroids? Did they need me to add something to their treatment? And then I would see them at day five and day 10. So there was a follow-up protocol that we were using as well. And if I felt on day five that they weren't quite over the, the disease illness uh, as, as much as I'd like them to be, I would give them a whole nother round of treatment. Um, and so they would get 10 days of treatment as opposed to just five. It's kind of like what we do in, in everyday life in medicine. If you have 
a, uh, a cut on your arm that gets infected and you give antibiotics, you're going to want to see that patient back and make sure that they're responding to that antibiotic. If the wound's not quite healed and it's not quite better, you're going to give them another course or another few days to make sure that they get through it. There was none of that going on. And the first time in my life as a physician, and I'm over 20 years now, were we being told not to treat a disease process, an infectious disease process, early in, in, in the stage of the disease? And it never made sense to me. And I think everybody needs to hear that. Because if you have appendicitis, you're not going to wait till your appendix ruptures before you go get treatment. If you have cancer, you're not going to wait until it's stage four until you go treat it. You know, if you've got, you know, uh, a gallbladder, uh, acute cholecystitis and your gallbladder is all inflamed, you're not going to wait until you're so sick that you need to be put on a ventilator in the ICU to get it treated. There's no difference in a viral illness that is causing respiratory failure to wait until you're in respiratory failure to treat the disease. So a lot of us who are early treatment experts and, and a lot of us who started treating COVID just didn't buy into the fact that, oh, there's no treatment. Just wait until you can't breathe and then go to the hospital and let the ERs take care of you. That's nonsense. We've never done that before. We've treated really bad viral infections from human metanumovirus to H1N1 to bird flu to you name it. There was a SARS coronavirus when it was around in 2003. Um, there's always been respiratory viruses in kids with, with RSV, uh, paroinfluenza that we've had to deal with that there are no treatments for. But there is symptomatic treatments. There is, uh, like you know, Dr. Emmanuel was saying, if you're dehydrated, you can give them fluid. And guess what? These patients are going to get better. Why are we just telling them to go home for 10 days never made any sense to me. Yeah, and... Um... That the that actually did not just make sense for physicians, but it also brought about the fear, because can, you can imagine there were uh, people going telling somebody go back home with a disease, which the media is going on and on and on about how you're gonna die, you're gonna die, and then you just tell people to go back home. So this was this did not just, I mean it it was unconscionable. It was just not the way we practice medicine, and you know um. Dr. Molly, uh, Molly, you're on. Molly worked a lot in the hospitals, and I, I want her to tell us a little bit about her experience working in the hospitals, and then we're going to actually dive deep into uh, what we actually are, the different protocols that we used. Go ahead, Molly. Yeah, so one of the things very early on, I was in New York in you know April 2020, just after the peak of the pandemic there, first one, um, they were using hydroxychloroquine. They were using high-dose hydroxychloroquine, um, and we were using the vitamin C, zinc. Um, I think they were using vitamin D then, and then antibiotics, you know, people were in fulminant cytokine storm. We didn't know it then, right? Cause we didn't have the phases. We didn't know what we knew in hindsight. Um, but the professional organizations, when they came down on, should you do this or that? Really, they said not enough evidence either way on most things, except they said, don't give steroids, so, you know, in the trenches, we thought that giving steroids up front was going to be detrimental because it's an active viral infection, right? Um, so there was an evolution of what we did in the ICU. And then if you remember, in like late spring, early summer, we started seeing studies come out that said 
that um, the falsified study in the Lancet that said this is causing cardiac arrest. Well, anybody that was in the ICU with these really terrible, you know, ARDS patients, we were seeing cardiac arrest. And so we knew it wasn't helping. It maybe was hurting. So we pulled it and we stopped using it. Um, and, this, uh, you know, people need to understand event is not event is not event. You know, everybody I had in the ICU was on 100% oxygen, super high pressures. Like this is the worst lung injury you know, on the spectrum and everybody had it. Um, so it wasn't until late summer that we started getting autopsies back because remember we weren't doing those at first and they said, you need, there's micro clotting. So we started adding blood thinners, but we didn't know how much blood thinner to add. Is it, you know, the pro- prophylactic, is it the full dose? Is it somewhere in between? Um, you know, and then we started hearing we need to add steroids. Um, but it, again, we were under treating with steroids, right? Because people were dying of an inflammatory condition. We were using six milligrams of dexamethasone twice a day. Um, so things did evolve a little bit over time. Um, but it didn't really make a dent in mortality really until, till this day through alpha and through Delta, the hospital never figured out how to treat patients because they're letting people die of an inflammatory condition without maximizing the options for that treatment. Hey, I want to tag on there, Molly, a little bit because we brought up a couple good points. I think what you're hearing there, um, there's two things that that are strike me. Um, I've worked in a, I worked in respiratory viruses uh, some, but I also did like tumor viruses, H, human papilloma viruses, and and so early on, I was really never afraid because it's a respiratory virus, um, and for whatever reason, I know respiratory viruses are gone in five to seven days, so. Once I knew they're at the point where they're in the hospital, I, I'm actually kind of shocked that this, um, you know, that infectious disease people didn't talk about this and, and, the, and this didn't get transmitted. But once we had uh, information from Italy in uh, February, um, it was clear that um, it was a respiratory disease turned into an inflammatory disease and a blood clotting. And, and I think with the first time I had this conversation um, with some people that I considered high level, one of them, Fauci and uh, Burks. Okay. One of them was Burks. Um, and I was shocked to think that she didn't know that respiratory viruses are dead after about five to seven days. So to me, the very first patient I treated with was with steroids because he was like in day eight. And I said, okay, well, he's in the, he's in the inflammatory phase. To me, the mechanisms of everything made really good sense right off the bat. So, and, and it's kind of surprising because, because the leadership in our, in our, and anybody who works with, with these kind of things in a, in a lab would know this, this information, right? So, but maybe the docs in the ICU, they're not usually seeing this kind of um, this kind of process. And they were making it seem like these people were infected and even infected like you couldn't even do the autopsies because they were still carrying live virus, you know, like 30 or 40 days later, which is absurd, by the way. Um, so 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 there's one thing that sort of struck me as that's an information thing that if doctors are all communicating really well together and there's good leadership. Um, that should have been like a, a, one of the prominent things to come out. Secondly, the the, um, the blood clotting was clear that it was a major problem, and it was very confusing. I have to agree. The most confusing thing was to have a coronavirus have uh, this major clotting, and I still first struggled with all the mechanisms that evolved in the in the in the clotting phase. But it was clear clotting was happening, and 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 so I'll say like I immediately on the first patient March twelfth I used an aspirin because I already knew about the clotting stuff. So it's kind of like almost shocking in some ways that because the confusion, the massive confusion in a sense, the poor leadership, it led to a lot of sort of, in a sense, bad 
you know, bad outcomes, but partly, you know, bad analysis on, 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 on most people's part. So when it's, it's, it's almost to me, looking back on it, I'm, I almost still in shock thinking about how, you know, you know, if you ever worked in a viral lab, you know, N95 and down doesn't work. R99, R100 and upper that, that works. Um, so, you know, it's like I usually say, uh, you know, for people who did that work, it seems like it would be a no brainer. But because there was nobody like trying to coordinate messaging, I mean, it was a mess in the beginning. And as Molly said, a lot of people were using the drugs down to the three major hospitals here. I was had ability and in, 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 in because of my I was close to um, formerly married to top uh, anesthesiologist here. And, and I knew a lot of the people in critical care. They were friends and we talked and they were on uh, committees with me. And so I had I, I was able to just kind of, you know, jibber jabber back and forth with them and see what they were doing. And they were using, like you said, um, hydroxychloroquine. The steroid thing was always something where we were saying, hey, you can't use six milligrams of dex. I give eight milligrams to dexamethasone to my patients every time I do a blepharoplasty. All right. So I'm telling you, like six milligrams of dexamethasone for a critically ill patient is absolutely z- nothing. I might like in, in the past I had done um, traumatic optic neuropathy cases and we gave two gram load of solumedrol, never mind 125 or 250 milligrams. So steroids were underutilized from the beginning in a big way. Um, and it was a shame because if there had been true good leadership, that wouldn't happen. But uh, those two, those two things stand out. Thank you. Over. You know, when, um, wait, let me say something about Molly. Let me, let me say something before we get back to you. Listen, um, when it came to using steroids, I think um, I always say this, especially to uh, people that are into a lot of academia and they don't really see patients. I always say, Professor, get out of your book and look at the patient in front of you. Um, one thing that was encouraging for me, I worked in the ER for years. And working in the ER, I knew we used to give steroids to patients that had the flu. The flu is an RNA virus, just like RSV and just like a coronavirus. So for me... I did not have the fear, okay, it's an active viral process, you know, it's not a herp, you know, sometimes we're worried about, you know, giving uh, maybe a, a, a herpes virus, giving uh, uh, steroids, and then it makes it worse. But in this situation, uh, number one, we were able to give breathing treatments, which was one of the most important thing, giving butesonide breathing t- treatments. And uh, many people in the hospitals, they did not want doctor groups. Nobody wanted to give breathing treatments because they felt it was going to aerialize the COVID and infect everybody. At this point, my clinic and my, we were all on hydroxychloroquine and we were taking hydroxychloroquine weekly. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why it was very important and wise to use hydroxychloroquine on a preventive uh, level. So we were taking hydroxychloroquine weekly and none of us had been sick. Patients were breathing on us, sneezing on us. They, They were coming. At some point, my clinic here in Houston, it was so crazy that people used to line up in front of my clinic as if they were at Black Friday. And people would come into the clinic. They didn't want to go to the hospital. We had people coming to our clinic with oxygen of 60, and we would give them a breathing treatment, bring up their oxygen, give them a dose of hydroxychloroquine, give them a dose of ivermectin, send them out to the hospitals. And just that one dose of hydroxychloroquine that they got protected them because hydroxychloroquine stays in your system for like up to maybe 72 hours. So um, because of the situation that we were pushed in, 
uh, uh, we had a walk-in clinic and we almost became like an ER. People would come there very sick. Almost every day we'll be calling the ambulance to come and pick up people from the clinic. But we always made sure we gave them a dose of hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, gave them a steroid. And immediately, especially if you gave them budesonide with, um, with, um, like budesonide and, um, Zoponex, we, we didn't give them ibuterol because it will increase the heart rate and they were already in a hypermetabolic state. So when we gave them budesonide and gave them Zoponex, it immediately opened their airway. It brought up their oxygen sometimes 20 points up. And one thing we found very interesting is that COVID patients were able to tolerate very low level of oxygen, which started making us think this might not be more of a respiratory thing. It might ha have something to do with the oxygenation, which was one of the things that was kind of... Remember uh, the hospitals used to say that COVID patients were like, they were very hypoxic, but they were happy. You see somebody with an oxygen of 75 or 85 and they are just playing on their phone. So we started allowing people and we were able, we we're not scared when somebody walked in with an oxygen of 70. So we were pushed into this situation where we almost became like an, from just a walk-in clinic to almost treating patients at an ER level. My experience was great because I had worked in the emergency room and I was not scared. Like, well, push come to show. We can, we had ambu bags. We can back this patient and get, get the uh, e, um, get the ambulance to come and pick them up. So we were pushed in very, very critical situations. But I'm glad because that we, we took care of people and they got better. In fact, in the first few months, all the way, I think we had our first death sometimes in, in August. It was a 96-year-old diabetic that was, like, tired. They were at home. We treated them at home. The 96-year-old the, the was diabetic. The 76-year-old and the 78-year-old, they were all diabetic. They all had COVID. And the 96-year-old did not want, wanted to go home, wanted to die and go meet her husband or something. But the other two got better. So it took us a while to even have one death. And after that, the reason why now we probably have had maybe 20, 30 deaths is because we started having very extremely sick patients come to us. And I, we, the main thing I would say is that COVID is still around. And in the big conversation everybody is having about COVID, we need to get back to early treatment and we need to get back to people's mindset that if we treat this disease early, we will not get to the cytokine storm and not get to the pneumonia and not get to the place where we're too sick. And COVID treatment is the same whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. We treat them the same. Right now, we're getting more vaccinated patients getting very sick, but we treat them the exact same way. We took care of the respiratory, respiratory problem. We gave them antibiotics. And we also gave them low-dose aspirin. We gave that to all our patients. In fact, I advise all my vaccinated patients to be on low-dose aspirin because it can help them stop from clotting. Anyway, and uh, we have... Um, uh, uh, I was going to let... Uh, Dr. Brian, okay, yeah. Brian, your hand is up. Go ahead. Yes, Ella. I just I want to I piggyback on what you said because you said something that I think gives you and I... Um, a comfort level that most physicians didn't understand. Um, working in the ER and working in the ICU, um, most of us understand pulse oximetry. We understand vital signs. We understand looking at our patient in front of us. And the, the mainstay of treatment initially when these physicians saw these pulse oxes drop was to put them on a ventilator, send them to the ICU, give them high pressures and trying to fix the pulse ox, which was just absolutely the worst thing to do. Um, we know that you can simply put a nasal cannula on a patient, 
put them at four to six liters, and they do just fine with these low pulsars. But what that taught me and what we're really finding out now, and Richard can back this up because we had a great presentation presentation on Tuesday, is that this is a microvascular clotting disorder. This, this COVID-19 and the spike protein from COVID-19 is causing our, a, a blood clotting process in the microvasculature that is prohibiting oxygenation at the very capillary level. That's why these patients are doing very well, but their pulse ox is very low because they're not oxygenating at the cellular level um, as, as much as they should be. Um, and that's where the blood clotting and the anticoagulation um, treatment was so beneficial. Aspirin and Eliquis um, or even Lovenox if they couldn't do it, um, heparin if they couldn't afford it. Uh, we were giving all sorts of things. And patients were going home on oxygen. We were kind of forced into that whole protocol because patients refused to go to the hospital when they started coming to our clinic. They didn't want to go to the hospital. Like Stella said, they were showing up so sick, but they absolutely said, no way am I going to the hospital. I'm just going to go there and die. I'd rather go home and take my chances. So we were getting home oxygen set up. We were putting them on the protocol. And three days later, they were calling back going, I don't need oxygen anymore. Um, everything seems to be going fine. I'm walking around my house again. It was, it was crazy how all of that transpired. But it but it goes back to having the comfort of knowing your patients, communicating with your patients, seeing your patients, and, and just giving them what they needed at the time they needed it. Yes, Brian, you, you're so right. Um, and I think part of the thing was uh, our comfort level was working in the ER because, you know, when you've worked ER, you practice, especially for somebody like me that worked low, low volume ERs where I was probably the only physician within maybe two or three mile, uh, maybe 20 or 30 mile radius. We got used to taking care of all kinds of stuff and stabilizing patients in all kinds of ways. So that gave us the comfort level. And would the physicians that are on here, speakers, just lift up your hands and we'll bring you up. Yeah, Molly, you were, you were going to speak. Yeah, say something more. Yeah, I was just going to say, first of all, mad props to, you know, the early treatment docs on here. Because while I was, you know, in the ICU where people were dropping left and right, you guys were figuring this out. And you taught me how to treat people early. Like, you, I was using your protocols. So, you know, I didn't figure this out on my own. You guys did. So first of all that, but, and, it, and I'm one of the most critical of what happened in the ICU, but it also was a very imperfect environment, right? A lot of people were talking about a lot of different things, a lot of different treatments. Um, and I was one of the big ones to jump on anticoagulants on the bandwagon. But remember, it's not a hundred percent. Like if you do something, everyone's going to be okay. Right. I also had a couple people who had a fatal head, a fatal head bleed. And when you've got patients paralyzed and intubated and sedated and, you know, prone to detect a head bleed is almost impossible. So they were massive and they were, it was horrific. So for everything that's good for most people, it's going to be bad for a few people too. So there's never just a hundred percent pure discussion on what should have been done for everybody. Yeah, that's a great point, Molly. I mean, that's one of the things that happened with when ivermectin first came on board was that people were slow to adopt it because even if it's a 40% improvement in the, um, in the ICU, in a sense, if you're in your hospital, 
in a small, small, say smaller ICU and you do it, you're still going to have people die. There's, it, it's going to be less, but, but you're, you're not going to have that acceptance. Once they started hitting down on a lot of these medicines, like you said, people are still going to die if you don't. So that's what happens. People stop doing the, here's why people stop doing the protocols. If you follow the protocols, you're not in trouble. If you go against the protocols, you're still going to have deaths. So now you've got to sort of justify why you did went against the protocols, and yet still some of your patients died. So even if there's a 40% improvement, that still means a lot of people are dying. So it makes it very hard once the hospital has made it clear that you want you to follow these protocols. It's hard to step out of that box. And um, I don't know, you want to comment on that at all, Molly? Well, yeah. And the other thing to that is you're not the only doctor on the case, right? So in my case, you would have a hospitalist, you'd have an infectious disease doctor, you'd have a pulmonologist, you'd have a cardiologist. Like I hated that, right? Just put him in my ICU and let me go. But I didn't have that. And so like, it would be easy for me not to prescribe remdesivir, but it's really hard to stop it if another doctor is putting in their chart, you need it. So it, it becomes the like lowest common denominator. And again, I hate it. Like just put him in the ICU and let us go. But that's just not the reality of the situation. If they had listened to uh, uh, one of the things we're on another space and I was saying that we need it, we need to have like physicians, we need to have a postmortem just looking at what happened. You know what I'm saying? What happened? Why was COVID treated the way it was treated why did they allow people why were they blocking people with early treatment why they were, were they sending people home without even giving them supportive care which is what we do for viruses why did they wait for them to get too sick to come back and die why were they willing to let people die when i say why because when I said earlier that there were some nefarious actors in the medical industrial complex that affected the way doctors and everybody reacted towards this disease. And then people that stood their ground, people like me and Dr. Oso, Brian Tyson, that stood our ground like, no, we're going to treat patients. We're not just going to, I'm not just going to watch somebody die. And we were vilified, we were harassed, we were threatened. Like I said, I had over 30 board reports and higher law to fight the boards and something happened that was nefarious and um that is why we're holding this space because and i would like to even bring other people that are not uh that are not physicians that to comment on that because something happened that was nefarious and because something happened that was nefarious a lot of people died and there are still doctors today that are arguing about the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or fluvox i mean and i would say um in medicine medicine is apprenticeship most times i remember in early in march where uh, um, dr armstrong treated patients in a nursing home gave them hydroxychloroquine monitored them and they did well, and he was attacked. They, they even threatened to hold a Senate hearing against him. It was that was that to me was crazy. We had when patients came to our clinic, we did EKGs on them. We sent people for X-rays. We were not just we were not doing a, just some kind of fake medicine. We were practicing proper medicine because we knew at that time that if anything messed up, we we're going to be in big trouble. So uh, there was just something that happened that was really nefarious and. We have to address that and, and say that, you know, if the medical community doesn't sit down and go, we need to look into this. There were studies that came out in the Lancet. Somebody was quoting the Lancet. There were fake, so many fake studies that came out and so many good studies that were 
totally just, they would not even let it come out. You couldn't even publish a good study. You know what I'm saying? So there were things that were happening that, I believe that was, you know, was not right. And I will bring Dr. Laurie if you want to say something. Hey, um, I want to tag on you, um, Sal, mm -hmm. for a second. Um, so just to point that out, John Jocks Ratcher had his study ready and wrapped up. And when we went to July to the second meeting, I actually brought that to um, to the White House with me. But n no one would pu pu publish John Jocks Ratcher's study showing a 40% re reduction in deaths in the sickest patients in the ICU. Had that been published, you know, later Pierre went on and gave a really impassioned speech and 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 I think in November, but this was July where we had data finally, data that could have been published. And it's exactly what you said. We couldn't the, the journals were corrupt. They were publishing fake studies. Harvard University, corrupt, had a CV doc publishing fake studies. This highest levels of corruption in our system. So yeah, was anybody asked, does that happen? Absolutely, that's what happened. So, I mean, we had the ability to put this this information out there, and I think you said it well. It's nefarious because anybody who's spent a lot of time in infectious disease knows respiratory viruses are five to seven days, period. There's no reason to not do an autopsy for 30 days later. All of this, um, you know, the blood clotting was occurring and aware, and people overseas were talking about it. And it's, it shocks me to say how long it took for that to spread. So great points. Um, corruption was a big part of it, and it was definitely nefarious. It was collaborated, coordinated attack on normal medical care. Over. You're 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 100 percent right, Richard. Let me let me let me tell you our, the story out of the urgent care. The state of California Department of Public Health made us a sentinel site for COVID-19 because of our area. The high infectious rate, the L.A. Times study, we were flying out, I think, 500 patients a month uh, from our medical, small little hospitals to the main medical centers. So the state of California wanted to monitor the situation here. So they were in our clinic, inside, physically inside our clinic. And we were collecting data for them for two years. The data that they wanted was demographic data age, comorbidities, okay, and whether or not they had traveled inside or outside of the United States. The data that they did not want, even though we had been collecting it, and I showed them an entire year, a spreadsheet that we had had, the, the data that they did not want was the reinfection rate data to prove natural immunity, and they did not want the treatment data because we were keeping track of how many patients were getting treated, what they were getting treated with, what their chest x-rays look like, and when they resolved. They published the demographic data, but would not publish the reinfection rate or the treatment data. That's how you know this is sinister. And then when I called them on it, and we had a big meeting in December, three days later, they pulled out of my clinic as a sentinel site. Think about that. Of course, <laughs> that 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 goes without saying. Um, there's something, uh, Brian. I want you to break down. Um, anyway, before we go to that, uh, Doctor Mitchell wants to speak. Uh, Hi, Doctor. Uh, okay, Sandy. Yeah, it's a Okay, go ahead, speak. Hi, Doctor Emanuel. Thank you so mm -hmm. much um, for for allowing me to speak really quickly. I want to speak to your point of 
um, why were so many okay with this? And I just want to speak really quickly on several things that didn't make sense to me. I'm a nurse practitioner who in the Kansas City area was in family practice and urgent care at the time everything hit in early 2020. There were so many things that didn't make sense. Um, Dr. Tyson, I can I can relate to that. Um, Dr. Dr. Emanuel, it was really poignant when you said um, at the same time they were hyping up fear in the media was the very same time that we were telling people or directed to tell people to go home, not only go home, but isolate in a room, go to a basement, not to the top floor where your other family, other family is, um, all of these things. And it really primed the pump for that shot to come in, you know, eight to 10 months later to be the savior, really. Um, why were medical providers, why were doctors, nurses, others in the, in the medical field, why were they okay with this? Not why just was the government okay with this? Um, I can I can tell you other things. Why was the recommendation for aspirin dropped in the middle of the pandemic? Why were vitamin C, vitamin D demonized? Why was on a 28-page document in the big box, big institutional medicine, urgent care I worked for, why was I told in my 28-page treatment doc that um, vitamins were dangerous and basically forced to resign because I simply treated with vitamin D and azithromycin? I farmed out, you know, my hydroxychloroquine ivermectin to my free doctor and Dr. Graves, who I treated with here. And ultimately I did telehealth on my own. Um, MAB, I, I don't know if any of you, I don't know, Dr. Tyson, if you came into this, but uh, in my can in the Kansas city area with six hospitals that were under this corporation I worked for, you'd know who I'm talking about Southern part of the U S there was <laughs> no will to, there was no will to staff these infusion centers, no will. Um, 10 urgent cares across the across the city, they told us about MAB, but no one ever said, you know, this is what we need to do because it's basically all we have. It's our only EUA. I talked to providers that I would work at the same clinic with months into COVID and they were like, oh yeah, I've never prescribed. I've never sent anyone over for MAB. I mean, no will to treat. There was at the one hospital that was giving it, they were, I had an inside person. They were staffing with one travel nurse that was basically being let go in January and they didn't plan on restaffing it. There are so many things that on a daily and weekly basis just didn't add up that why was this, I agree, why was this allowed to happen? It's so funny I because think- right now in Houston, we still have most of the practitioners in Houston will not treat acute respiratory disease. They tell people to go to urgent care or hospitals. Yeah, and I think family scared, practice. That's what I we told they everybody. Scared the hell out of everyone. Yeah, you know, I think I think it truly was. It was it, it, they drove so much fear into the public that if you got coronavirus, you were going to die. That that I mean, I have doctors out here who were scared to death to even open their office. They were doing telemedicine uh, visits from home. They would only talk to them on the phone. Um, they didn't want to have anything to do with anything COVID related. Um, a lot of physicians were, you know, in, in our practice are elderly. Um, they're in that high risk group. Um, and so a lot of, I mean, fear drove people to do really stupid things, honestly. There's something about the way doctors are trained in America that affected the way doctors reacted to this pandemic. Most, like, if you go to um, 
maybe like most parts of the world, when physicians get trained, they are trained as general practitioners first, and then they learn to take care of everything, and then they specialize. But in America, most of our doctors are hyper-specialized. They are so hyper-specialized that they don't have a clue about anything about anything else. So, for example, uh, I had a psychiatrist call me to a few days ago. She had COVID. She was terrified, terrified. I was like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, she was terrified. She was unvaccinated and she was so terrified. But I treated her and within two days she was fine. But I'm just saying that a lot of doctors did not know. Number one, there are many doctors that were so hyper-specialized that they just did not know. And uh, people listened to doctors. There were doctors speaking like Sanjay Gupta and even Fauci himself that has not seen or touched a patient in years. Uh, like you talked about Dr. Burke that did not even recognize what they were talking about. So if a doctor is not in primary care, has not taken care of respiratory illnesses, has not taken care of a flu patient, and you you bring this, most of the time they don't have a clue what's going on. So I, I give props to doctors like Dr. Oso. Anyway, Dr. Oso, you've worked in the ER and had some primary care experience. But many doctors, because they lack total primary care experience and they came straight from uh, residency, medical school into some subspecialty, most doctors were just as terrified as the regular public because they just did not know. And because they did not know, they rely on data. They rely on what the CDC says or they rely on what the uh, medical industrial complex says. And on, in this particular situation, the medical industrial complex was against the people. So uh, the second set of doctors were scared to lose their jobs. They, they, were scared. they still had big student loans. They, uh, they, they just were scared to lose their jobs. There are many doctors that for, for years right now, they've taken practice away from the regular primary care doctor that has their own practice. Remember when doctors used to go home with their doctor bags and, and the medicine has been so um, uh, commercialized in a way. And now we have all these big conglomerates that have doctors working for them. Most primary care doctors sold their practices to the big conglomerates and joined these practices. So at the end of the day, they could not do anything. So there were doctors that knew that there was some truth going on. There was something they were missing, but they couldn't do anything about it because they were working in these big companies and they did not have the guts to stand up against them. They had children to feed homes, to pay student loans and all kinds of stuff. So we had those set of doctors. Then we had doctors that were working in the hospitals that were like in the ICU, like that did not, all they saw were the, 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 the patient when they were already too sick and they didn't and to them it was devastating and then of course we have the fourth set of doctors that i call them the nefarious ones that knew the truth like like anthony fauci anthony fauci knows hydroxychloroquine works in fact in his emails he knew hydroxychloroquine works they did the study in 2005 it was done under anthony fauci anthony fauci is involved in the um gain of function study so there were doctors in the high echelon that and that with big pharma and everything that are the nefarious people so it's some sometimes it's hard to just say people today don't trust their doctors that turn them away didn't want to see them you know they don't trust their doctors and to gain back that trust we're gonna have to have doctors have conversations so that people can trust them again because they're like well i came at covid you didn't treat me you let my husband die why should i come to you people just stay home there were times when like brian tesson said earlier People will come to the clinic. They will refuse. Dr. Stella, Stella, I'm not going to the hospital. I would die. I had a patient that called me from one distinct. He said he was not. His oxygen was like 50s. 
diabetic, obese. He said he is not going to the hospital. He will die at home with his family. We saw him. He, he called us just before. He called us and the next day we sent him. The medicine didn't even get to him before he died. But he's like, I'm not going to the hospital. I'm begging him, please go to the ER. No, I'm not going. I will take my chances. And that happened to a lot of people. And now the trust was broken because a lot of doctors were not well trained, did not know anything about primary care, did not know what was going on. And the the, the, the whole of America and the whole of the world was relying on doctors. Says, um, so well said, Stella. That's so well said. I think, I think you've kind of summed it up. And I, I, I love to hear what you say, because I feel like there's a certain crew of docs that know what happened, and they did. And so that's where I feel like that fourth, the, the Fauci's. I, can, I really can't have any forgiveness for them because they knew what was going on, and and so you know, it's in a sense, it's somebody who allowed this to happen, and actually, um, he's the main messenger coming out of Washington, giving extremely bad advice. So I can't, you know, I can't really go after politicians. They really don't know. I can't go after a lot of people in terms of, of where they were emotionally, how it was affecting them. The messaging was so powerful. But when you have scientists like that who, who are scientific physicians, um, they've been in this field a long time. They know. I, I told you literally the stuff I knew. I knew about viral replication. Um, steroids would be imp- impactful um, early on. Um, I wasn't sure about using them in the first first five, seven days, but I, I knew that steroids were a mainstay in respiratory disease. Um, it was basically very simple to look at things and say, hey, we're going to mitigate at least, even if we can't attack the virus. All of this is, you know, interferon is never used. And interferon is, uh, you know, very impactful against viral disorders. So nobody even did a study on interferon's uh, role in, 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 uh, in, in something like this because it's, you know, our major response in our, cell, our cellular response is interferon against viruses. So there's a lot of things that could have been done early on. They had Kalitra. Kalitra is just like Paxlovid. Um, for people who don't know, you know, viruses and tumor cells are really similar. I've done a lot of oncology work, um, and I know you, you always attack uh, heterogeneous cells like viruses and, 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 uh, and, and, and cancer cells. Uh, you always attack them on multiple levels never made sense to go after it was one thing but there were things that we could attack the virus with early on um and we never did any of that it just never made sense it was the most absurd thing i've ever seen and as stella said yeah i did spend i was like stella i spent um overall about six years working smaller er's one i ran the er uh, schedule for two years and i actually would go 60 hours every other weekend um and did um uh during the week with another person would go from 6 a.m to like 6 p.m 6 p.m to 6 a.m covering that call there for a long time. So, yeah, I had a lot of experience doing things in a small place where there was the next closest hospital was literally about 35 miles away. So, you know, you, that did give me some uh, feeling of going forward. But at the end of the day, it was more of knowing what the scientific side of it was, that it was just absurd. And so, anyway, I can't forgive people like Fauci for that. Over. Dr. Laurie, um yeah, Dr. Laurie, you should say something. I think you've been putting up your hand for a while. Um, uh, well, I've mostly been emoji reacting because I agree with everything everybody's been saying, but thank you. Um, I just wanted to quickly back up some of the things that um, everybody's been bringing up. Excellent points. One thing I noticed for sure, um, friends of mine that are still have independent practices, they were very open to using early treatments. 
and to using the hydroxychloroquine and later the ivermectin. Um, it was the practitioners that were under the thumb of you know, the medical industrial complex that were hesitant. I, I, I wouldn't say that they didn't know, but they were afraid to prescribe the medications, as was brought up before. Um, the other thing I wanted to comment on was to agree with uh, what Dr. Stella said before with Dr. Fauci. In his emails, not only did he admit that hydroxychloroquine worked, he had said that it had a curative, or I'm sorry, near curative effect on SARS-CoV-1, and he even admitted that it would be effective as a prophylactic. So certainly he knew that. Um, and then the last thing, I just started a couple of things down. Um, I don't know if you spoke about this at all, but I believe it was in the Lancet where they had the fake uh, hydroxychloroquine study. Do I have that? Does anybody know? Yeah, it was, it was the Lancet, oh, okay. yes. Yeah. They had used data from hospitals that didn't even have the capacity to collect such data. I should say, I'm sorry, they faked data from hospitals that didn't even have the capacity to collect the kind of data that they were reporting on and the number of patients that they had reported to have studied in these studies could not have possibly been treated at that point through the, I just wanted to bring this up. Yeah. 671 hospitals. Yeah. I'll kind of, I'll jab in on what you said. 671 hospitals, 93,000 patients done in about two and a half months. It was absurd. Um, and that's what that's what that's what uh, that's what got them. Uh, that's what you know they 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 reached too far, uh, and and that's what got them. So you know that, that that's uh, well said. And um, any um, I, I see I have some uh, someone's got their hand up. Um, I'll, I'm over on that. Yeah, we see Bob passes hand up. Okay. Hi. Um, yeah, I, I have a few questions about. Um... The studies that um, is being done, you know, through the COVID critical care and all that. Um, I use the the C nineteen site quite a bit because it seems like it's being updated regularly. You know, it has the meta analysis and all that of the different early treatments. And I was just curious, it, um, are there, are there going to be some some studies posted to kind of show the combined protocols to start seeing, like for instance, if you did like ivermectin plus quercetin you know plus if you had enough vitamin d and zinc if you take all that stuff together you know you can't just you can't just add the stuff together right because they have uh um, overlapping benefits right but there's probably cumulative benefit you know and that's why you you do the protocols like the flcc i'm just curious if if there's going to be some work done to you know have those kind of aggregate um, analysis or aggregate data put out there. And I'm actually really interested, you know, maybe somehow I can connect with somebody afterwards about getting some of the raw data that's that's on like that C19 early site to be able to, to have it so it can be queried, you know, more effectively to show, uh, you know, rather than just the charts and stuff where somebody could go in and do their own charts um, like you get with a statistical site over. Yeah, we have a lot of data. Um, uh, we started out in March uh, taking care of patients in the clinic and after clinics. And then somewhere around July, we started doing telemedicine around the country. And um, we ended up, we have like, I mean, hundreds of, we have over like a hundred and something thousand patients. And uh, at some point, 
even if we put the data together, nobody will publish it. So there's a lot of good data out there for to show that this stuff works. But we, people can do retrospective studies on my data, on Brian's data, and a lot of us that we know a lot of doctors that saw a lot of patients. And the data is still available. It's not anything that it's hidden. And um, you can, for example, we're, we're putting a data together from just patients born before 1945 that we treated, which is at the age where it's dangerous and have other comorbidities. We have all the data. And um, any, I will be glad to let anybody analyze the data if, if they need to. And there's something else that I, I wanted to, to, to mention about um, the way this was handled and uh, why a lot of patients, a lot of doctors, I don't know why they choose not to do it, but in the beginning, we sent out the protocols, like, you know, uh, Dr. Oso said earlier, uh, the um, uh, Makalov protocol was basically taken from people like Brian and me because we have the COVID protocols I can that we put together. My, my protocol was published. I gave it to many doctors, doctors all over the world, and many people started using the program in Brazil and all over the world as we, we just, people who just DM me on, on this time, we send the protocol out to people and we, people were using it and getting a lot of success. So, uh, these protocols can be put together, but the issue about it is that are we at a time yet when the in medical industrial complex can let this data be published and let the truth be given out there without vilifying it and trying to block it? If you ask Dr. Osso, Dr. Brad, most, most of us could not get our data because they didn't want to hear it. They didn't, nobody even wanted to see it or hear it. Until today, that has not stopped. We are talking yep. right now because we're fortunate that Elon Musk has allowed us to talk. This is the first time that our own side of the story is being heard. For years, we just heard the other side of the story. Oh, no, no, no. COVID bad, take vaccine, get boosted and boosted. You know what I'm saying? So our, our side of the story is coming out right now. So yes, we do have this data. Is it time right now? Are they going to still stop it? We don't know. So, so, um, yeah, that's, I guess, brings me around to the other thing that I'm really interested in trying to, you know, trying to put together a project with other people, other software and IT people and stuff. Um, because, I mean, there's alternatives, right? I mean, yeah, you know, um, Twitter's opened up, but all the other social media sites are, are censoring. Um, you have Substack, which actually is run by, uh, runs on Amazon Web Services, which could get shut down. So there's, there's, but, so I guess my point is, is I think that it's better to start getting that data out, being able to start pulling it together. And it'd be nice to be able to start working with more people on that, to be able to put it on some, on some sites, on maybe some private websites that can't get shut down that easily. And then be able to share those links and get that information out there. Cause it's really hard. I think for me, I've been create, you know, keeping like a huge list of all the sites and pulling together the data. I pull the put, you know, download data all the time that I can find. Um, but most people can't do that. And you know, if I want to try to look at some of that correlation, it doesn't take me that long. I, you know, I work in this industry. It doesn't take me long to 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 see. You know, that's how come I knew right from the start that there was something wrong because I could see this the data on the hydroxychloroquine early on. And that it was showing, you know, success and all of a sudden they, they ban it, you know. It was obvious that, that there was something nefarious going on. But, um, again, I, you know, I guess I'm just, I'm just trying to find a way to, uh, be able to, to 
help is in whatever way I can to share data. You know, I can put stuff on websites. I can put, can make it available for people to look at and stuff. And so, um, you know, I'll just leave it at that over. Yeah. yeah Bob, what, um, let me, let me get you in touch with uh, Matthew Crawford, who's one of our main statisticians in our group and him and Dave Wiseman are doing a lot of data research um, we can put you together if, if that's your forte. Um, so I just followed you on Twitter. You can send me a direct message now and I'll get you hooked up in that group. <clears throat> yeah, I appreciate that. And I think it's going to get bad again. I have this bad feeling that, you know, that this isn't over. And I feel like we need to really start having alternatives for people to get to the data um, and you know, private websites like FLCC sites and things like that um, are going to be more and more important, in my opinion. And uh, we'll see what happens. But I'm I'm afraid of what's going to happen based on what they've already done. Over. There's something that I want to mention here uh, about um, even the COVID early treatment. Um, I remember um, late Dr. Zelenko had put together the Zelenko protocol, and um, Richard and I. Um, early in, I think early 2021, we put together um, uh, something that had vitamin C, D, zinc, and quercetin. Um, like I said, if you go on the NIH website, and you just talk about zinc and um, um, NRNA, RNA viruses, there are studies that show that zinc is a potent inhibitor of RNA viruses, which COVID, flu, and RSV are all part of it. So we put together quercetin, which is over-the-counter. Quercetin is actually a, a weak ionophore. There's a problem with zinc. Zinc cannot be absorbed into your system. So zinc needs something that will open the zinc channels and allow zinc to go in. This is why hydroxychloroquine, even ivermectin, is good early because they open zinc channels. Zinc goes into the system and kills the virus. Quercetin is a weak ionophore. Quercetin is over the counter. So a lot of people that were just taking quercetin and zinc and vitamin D and vitamin C, they were less likely to get the virus. Or even if they got it, they had a, a, a less, um, a less, they, they were, they, they didn't get as sick. So these are things that people need to know. But like I said, our voices were silent. And we have been, we actually put together the, what we call COVID vices on our website, drslimd.com. But it's something you can buy over the counter. You can get quercetin, you can get zinc, you can get vitamin D and vitamin C. They were just simple supplements that people could take that would make them fight any virus, not just COVID. I'm talking about vitamin, vitamins that will help you fight uh, flu and RSV and other viruses. And we were kind of, uh, our voices being silent stopped people from hearing this. So, I want to tell everybody listening and just get it to everybody. We just, there are many little things that you could have done, you know, to just, you know, just gargling with warm water and many little things I could have done to help people from either catching the virus or getting a serious disease before we even talk about the uh, uh, medications that needed to be prescribed. So if we can still look at quercetin still works, vitamin D still works, zinc still works, if taken together. So it's something that we still need to look at and let people know that um, there are things that you can do to keep yourself healthy. And of course, good exercise, going outside. They locked people in their houses in the worst time possible because staying in the house actually 
just the air in the house circulating and the virus circulating made people less healthy. The masking that made people less healthy. So there were many things that were done that were like totally off. And when I say it's nefarious, this thing led to the more and more deaths that we saw with COVID. So people need to start. I'm glad you're talking about getting this data out to people or so that people know that, you know, um, there are ways that you, there are things you can do, simple things that you can do to stop yourself from picking viruses in the winter and, and getting better. And then we'll talk about the medications that we use. Okay. For example, we, one of the things, I'm a big proponent of prevention. The same article that we all read that got all of us to jump on hydroxychloroquine was done under Anthony Fauci in 2005. He actually said that uh, hydroxychloroquine was was actually going to work not just as treatment, but as prevention. And not just, it could actually be used as a vaccine. And this was Anthony Fauci. So looking at it, if you look at the mechanism of hydroxychloroquine in treating viruses, number one is anti-inflammatory. Number two, it's an ionophore. It opens zinc channels. It allows zinc to go into the cell and kill the virus. That It stops viral replication. That would make sense for you to take it as prevention. I have been on hydroxychloroquine for, for the past several years, all through this pandemic. I've never really gotten sick. I have the mentality of uh, somebody that lived in Africa where we took chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, whatever, as Sunday, Sunday medicine to prevent malaria. So weekly hydroxychloroquine has been something, or weekly uh, of the quinones have been something that I took growing up, which has solidified my mindset on taking hydroxychloroquine. And um some ivermectin too can be used uh, the same way and this is one thing and then i'll i'll, I'll hand over to somebody else to speak uh with if you look at the data from africa we had people like oh scientists are so shocked that sub-saharan africa has not really really gotten covid like that why would they be shocked in sub-saharan africa if you get a fever you go over the counter and you buy chloroquine mefloquine any of the quinones and you take it for malaria and because sub-Saharan Africa had this idea to just go get these medicines over the counter for malaria, COVID was not really an issue in sub-Saharan Africa, and the deaths were not that high. Sub-Saharan Africa is like, what, maybe less than 3% vaccinated, and most of the people that are vaccinated probably came to America or something. That, and then the second thing is, when COVID left Wuhan and seeded into America and all over the country, COVID seeded in Nigeria too. You cannot social distance in the slums of Ajengune or Lagos. But when COVID entered Nigeria, people that left Wuhan were required to take anti-malarias to go to sub-Saharan Africa. And because of that, the COVID was knocked out of their system. So COVID could not really seed into Nigeria. COVID seeded into Nigeria from Europe. So I'm just saying this to say, if scientists are actually looking at the data, looking at what is happening in other places, we will not be so, we will not be cloaked with this whole medical industrial um, uh, cloud that has covered our minds. And Dr. Osa. Uh, so that's really well said. I think in general, the, 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 the way they're actually doing this is you'll never see studies from people that actually treated patients saying any that are being said. I mean, it's always somebody evaluating data, um, using the wrong dose, wrong time, wrong, wrong patients. Um, I mean, it's, it's over and over. The, study, the studies are corrupted. Um, and when the studies have been, if you look at the ivermectin study, there was 10 deaths, um, control group and three in the ivermectin group, but they, they cut the study off at around, uh, I don't know, four or 500 patients, which didn't give it uh, a proper p value. So 
they've done a lot of things to make sure that even when things were going well, um, they did things to uh, make the studies not look right. And then also the meta-analysis, those are just data guys sitting in, never look the patient. In. And this is, again, really important. Data analysis is great, but I, I just can't tell you enough. When people are sick and dying in front of you, it's a much more personal thing. And you will not do nothing. You will not do it. If you do, you should not be a physician. So this is very, very important. Um, these patients are coming in, taking you to save their life. And it, we went through the Delta um, phase. It was even worse than the initial. And we had, to re we had to redo our protocols. We can maybe get on that at some point. But all the things that were working for us before suddenly weren't working as well. Uh, so I'm sure Brian and, 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 and uh, uh, you know, all of us on here are treated. No, but Brian and, 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 uh, and uh, Stella actually have probably a lot to say about that. But at the end of the day, these people that are doing these studies, the data guys, and I'm not taking away from data analysis, but this is purposeful. They basically can afford things like that. They can afford to go out and hire a bunch of people to make uh, data sets that look favorable to what they want. This is what's happening. That's why I don't trust the CDC. Um, with their recent data release. Um, I, I just, they've already shown that they let us down during a pandemic. They've already given us public policy that created 90% of the carnage. So you can't look to the same people that have already bitten you to actually give you the truth. It's not going to happen. It's real. That's reality. Over. So the CDC, what I've noticed is that they are distorting the data. They, they, they'll do like graphs and stuff, but they won't provide the underlying data to show, like they came out and said that 99% or 95%, was it 99 or 95, you know, of the people getting, uh, dying were vaccinated, were unvaccinated. And it turned out what they were doing was they were just using the absolute, the relative risk initial numbers. I mean, there's so much corruption of the data. I agree. And I, I think though more data is better. So. Like I, I spend a lot of time going on Twitter and, and trying to chop down a lot of the bad stuff where somebody will say something like, uh, well, Africa's younger. So that's why they had less people die. Well, OK, so they're younger. So they do have less risk. But even when you factor that in, it still shows up as a huge discrepancy. Um, so I like I think that getting a lot of the data together is useful. But I agree with Dr. Urso that it's an issue there's a lot of corrupt data going out. There's a lot of misleading data. Um, you know, it's like figures don't lie, but liars sure can figure, right? Yeah, I, I agree. And and the reason, which I, we haven't hit on yet, in my opinion, started with uh, basically Fauci's mo um, MO of, you know, taking uh, repurposed drugs, uh, shelving them and not allowing physicians to use it so that they can push the, the, the new, bigger, better, more expensive uh, drugs and everything under this emergency use authorization, right? So if you notice, we're still in the emergency use authorization era three years after COVID has, has started. Why? Because number one, it gives them immunity to all legal uh, liability. That's number one. Number two, if you have an alternative solution or an alternative treatment, you cannot get an emergency use authorized product to market. Okay. That's where, when I broke that story 
that's when basically my whole social media life died. Um, you know, I got kicked off Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, you name it. Um, because we were telling people and pointing it out and they even readjusted their emergency use authorization uh, to take out the fact that in order to get it to market, there couldn't be any other alternatives available. So that's why they destroyed outpatient treatment. That's why they said, oh, you can't, there, there is no other outpatient treatment. There is no repurposed drug use. You can only use drugs that are EUA, which is the monoclonal antibodies, right? And, and then, you know, when remdesivir first came out, it was EUA. Then it was the only treatment you can use in the hospital um, that was quote approved. Meanwhile, the FDA, going back to, what was it, Richard, 1997, um, you know, we can use drugs that are FDA approved off label. Yes. Um, as long as we Correct. seem we not against any policy or any law or any protocol to say we can't use ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine because those are FDA approved drugs. We can use budesonide. We can use vitamin D3. We can use zinc. We can use colchicine. We can use um that's fda approved because we have the right to do so but they made it seem like it was against the law they got all the pharmacies on board to say oh no we're not going to prescribe it and then it was oh if you're using it then you know we're, we're gonna you know punish you for it um also that they can push these vaccines um and their treatment and their drugs because now you look at the CDC and the NIH, it's all about early treatment. Oh, make sure you get treated early. Make sure you get treated early with Paxlovid and Monopiravir, right? And we'll make sure you get treated within the first three days because that's when you're going to have the best success rate. Well, that's what we've been telling people from the very beginning. Get treated in the first two to three days and you're going to do just fine. You don't have to use their drugs. You can use our drugs. You can use our drugs, their drugs. I don't care, you know, but you need the early treatment part of it. Um, and they kiboshed it so that they can get their drugs and make their money and get everything to market. That's my two cents on it. Yeah, Brian. And what's, what's really horrible about that is Paxlovid. There's another drug. It's a carbon copy of it called Kaletra. And they tried it. But they, only, they didn't do it in an early treatment trial. They only did it in a late treatment trial. As I said, that's why remdesivir doesn't work. Nucleoside analogs aren't going to work early, late. They, they can't. The virus isn't replicating. You're going to kill mitochondria. You're going to kill normal cells. Uh, you're going to kill anything that's replicating that might be uh, susceptible to this. But you're not going to kill viruses because viruses don't exist two weeks later and three weeks later. This is such a basic 101 concept. It's still shocking to me that we had the whole world using a drug that had no chance of working. Um, it's still a shock. So, um, And it's still being used. It's still on the protocols. So Paxlovid, if you look. Um, is basically ritonavir in there, which is also in uh, Kalitra, and another nucleoside analog, which helps the ritonavir helps the other nucleoside analog. I mean, the other uh, protease inhibitor work better. Sorry, the ritonavir makes the other protease inhibitor work better in Kalitra, and it makes the other protease inhibitor work better in in uh, in, Kali, uh, in, in Paxlovid. So what you're seeing is they had a drug available that could have worked, and they held it off. And it was, and let me say this, as I said earlier. Paxlovid by itself, it's a one-trick pony. So when you see that Paxlovid rebound, you're not really seeing rebound. You're just seeing the inflammatory stage kicking in. Um, 
and, and that's what you're seeing. So in general, what I'm saying is they went out of their way not only to not treat, but the on-label drugs, which they had to know, you know, so this is an on-label drug. So just like Paxlovid is on-label, so would so would be Kaletra because it's going to affect the, you know, the 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 um, uh, uh, CL uh, the uh, three um, the I'm blanking on the comatrypsin like um, protease. And so what that does is once the once the proteins are made in a big block, it's chopped up by this protease into smaller pieces that can then self-assemble into into the virus. And, and this doesn't allow that to happen. So the protein never gets chopped up into like 11 pieces. So, so for the most part, this is how the Paxlovid works. This is how Kaletra works. And guess one of the things that ivermectin does is it's the best at the time. It was never tested against Paxlovid, but it was tested against every other 3CL protease inhibitor. And basically what they found was that ivermectin was the best of that group. But ivermectin does like 20 other things. So again, you have to attack on multiple levels. What's unique about ivermectin, it attacks the disease in different areas. On multi, It attacks the inflammatory component. It helps in the blood clotting component. It hits it on a lot of phases, and that's why it's made such a great impact on this disease. But you still need other things and other things to treat with. And our government went out of their way not to allow us to use those things, and they were already available. There were other nucleoside analogs other than molnupiravir. There were other like I said, protease inhibitors other than uh, Paxlovid. So this is this is a real crime. So that's what I... Yeah, it's, it's a crime, and not only is it a real crime. The issue is um, there are many doctors today that still believe that hydro, um, ivermectin is a dewormer, it's a horse medicine. Can you imagine that our own FDA put out something about, oh, that's a, a horse medicine? And... I mean, think about what it did to people that were just out there, like trying to take ivermectin. They did not even say this is a medicine that is used all over the world, that is used for, for you know, in all, to treat all kinds of diseases all over the world. They didn't say that. They made it look as if we were cooks because we're now taking horse medicine and trying to give it to human beings, and that is that is so wrong. And even Plaxrovid is not. I will not use it. While I will not use it, because apart from the rebound, which I don't think is a rebound, I think is is just not effective. So it allows the virus to go to the cytokine uh, state. You understand? Know, so I won't use it. Why? Because hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, budesonide, ZPAC works. It works. And if they allow people to make a choice to get the medication that works for them. So this is why we need to be doing these spaces now that we have an opportunity to speak. And for you people that are on the spaces, share this because people need to know that uh, COVID is treatable and it's preventable. They don't have to be scared of COVID. They don't have to feel like they have to inject some mRNA. And we're going to do a space on that, on the vaccine, because that's like a whole other story. We're going to do a space on that to talk about the pros and the cons and why and I'm not an anti-vaxxer, I'm a pediatrician before I started working in the emergency room, gave a lot of vaccines. But today I've gotten to a stage where when it comes to vaccines, I said, you know what? I will wait until further notice because right now the distrust over what these people have done to humanity is too much for any of us to deal with right now. So, um, Brian, I want you to actually break down a little bit. Uh, no, no, there was somebody that wanted to speak before we go to Brian. Um, Apote Carol, I know you do a lot of holistic medicine, if you can say something. Hi, thank you so much. 
I'm I'm just really thrilled to be able to um, be here, Dr. Emanuel, and hear you speaking. Um, I want you to know that you have been here for the last two years. You have been speaking here for the last two years through us. Mm -hmm. We've been here for two years saying exactly what you're saying about early treatment, and we have been teaching people. Um, Michelle has been shoulder to shoulder with me doing this, as has Texas Girls. She was a COVID ICU nurse here in Texas, and there's one other nurse. And the four of us were here every single night teaching people about the early treatment and sending them to um, Dr. Zelenko's website, to the FLCCC, to wherever they could get um, early treatment and telehealth. Um, if they couldn't get their prescriptions filled, we helped them find a place that would fill them. Um, we, we taught them about the vaccines. Uh, we helped them read the studies for themselves. Um, we answered questions. What is quercetin? <laughs> you know, they're like, well, what is quercetin? Where does that come from? Um, when they tried to, you know, threaten to take NAC away, we, everybody pulled together people that weren't medical, just people in these spaces. Um, you know, everybody branched out to help find places where, where people could stockpile a little bit of it for themselves just in case. Um, like this has been going on for two years every single day. And we have heard your voices in every podcast, every time you testified in front of any Senate that we could find the videos for, we shared it with each other. We answered questions. We talked among ourselves. But this is, you have been being heard, all, all you doctors, all of the early treatment doctors, you have been being heard in these spaces for the past two years. And we just, I just wanted to step up and say thank you. Because without you, we would not have helped, been able to help all the hundreds. People tell me it's thousands. <laughs> I don't know. I never counted. I haven't kept the data of all the people that we've been able to help through these spaces over the last, um, you know, since they opened a couple years ago. So thank you all so much for the guidance and the leadership that you've given because it has not gone to waste. It has not been in vain. Many people have been helped right here in these Twitter spaces and they've let us do it absolutely unimpeded. We haven't been censored one bit in the spaces. Now down in Twitter, that's a different story. <laughs> we've been, we've been persecuted down in, in the Twitter with our tweets. But up here in spaces, we have been given free reign and we have taken advantage of it this whole time. But thank all of you for the leadership and the courage that you have um, put forth because your courage gave us courage, too. So thank you. Hey, I wanted to yeah, add to that really quickly, Carol. Um, that's why when we sit here, Carol and I, and we see you, Dr. Emanuel and Dr. Urso and Dr. James and Dr. Farrell and Dr. Tyson on this call, it just, we sit here and scream inwardly because these are the spaces that should have 15,000, 20,000 on them. You guys are the original OGs. I mean, we have, you know, you've guided our treatment. There are thousands and hundreds, there are hundreds of NPs across the country and other physicians who have been guided. I mean, you won't even find them on the FLCCC website as affiliate, as a, as the Alliance, you won't find them because they've been guided by your protocols. And, um, the, and this is, it just drives me crazy. I see this. And so everybody tweet out right now. And if you don't, you know, if there isn't much left and we don't stand here very long, at least after we're done with this, tw tweet out the um, recording uh, because you guys deserve thousands and thousands. Thank you so much. 
Yeah, uh, you're welcome. And I thank God for all the other doctors that we stood shoulder to shoulder. And I'm going to let um, Dr. Laurie speak and then uh, Dr. Angela Ferreira Fer- 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 is on and I'm going to let her speak. Okay, Dr. Laurie, you have your hand up. Thank you. Um, just a quick comment I wanted to bring up going back to um, how they demonized the the early treatment medications. Do you all remember when they put out the article that um, – there was a gunshot victim who could not receive treatment in an emergency room because they were overwhelmed with um, ivermectin overdoses. Yeah, that was, a, that was a completely fabricated story. Yeah. I, yeah. I just, I wanted to throw that out there. It's just another one of those reminders. Cause it was just, it was surreal how ridiculous the stories became that they were putting out there in order to demonize these medications. So somebody, looked, somebody looked that up, and I think there were three people who called a poison control center, and it was people who were taking, like, the paste of medicine, like a tube of it at home on their own. Yeah, they, they just had general questions. Yeah, it was nothing. And then, like, thousands of news outlets picked that up. Famously, Rolling Stones is now working for the man, so that was enlightening. By the way, I have the horse paste at my house just in case. <laughs> Actually, Thank I have you. tons of ivermectin in my house. And one of the things that I've told people to do, uh, anywhere that I spoke, wherever news outlet, wherever I was given the voice to speak, one of the things I told the American people is make sure you have hydroxychloroquine ivermectin in your medicine cabinet. Have it in your medicine cabinet because the early disease can be treated, can be knocked out immediately. Don't wait till you get sick. Don't wait and be calling us when you're in the hospital and trying to get somebody to come and break you out of the hospital. I had people that practically broke out of the hospital, ran out into the, and then called me from their house and asked me for medication. I mean, I, I, I did, oh my God, I can't even imagine the kind of medicine I practiced in the past two and a half years. But, uh, and, hey, uh, um, we, we did something. Have a we question. did something. Um, yeah. So- are you just mm-hmm. are you using um, hydroxychloroquine and Brian too and everyone in here? Are you using hydroxychloroquine to prophylax? Are you using um, ivermectin prof- to prophylax? <laughs> I, mean, I use I I'm use not- both. Uh, it actually depends on the patient. People some people some people want their people want hydroxychloroquine. It's cheaper. We give it to them, and some people use ivermectin to prophylax, and we give it to them. But this is what. Uh, I'm saying, uh, and it comes from my mindset of growing up in Africa, where we took uh, prophylaxis weekly for malaria. There's no such thing as a regular cold. There's no such thing where in a time when COVID is now endemic, there's no such thing like I have a cold or it's my allergies. I'm just going to wait it out for five days. Because by the time you wait it out for five days, if it's not your uh, regular cold or your allergies, you're moving into the next phase of the disease, which is going to be harder to treat. So one of the things that we are trying to do on our website, if you go to my website, drstellamd.com, you can see it on my Twitter, on, on my t- Twitter handle. One of the things that we do is we encourage people to get hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and stock up in their home, in their medicine cabinet. Many of my patients were put on prophylaxis weekly. They took hydroxychloroquine, they took zinc, vitamin C, vitamin D, and most of my patients, they stayed healthy. They had family members that got sick. They took care of family members and they stayed healthy, which is one of the big things that we push. One thing that we did earlier when we started doing telemedicine, it was a nightmare. We would call pharmacists. Pharmacists would report me to the board and they would cancel prescriptions and not even tell us that they cancel prescriptions. It was crazy. So somewhere along the line, we, we reached out to the mom and pop pharmacists. I was on one of the two, two conservative big shows and I reached out to mom and pop pharmacists and I told them, listen, 
we need your help. America needs your help. So one of the things that we did is that we got mom and pop pharmacies, network mom and pop pharmacies all over the country that could ship ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine to your, to your house. Number one, we had doctors licensed. We still do in all 50 states that would, would prescribe hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin to you to keep it in your house. And one of the biggest thing that we did when we started out is that I built my telehealth system from scratch. It was not, uh, initially, uh, uh, it was not, it was hosted by Amazon. Then I took off the hosting from Amazon because we built our telehealth system from scratch. We connected with pharmacies and built a part of our pharmacies. We ended up creating a closed system. And since we created a closed system, it stopped a lot of the uh, crazy reportings to the board and we're able to give patients medications without being impeded. But what that did is that it takes two, three days to ship to your house. So we tell people, get, if you go now, you get the hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin right now. Get it in your medicine cabinet. Don't wait till you're too sick. Chloroquine and they work also for flu. They work also for, for RSE. The reason is because they are all RNA viruses. And I'm sure Richard will say a little more about that. So they work for all these diseases. So there is no reason for anybody to be afraid of COVID. And the only reason people are afraid is that they withheld information. They withheld information that could allow people to make the proper choice on the treatment that they wanted. I'm not going to give somebody a COVID vaccine, but I'm not going to beat somebody in the head for taking a COVID vaccine because they come back to me and I still treat them and I take care of them like anybody else. But people need to have informed consent on anything. When I had the first report to the boards, they, they looked at everything and they said, oh, you did not give a proper informed consent. This was, we had a two-page consent. We had a whole full-page consent on hydroxychloroquine, what it does, the rare side effects we had, and we gave it to the patient. So I asked the board, I said, you guys are giving, you're promoting a job that doesn't have any side effect listed. We even had, we have people sign a consent before they, we give them hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. So that that way, they knew that this can possibly happen and they signed and they took it. And so we had all this, so much rancor happened over something that I still today is easily treated, is easily prophylaxed and people should not be sick. So that's why I, my message to the American people, to the world at large is that COVID is treatable, it's completely preventable. People should not be afraid of it. And you should make sure that you get the information and get the medications for your family. Because if you're waiting for the medical industrial complex, you might not make it out. And I'm going to let, um, where's uh, Dr. Angela? Can I Angela? just ask one question on prophylaxis? Yes. Too? Sure. I'm sorry. Just, I wanted to know if anybody um, had come, I haven't, but I was wondering if any of you have possibly come across any studies that would have been done on patients with, say, like rheumatoid arthritis who have been taking hydroxychloroquine prior to any of this and to see if they had any, um, if there was any difference prophylactically. Well, we had a lot of rheumatologists came out and say that their patients were not catching COVID. We had a lot of rheumatologists. Like I said, on, on, on Facebook, we have a group of doctors that, thousands of doctors that we relate with, and we had rheumatologists speaking, and they should have spoken out more, but everybody was afraid to speak up. You know, some say rheumatologists, they would, if you, most, many rheumatologists said this. And there was a study that was done in, in Paris that was done with, uh, uh Didi Rao. Until today, they are still vilifying Didi Rao in, in, in France because of the study that was done for patients that were rheumatology patients and how well they did with the COVID pandemic. Thank you. It's taken uh, hydroxychloroquine for, um, Sjogren's. And neither one of us got COVID until, you know, just recently, like in the last few months. And 
you know, hers, hers, her case was, was she just kept taking it. You know, she didn't change her dose or anything. And, and she got through COVID without too much trouble. I mean, she caught, she had to cough for like two or three weeks. For me, it was like a cold. And, um, I was wondering about quercetin as a prophylactic, um, since, um, if that's, cause I've, I was using that whenever I start feeling kind of out of it. Um, is that effective? And, and one other question, then I'll, I'll turn it over is, is, you know, we're really wondering, uh, I get a lot of questions about people that are vaccinated and worried about what's going to happen to them. And I just wonder how much work is being done in that whole area of trying to find medications that can, um, you know, try to help people that, you know, who knows what's going to happen to them with these adverse events over. We do have something for vaccinated patients, but I wanted to keep this space really just about early treatment. And uh, uh, Dr. Osa and I were talking, and Brian, we're going to get doctors and we're going to do a space on uh, the vaccine injury and some of the things that we're doing to help. Um, It's not all is lost. So I wanted to wait on that. Number two, let me answer you on quercetin. Quercetin is also an iron of four. The reason uh, people take hydroxychloroquine, it works best if you take it with supplements of zinc and vitamin D. So, um, uh, if you didn't take it with supplements of zinc and vitamin D, it reduces, it, it kind of, um, if you take zinc and vitamin D, it increases the efficacy of it, kind of just preventing you from getting COVID. So people that took quercetin, zinc and vitamin D, most of them did not get COVID. And if they did, I, have, I know a lot of patients and they got, um, a milder version with, and these are anecdotal, uh, reports. So, um, Quercetin works as an iron It opens zinc channels. It allows zinc to go in and kill the virus. So quercetin works very well if they would zinc and vitamin D. Dr. Also, and I put out a formulary which we, uh, our patients take and they do very well. So and, my and, I will, and I will say um, uh, that uh, one of the things about hydroxy is a little bit different than zinc in terms of just not only being that zinc ionophore. Um, so, so it has a, a big effect on endosomal acidification which is basically a way that um, that not only uh, the zinc ionophore effect in the RDRP, but it also has an effect on on uh, uh, viral assembly. Um, it, it it's it's got other effects um, that quercetin doesn't have. But quercetin is a good um, prophylactic. Um, it's safe, um, and I think in general, uh, you know that whole that whole regimen that um, Stella just mentioned is is a, a very reasonable way to actually help against any of these RNA viruses, respiratory RNA viruses uh, use a lot of the same pathways. And so that's why it'll be effective against the flu and, and some other things also. So I think it's a good strategy as a prophylactic. Uh, Dr. Angela Ferrara, Ferrara he, she treated a lot of um, pediatric patients and let us say something about that. Hello. Well, good evening. Um, great space that we're having here. Um, I've treated both adults and children. Um, you know, most of the kids got away with just, um, you know, good old fashioned supportive treatment. Uh, we didn't have to use too much, but you know, that, that's another true statement is that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine can be used in kids, especially high risk kids. Um, you know, we use ivermectin, um, topically to kill lice and we have been for years and years and years. So when people are talking about horse pace or whatever, it didn't make any sense because you could actually take the lice medicine and rub it on your skin. It would penetrate and you'd actually respond. So, um, and we did have some people actually formulate some of those topical um, formulations for us 
for people that were too sick to swallow the pills or, or couldn't get the medication any other way. So, you know, that, that's a huge thing. And the kids, we knew from the very beginning, the kids weren't affected from Chinese studies all over the place. You know, the kids were not affected. It was a 0.7, um, relative risk for the kids to actually get it. So even if a parent in the household had COVID, you know, the children did not directly get COVID. They were a buffer. And, and I tried to, bringing that out very early on. I, I was a very, very loud proponent of not locking the kids down out of school. I wanted the kids to keep going to school. Um, I wanted the kids to keep visiting their grandparents. I thought this was all ludicrous and I kept screaming that from the mountaintops. But, you know, when, when you talk sense and it's not the sense that other people want, they're going to shut you down, and, which is what we found in at first. When that happened to me in the summer of 2020, I, I, I really couldn't believe it. Um, cause I was like, who am I? I'm nobody. I'm just, this is just common sense. <laughs> and so we, um, you know, in our practice, we shifted and pivoted to adults very, very quickly because the kids weren't coming in because the kids weren't sick. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've probably treated over 3000 patients easily, um, for COVID within our practice quite successfully. And so, we have to be real mindful of the PTSD now that people have suffered because of all this. And I agree with you 100%, Stella, that we do need to have everyone have certain items in their home um, on the ready just in case because no one trusts the hospitals. We can't even trust our colleagues anymore to pass a patient to the hospital. We can't trust them. And so, you know, and that's a pretty sad state of affairs when a doctor who, who works outside, who's a community physician, doing things as an outpatient and really need some inpatient support. And we really can't even trust them to do that. And that's very sad and scary. So when you're looking at um, things to have in your cabinet, and I actually did a medical bug out bag um, lecture that's on my Facebook, if anyone wants to go look at that, and it's a brighter tomorrow pediatrics um, in that medical bug out bag. One of the things that, that I was selling left, right and upside down was nebulizers because what was one of the first things that they put, they pulled out of the emergency rooms and off of the ambulances was nebulizers. That is like the most ridiculous thing. You have people that are in respiratory distress and you won't give them something to relieve their respiratory distress. A nebulizer works beautifully in these cases, but you know, this, this falsehood of, well, it's going to spread COVID um, was ridiculous. And these poor ambulance um, EMTs and paramedics and stuff, they were watching these people just suffocate and they couldn't do anything for them because they weren't allowed to use the, the nebulizers with life-saving medications, such as budesonide, such as um, the albuterol or leave albuterol. So one of the things that I started doing very early on is I contacted a durable medical equipment company and I stocked up on nebulizers. I mean, I just called them. I said, just bring me whatever you can, how many that you can. And I pretty much would not let anyone leave my office without a nebulizer in hand if they didn't have one at home. I mean, that is another thing that's absolutely essential because, you know, there is going to be the next thing. And so I would really recommend the American people, all of you have a nebulizer on hand. Um, we have recipes um, for if you can't get albuterol, leave albuterol or budesonide. We actually have recipes for other things that work just as well. Um, I was using a ton of saline with um, hydrogen peroxide nebs and they worked beautifully. And so, you know, we were doing that. 
left, right, and upside down when um, at some times we couldn't even get people to get to the pharmacy to get medicine. And so I would have them mix this up and put it in their nebulizer, you know, just to kind of tide them over. And it worked great. And so there's a lot of things out there now that we have discovered through this kind of crisis medicine that we had to practice because we were so blocked and shunned and censored. And, you know, we were threatened and we were reported all these things. We became really smart and we became really, um, very resourceful. You know, we started to get, you know, early on, I found Stella early on. I found Richard early on. I found Brian Tyson, you know, so, and, and also Brian Proctor. So very early on, we kind of jumped for each other as life, as lifesavers and lifeboats to, help our patients because we didn't care what the CDC said. Obviously it didn't make sense. We were like, they're not going to help us. So what did we do? We did what we always did in medicine. We called a colleague and said, Hey, help me with this patient. I got this patient. Tell me what you would do. What, you know, do you have experience with this? Because this is something that I'm trying to do and I don't know. And is there something I can tweak? We did that. We had open lanes of communication. It was amazing. If there is a silver lining of COVID, it is the fact that, there are phenomenal doctors across the country that have now found a new network and we are not going to let each other go anymore. I mean, this is, this is it. We're each other's life vest, you know? And I just, I'm, I just thank God every day that these pe- that he brought us all together and that he um, has made such a strong bond for all of us to, to, to be friends and to remain friends forever. And, and even better, we're colleagues and we all have the same goals. We want to save people's lives. We want to help our patients. And and that's all I care about. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Angela. You, you couldn't have said it any better. Uh, we became each other's like lifesaver. And then we, we, we created like groups on um, Telegram and stuff. And we, it became like a support group. You know, when we got kicked off here, we call each other and stuff. And it's it's great because... Like I say, we, I, I think every one of us need to give props to Elon Musk for even allowing us to do these spaces and allow our voice to come out and allow the American people to hear the side that was kept away from them for so many, for two and a half years that allowed people to die. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, we give props to Elon Musk for this and I hope this continues because like they were saying, this space needs to be shared to many people because people have to hear that there is a way out. You don't have to be scared. Uh, we, uh, you're talking about the bug out back. We put together something I called, um, uh, COVID care complete. It, and we, we created our own nebulizer, which is a handheld nebulizer, which you can use. It can be battery. You can actually charge it with your, uh, with your, you know, your power bank, you know, so because at some point we could not get nebulizers. You could call hospital clinic and they didn't have nebulizers so we created ours so we put together what we call the covid care complete and it had hydroxychloroquine ivermectin bdsenite a nebulizer and z-pack where we, we, we personalized prescribed to you to keep in your medicine cabinet we don't know what's gonna happen and i tell everybody right now i i can scream this on the rooftop please america please listen tell your family members your friends Get this stuff in your medicine cabinet. You don't have to be scared of COVID. COVID is endemic. And let me tell you something. Any other virus that they try, those RNA viruses, they can all be treated in the same manner. I know some of our people that are like, no, we, we allowed some speakers to come up. There are no physicians so that they can ask questions and, you know, 
you know, if we can have like Stacy, can you say? I hear you guys. Um, I've been listening to most of this. I'm actually, I was waiting for a, a spot to jump in because I'm going to, I'm going to jump down. My husband's asleep right next to me. And if I speak too long, he'll wake up and he won't be very happy. Um, <laughs> but I really hope to have the opportunity to discuss everything that you guys have been discussing tonight from a journalist perspective in the height of this pandemic, because I felt like I was your megaphone. Um, and trying to get early treatment information out to people. And, you know, I was deplatformed and banned and, and, you know, um, banned from payment processors and all of that throughout COVID. Um, and so I understand in a different way the plight that all of you guys experienced, but I just want to thank everybody up on stage tonight for everything you did for humanity, because without you, there would be a lot more people who didn't make it through this. And, um, that's there's no words that can express the thanks that a lot of us have for you. So appreciate you very much. All right. Uh, I think uh, Melissa, you're our co-host. Maybe you have a comment to make. Um, and then I'm going to go to Brian to tell us a little bit more specifically. We need to like really dig deep into the protocols that we use. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Yeah, that's actually what I wanted to um, to uh, have you guys go deeper into, like the protocols and maybe talk to people about prevention, some of the supplements. I know Dr. Stella has great supplements that she has um, that have helped me and my family for sure for um, prevention and maybe just going into like if somebody gets sick, like, you know, how do they take the um how did, how did they actually go through the protocol? And I just wanted to say thank you to all the doctors that are on here for, you know, um, going through what you guys had to go through. I mean, we all just watched in shock what was happening in this country. And it's just truly, truly unbelievable, you know, coming from Zimbabwe myself and coming to America, the land of the free, the last two years have just been a total shock to see how much of our civil liberties have been um, taken away from us, being taken off Twitter. Dr. Stella was taken off Twitter. I know I was taken off Twitter, and thanks to Elon Musk, I'm back on. So it's just it's just so amazing to see um, everybody back and able to speak, um, you know, in a country that, you know, <laughs> that we've all thought to be, you know, the land of the free. We all come here as immigrants and, you know, aspire to live in a free country and then, you know, something like this happens. So I'm just really thankful to Elon Musk and I'm thankful to doctors like Dr. Stella, Dr. Urso, and all the other doctors that are on here that weren't afraid to speak up and um, were just heroes, total heroes. And, and thanks to you, so many lives were saved. And because of, you know, you, talking about all the treatments that you had a lot of people didn't end up getting the jab which which is a great thing so yeah so that's all I wanted to say so I just wanted to ask if um, you can maybe go into more about you know prevention uh, supplements that people can take and and what they need to do if they do get sick okay uh, Brian can you talk a little bit more uh, let Brian talk about how to treat uh just the protocols, like just if you had a patient, somebody walked into your clinic and you think they had COVID symptoms, what would you typically do so that people can hear this and go ask their physicians? 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, but it's, it's interesting though, because I mean, honestly, Stella, you know, things have changed. Um, and, you know, what we started with and the tools we had, um, some of those tools we don't have right now. And California being very difficult, um, it's even becoming a little bit more so. Uh, but I'll, I'll go into what, what for Alpha uh, and the Delta variants, which are the really bad ones. Um, what we would start with was hydroxychloroquine. That was the, the basis. Um, 200 milligrams three times a day on day one, and then 200 milligrams twice a day, day two through five. Um, that had to be taken with zinc, either zinc uh, uh, sulfate, the 220, or the zinc 25 milligrams uh, twice a day with your hydroxychloroquine. Again, you guys are going to hear you need a zinc uh, ionophore or you need something to help bring zinc into the cell to bind to the RNA polymerase. So that's what we're, we're talking about. So we would use hydroxychloroquine with zinc. Uh, then we were using Zithromax because Zithromax would treat uh, both as an antiviral and a ba- antibacterial um, to prevent pneumonia. Now, interesting, you know, why why we continue to stay with that was we would do respiratory panels. And I do a 30-panel PCR, and we were seeing a ton of co-infections with both SARS coronavirus and strep pneumo or and Moraxilla catarrhalis, or and uh, Haemophilus influenza. These are all bacterial co-infections we were seeing along with COVID-19. So the <clears throat> it made sense to us to stick with using uh, Zithromax in the younger population or doxycycline in the older population because of that whole QT uh, prolongation uh, issue. Um, we made sure that uh, everybody took um, at least 81 milligrams of aspirin or 325 if they were high risk. Um, if they were over the age of 60, they also got a Pixaban uh, to make sure that they had uh, um, protection against uh, blood clotting. Um, we gave them uh, melatonin uh, because one of the melatonin studies came out uh, that, uh, that and it's, it was also over the counter. Um, as well as D3 and vitamin C. Um, everybody knows that D3 and vitamin C help your immune system. Uh, so we gave them and told them to make sure that they had that. Um, NAC. NAC hasn't been talked about, I don't think, tonight. Um, 600 milligrams of NAC uh, daily. That's N-acetylcysteine. Um, that was a huge uh, benefit in um, preventing uh, the inflammatory cytokine storm process, as well as keeping down the viral replication. Um, and then later we added ivermectin uh, when the ivermectin study started coming out. Um, and yeah, we did use all of this in combination. I did not use the 0.4 milligrams per kilogram that the FLCC uses. I used hydroxychloroquine with 12 or 16 um, milligrams of ivermectin daily uh, for three days. Um, and what we found was we had probably an 80% success rate with treatment. If the patient had respiratory symptoms, okay, and the respiratory symptoms we're talking about is they had a chest pain, they had shortness of breath, or they had any evidence on chest x-ray, um, they got a shot of 12 milligrams of Decadron uh, in our office, and we, we sent them home with budesonide. 
uh, two milligrams twice a day for as long as they needed um, until their chest X-ray showed improvement. Um, And I think that that was one of the biggest things that that, uh, we did. Um, And we also added singular and colchicine if we found those chest X-rays positive. Um, With that, we added another layer of uh, 19.9% cure rate on that. Um, And then, um, you know, obviously, if they need a supplemental oxygen, we would give them supplemental oxygen. Um, But that was the basis of our treatment. Uh, When monoclonal antibodies came out, uh, Regeneron was the first one. Uh, We did give those patients IV infusions in the clinic, um, especially the elderly and the really sick ones um, that we saw. We definitely gave it to them. We didn't care what stage of the disease it was. Uh, We gave them the monoclonal antibodies. Um, It did. uh, The patients reported that it was helpful. Um, And then as those changed from uh, Regeneron to Bemisimab and Sotelamab and all the other Mabs, uh, we would use those as they were, they would, they would come out. But now everybody knows recently they pulled them all off the market. So we can't even give those uh, anymore. Um, It's no longer uh, EUA approved, any of them. um, So we can't give those out uh, anymore, but we were doing that with IV fluid uh, for anybody who had high heart rate showing signs of fever uh, we treated dehydration in the office um, as well. Um, so, <clears throat> I mean, that was the protocol. And Dr. Tyson, can I ask on... a question? Yeah. A pediatrician here. I just had a question about uh, acetylcysteine. Did you ever treat, uh, did you ever use it as mucomist? And did you find that effective? Um, I used mucomist in the hospital. Um, and, but I did not use it in the outpatient. I just went ahead and just had them buy the over the counter knack, um, and just, just told them to, to buy that. And then there was, it, it was really weird because after we were using that for a while, um, the FDA came out with a hit on that and you couldn't even get it in the, the pharmacies anymore. You had to get it online. Um, and only certain, certain stores would carry it. Uh, but I didn't have any experience having to use, um, mucomis, but I'm, I mean, I'm sure it would be the same formulation uh richard might know more than that hey brian uh, let me jump in on that one too yeah. because as a pediatrician i'm also a pediatrician this is angie Farella, and um mucomist in our local area we couldn't even get it at the pharmacy we could not even get the nebulizers uh the nebulized medicine um because i knew how to use it obviously you know i have a couple of cf patients in my practice and so i jumped to try to get mucomist and we couldn't get it could not get it and so that's when I kind of pivoted and I was like, well, forget it. You know, I'm just going to use the good old fashioned albuterol, leave albuterol and budesonide, of course, oral steroids um, and all the stuff that everyone else said. But I really hit people very, very hard with vitamin D. I used super high doses of vitamin D. Lots of studies in the early 2000s that showed the higher your D, the better your response is to reactivity in your lungs. And so, um, you know, there's an inverse proportion. The higher your D, the less asthma you have. So that was kind of my go-to um, at the time. And then I gave oral and, and acetylcysteine, so, or the NAC, you know, and, and, you know, so that, that was a cornerstone of, of something that I was doing. But, and I thought about that early on, but I could not for the life of me get it. Yeah, we started so, using. So just to talk about the, okay. the mucomus, the oral versus IV, I think the IV was there. I, I, so there's probably some difference in pharmacokinetics. Um, but it, it's not it's not considered major difference in in the outcomes. 
the um, mucomist, um, uh, the, the IV administration is basically a lot of uh, originally developed for, you know, Tylenol uh, toxicity, where a lot of those patients, when they're having severe issues or, you know, nausea and vomiting stages. And so the oral administration uh, wouldn't be uh, able to be administered. So I think, um, I, I don't know, I haven't looked at it in a long time, but the pharmacokinetics might be a little different. You might get a little bit of um, extra oomph out of the, uh, out of the IV administration. Um, certainly you can, you know, the whole point of it is to, uh, to create a glutathione, it raised glutathione levels, which of course can be administered um, on IV. So um, in some sense, um, you know, I think the oral administration is, is very, very uh, uh, powerful in, in, in this case. Yeah, we did use NAC. We used NAC and we used uh, uh, zinc, we, vitamin C, D, zinc, and NAC. We used that quite early on. And because we finally got pharmacies that were like mom and pop pharmacies, we were able to get all of them to stock all this stuff and be able to get it to the patients. And we know there was a doctor that was practic- that is actually being sued by the government right now because he encouraged the use of vitamin D. And... uh so what I would tell, I'm a, like I say, it's back to actually really being practical. As what we would tell people to do practically, like I said, get your vitamin D, get quercetin, get uh, zinc, and in this, I mean, we have I have a protocol. Richard and I p- produce a protocol we call it Covivites that has vitamin C, D, zinc, and quercetin. Or just get it over the counter or buy it on on wherever you want to buy it. But it's important that uh, everybody has the mindset of COVID is endemic. If you have the mindset that COVID is endemic, you'll, uh, you start having that little cold, just opt, take your vitamins, you know what I'm saying? And I would say it 500 times, get hydroxychloroquine ivermectin in your medicine cabinet. Um, we're going to open up the space for people to ask questions. Um, um, uh, we're just going to open up the space. People that want to ask questions, you can request, and then we can let people ask questions before we go off. With... Uh, Something else, uh, Brian, there's one thing I noticed in my treatment protocol with patients. I found out that the difference between somebody surviving COVID, especially in above like the age of 60, if you give them fluids, dehydration was one of the main reasons that older people went down. So if we were able to give them IV fluids and we usually will put like vitamin B, uh, B, uh, B complex in their IV fluid and so that it will give them energy and they'll be able to get up. And because when COVID knocked you down and you can't walk up and down, the more you sit down, the more your lungs get oppressed and the more you get sicker. So we're able to get people up and walking up and down and giving them just, it, it gave people energy and we encourage people to eat. I was like, Eat, drink, even if the food tastes like wood, which is probably going to taste like wood, you need to eat because you need the energy because COVID is a very hypermetabolic state. And if you don't have the energy, you're going to be weak, you're going to be drained. And and that is what brought a lot of people down. That is the weakness, the drain, and then the respiratory symptoms got people to run to the emergency room and most of them never came out. We were very, very, and still do, Giving budesonide and uh, uh, zoponex, levabural treatments in the clinic, that got people better uh, very, very fast. Even till today, when we take care of patients, usually we will ship the hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin to you. But if people can get, we call in zinc, we, we, we call in budesonide, and we try to get them a nebulizer, so they start taking it immediately. Most times they start getting better. We just budesonide nebulizing treatments before they can even get the um, 
hydroxy and the hydro, uh, ivermectin to get to them. So uh, these are things that, like I said, we've, we're telling you some of these things. We want you to know it. Ask your doctors and think about you and your family. And remember that this is war. Uh, I don't think this is this is not even science. There is uh, something nefarious and going on against humanity. The medical industrial complex, it looks like the kings of the world have waged war against the people of the world. And that is why I tell everybody, be aware of the fact. Think about your family, how to protect your family. And we're doing a, uh, Melissa and I are writing a book on pre- preparedness, not just in medical preparedness. And in other words, what are the five antibiotics you will need in an emergency? What are the five over-the-counter medicines you will need in an emergency? What are, what, what do you, you know, how do you get your medicines? Like if you're on diabetic medication or you're on high blood pressure medication and you can't get it, what do you do? So we're putting that together because I, I can, I'm sure every one of us in this, on this, uh, space and other people that are going to watch it, have this sick feeling in them that says this is not over. So my mindset is to get people ready and prepared to stand whatever it is that they do. And so we're going to open up. Um, Bob wants to say something, and then we're going to open up uh, for people to ask questions. Okay. Dr. Uh, before you open the questions, I'm going to give a little bit of instructions for the audience. Uh, please make sure that you ask your question within like about 30 seconds. Uh, we probably won't have time for stories. Uh, we just want you to address the doctor that you want to ask the question right away. And then after Bob, we're going to go to Heather. She'll ask the first question. And then I am going to be asking people to drop themselves out uh, because we're limited on only to 10 speakers at a time. So we need to be bringing on the next speakers. Thank you. Go ahead, Bob. Okay, just really quick. Um, on the vitamin D thing, I just wanted to point out, I, I had read that it's really important that you have your vitamin D levels up um, before you get COVID, that like trying to take massive amount of vitamin D when you get COVID is maybe a little, you know, it's hard to get enough in your system fast enough if you've already got a deficiency. So I'll just put that out there for the doctors to comment on. Um, and also I did read, um, that there was some interactions like where on the FLCC side, I think it said like that you shouldn't take at the same time as ivermectin. I can't remember what it was. I've just, I just remember that there was some stuff about that you should take some, if you're taking a lot of all these drugs that you should take, you shouldn't necessarily take all of the medications at the same time. Um, so, um, and the other thing was, um, Renee, uh, was putting some stuff in chat and, she was wanting to ask a question for some reason. She couldn't get in a request, but um, over. Yeah, we're going to open the floor. Let me answer that. Let me answer that on, um, we're going to open the floor in a minute. Let me answer that on um, taking quercetin and hydroxychloroquine at the, at the same time. Yes, you can. Um, and uh, F, FL, the FLCC, yeah, they have a protocol, and I think they are ivermectin only. We have other people that are butyrosinide only and people that are hydroxychloroquine only and stuff like that. This disease has to be managed with many different um, things and you know, something. So the disease we give, I give hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and quercetin and zinc and vitamin D to sick patients. Depending on how sick they were, sometimes we give them a full course of hydroxychloroquine. We give them ivermectin day one, three and five, or maybe just one dose. So it all it's all uh, depending on the patient and how they respond. Can, is it safe for you to take hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and quercetin and zinc? Yes, you can. It's safe for you to take it. So far, we haven't had any people come with uh, side effects from that. And if you look at quercetin, you know, you can, you can take it. Uh, and Dr. Also, if there's anything to say about that. You know. 
Yeah, I was specifically wondering about time of day. I understand you could take them all together, but I was reading something that, that I thought that, that you weren't supposed to take them all at the same time of, of day, even if you take them all together. So, so let me comment on that. Um, you know, basically, you, when you're dealing with what we were dealing with, and I, and I don't want to be fussy about this, but in a sense, you're, you're losing the forest for the trees. That's what Stella is saying. Okay? You're spending too much time thinking about something that doesn't matter that much. And I'm not picking on, on what you're saying because it can be really critical not to mix certain medications together. So you're, you're basically talking to somebody who's treating hundreds of patients a day. And, and in a sense, the criticalness of what you're asking is not that critical clinically. That's the point. So that's the point. Like there are, there are things that, that actually matter. And then there are things that are theoretical. And, uh, Brian, do you want to comment on this? Because do you, do you give them specific instructions? There are people who can't take pills. Um, you know, they can't take more than two or three at a time. At the end of the day, they want to get the medicines in. They want to get them in the body. They want to get them absorbed. Um, ivermectin does better with fatty food. I don't know what it says on the thing, but I can tell you I mix, I've been mixing eye drugs for it for 20-something years. And I can tell you that if it doesn't have an oil base, it doesn't, it doesn't penetrate as well. So, you know, it's, with a fatty meal, it's better. But I don't tell the patients that to the most part. I tell them maybe a little bit. But at the end of the day, you're losing the forest for the trees when you're in the middle of people that are sick that very day. So it's not a critical, critical component of the actual care. And I think that's the main point what Stella was trying to say. Um, Brian, you want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I'll just I'll just tell you, I mean, you know, we've treated, you know, over 20,000 patients. So a lot of what you're hearing is upset stomach. Um, a lot of people can't handle taking all the pills at once. Um, so it is better to space them out over time of the day. Um, we didn't really care what time of day you took it. Um, or how you took it, as long as you ended up taking all of them um, at some point during the day. Uh, I you know, that's a, that... go, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead, Brian. Go, go ahead. No, I was just going to say ivermectin. Uh, we did also tell them to take it with their their meal, um, you know, because most of the time, you know, especially in, in our environment, they're going to have some fat in that meal. Um, and, and then we also had them follow that up with the Pepsid. Um, for the dyspepsia and stuff like that, that would help. Yeah, and that's another good point. I mean, Brian, uh, that's probably what I should have, uh, should have thought about that. Because when you take a bunch of stuff at the same time, it is a, a load. And, and especially, I know hydroxychloroquine, um, I got a lot of upset stomachs with hydroxychloroquine if you get too much too fast. So, I mean, it makes a difference. But in the way, and, and I, th- I think I was reading into what your question was, was is it clinically important it's clinically important because like i said patients when they get those loads um you know they don't want to even take the medicine if you get an upset stomach then you feel even worse from that but i mean as far as outcomes clinical outcomes it's about getting the medicine in your body getting it absorbed uh, and letting it get to work and and so um I, I don't know why they have that on flcc website but it's it's not a critical point in the in the, in the whole care although i've had patients vomit everything up because you know, they took too much too fast. So that that's kind of a, it's a good question. Uh, but, in, but in a sense, there's, there's the answer is more in what Brian just said. We had a lot of patients that came with GI symptoms that had diarrhea and vomiting. And most of the time, if you did not address the diarrhea and vomiting, they could not tolerate the rest of the medication. So we were giving, uh, we were giving uh, people sometimes Zofran. And if we gave Zofran, because Zofran and hydroxychloroquine and, and um, 
and ZPAC, they both all cause QT prolongation. If we're giving Zofran, if they were taking, we'll probably use doxycycline. So we all tweak stuff together to make sure. There's one thing that we did for our patients that were coming to the clinic is that we got our patients to come, especially when they started developing pneumonia, they came daily and they got rosefin shots. So we gave them, if we took, we did five days of, 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 uh, of ZPAC and if I defeat they were still six, we put them on doxycycline and they came daily and they got rosefin shots and if they came in and they need IV fluids, we gave them IV fluids. We found out that managing these patients daily was really worked wonders. Even patients that we were seeing via telehealth, we basically saw our patients and followed them up till they got better and follow them up till they needed if they needed more medicine we called it in if they needed more more uh if they needed iv fluids we started in, encouraging our patients to drink at least two liters of pedialyte or some kind of light so we we encourage them to drink in a day so we we'll tell them to make sure that they're taking two liters of pedialyte that's what we encourage them to take in a day and they should try to get it down so we had to give them something to stop the nausea so that they can be able to get these fluids down because if they didn't they're going to get dehydrated and get sicker so it was a comprehensive treatment we had RNs on call that will call the patients every two days and see how they were doing and you know so it was a comprehensive thing that we all put together and um it's something that, uh, like I said, uh, other doctors could probably glean from, and we all helped each other. We call each other to check what was happening. What, what do you do for this? What do you do for that? And it worked out, and we've created a community that has actually been here to take care of people. Um, yeah, and so um, and so that's a great point. Uh, and I just want to uh, tag on uh, Stella. One of the things that happened was like for me once I started realizing that there may be an H one H two blocking be very important. I started using, if I needed to do something for nausea, I started using um, Phenergan because it blocks H1 and H2 receptors. So I think in general, um, little little nuances occurred and the, and the electrolyte replacement was really important. The other thing that I found really important, once I started giving steroids, a lot of these patients were, the sicker patients were insulin resistant. And so you had to, I basically put them all on zero carb diets for, for the time they were taking the steroids. So I basically say, hey, that you know, a week where you can't be on, you can't, you can't eat carbs. And, you know, I gave him bone broth. That was a big part of, of one of the things, because when you're in the ICU constantly can measure glucose and you can constantly have a sliding mm-hmm. scale of insulin, but in an outpatient setting, you're going to basically drive your, uh, you're going to drive your uh, patients into a, you know, um, you know, a ketoacidosis state if you're not careful with steroids. And, you know, at one point in time, we got in the Delta, I was using 100 and even 120 milligrams of prednisone, um, even up to 140 on some days with really bad patients with the SATs down in the, in the, uh, in the 70s. So I think in some sense, there was a lot of nuanced treatment, um, as we went forward. And, you know, we never had just one protocol that was, we were stuck on. It depended on the patient. They got diabetes. I might twist, I'm adjusted. Um, if they were nauseated, you know, I started, you know, start, we all started doing little things differently. So it's great conversation actually to have this because that, that's basically what we were doing. And that's why these hospital protocols were absurd because there's always something a little bit different about ages, the comorbidities, et cetera, for each patient. Exactly. Um, so we're going to go more to... Thing. There was one more thing that um, we haven't mentioned either tonight, which uh, I found was actually pretty useful, uh, was opening the windows of your house and having your patients walk around the block. So yeah, we I would tell... Yeah, we would tell our patients to walk around outside. It helped with m- circulation, mobility, 
and fresh air in a time where everybody was told to stay inside and stay at home. Um, and that fresh air and that walking around seemed to help out a lot as well. Okay, so we're going to go to questions and, and you know, and answers. And um, let's see. Uh, I think we're going to start with Nikki, if you want to say something. And like uh, Carolina said earlier, uh, we can only have 10 speakers at a time. So we might have to drop some speakers so that we can let people speak. And once you speak, uh, you ask your question and it's answered, we'll drop you so that other people can come on. All right. Uh, I think Nikki, or is it Heather? Let's start with Heather. Heather was going to say something. Uh, yeah, it's Heather, and then it'll be Micah, and then Nikki. Okay, go ahead. Hey, thank you guys. And um, thank each and every one. Go ahead, Heather. Yeah, can you guys hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, thank you guys um, for putting on this space. And um, doctor, uh, I'm really interested in that future vaccine injury space that you're going to be hosting. So if you could keep me in the loop about that. I don't think I've seen a Twitter space on that yet, like how to treat the vaccine uh, injured. But my question is for some of the doctors here um, that have mentioned that you guys had found successful treatments, but then they became hard to obtain or you just couldn't get them at the pharmacies and stuff. So do you think that that was attributed to like a higher demand that the supply couldn't keep up with right away? Or is it something more nefarious where you know, government agencies are getting involved in directly suppressing treatments that they know are effective at treating COVID. Because I personally testified on a bill here in my state of New Hampshire to make ivermectin available over the counter. And actually, Dr. Paul Merrick flew in for it. Yeah, it seems like um, uh, Molly's getting in and out there. Um, there was no, in the, initially when we started out, the different the, the government actually hoarded hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine was hoarded, it was put in different states and they were not hanged to use it. They hoarded it everywhere. At that time I started using mefloquine and then they opened up and then hydroxychloroquine started coming in. There's never been a time when apart from that early time there's always been hydroxychloroquine. It's a common medication. It's manufactured by every Tom, Dick, and Harry pharmaceutical company. It's all over the place. Ivermectin is all over the place. So there's never been a shortage. The issue was doctors were scared to prescribe it. Pharmacists refused to fill it. And then we had to go through creating our own, like a closed loop system to take care of people. And then most importantly, people did not have the information that it worked. And if there's anybody else to say anything about it. Yeah, it was totally nefarious because the pharmacist would ask you what you're using it for. And if you said COVID, they would not fill it. And that's not a, that's not a supply issue. That's just being evil. And I don't know about the other docs, but I had them refuse to fill doxycycline. I had them refuse to fill Singular when a patient had a breathing problem, udesonide. You know, you've got a patient in front of you short of breath and you won't give them breathing medications. I mean, that's just evil. So in situations like that where doctors like yourself are... Okay, where's, like, um, I think, the next person? Oh, okay, sorry. Yes. Your Nikki um, was going to say, okay, Nikki. Oh, sorry. I actually just, I'm going to go right off what she said because my aunt actually called um, for help for you and she... Was Nikki going to speak? Can we hear you? Can you hear me? We can hear you. I can hear her. Yeah, I was saying, well, I'm asking Nikki to, to Nikki was lifting over. Okay. Um, Carolina, call the next person. Can Nikki you hear me? was speaking. I think you weren't able to hear her. 
Oh, oh Dr. No. Stella, you might not be able to hear her. We're well, in the question and answer session, and I, we're trying to make sure that uh, people are, are able to speak and say what they yeah. wanted to they say. Drop out and um, or give a contribution. Stella, I think you're not here. I think. Okay, uh, Nikki, I think you can speak now. Unmute yourself and speak. Can you hear? Yes, we can hear. I don't think she can. Should I just drop out and come back up? Yeah, please. Uh, Dr. Stella, can you hear us? No, we should, Stella Something probably needs is not to drop going out right. and come back. Stella needs to drop out and come back. I'll text her. Well, she can't because then we'll lose the whole space. Oh, okay. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah, we all hear you. Maybe somebody try to speak, see if she can hear okay. any of us. Okay. Stella, Nikki, can you, can you hear me? To speak. Can you unmute yourself and speak? Okay. No, she, Stella, she has. She's speaking. Can you call Stella? Okay. Just give her a call. I can't oh, hear her either. Stella, can can you hear us? Um, I can hear Molly, you guys. Try speaking. Stella, you're not hearing Nikki. <clears throat> Stella, who can you hear? Point <laughs> out who you can hear. Okay, Doctor Lori, talk. I don't think she can hear Molly, Urso, or I, Doctor Urso. Hello, can you hear me? No, she cannot hear you. Oh, Melissa, can you try to speak, see if she can hear you? I'm going to drop out I, and come back in and see if it helps for Dr. me. Dr. Okay? Stella, can you hear me? Okay, now nah, I just heard because I wasn't hearing, but now nah, I can hear. Who can you hear? Okay. That, see, Stella, that was God talking to me, talking to you, so. <laughs> now nah, I can hear. <laughs> Go ahead. We're all praying. Yeah, I know, right? Lord, <laughs> I was muted. I couldn't hear anybody. Okay, we're going to go with Micah. So that's the first time I've ever done that. You've done that for me. So, you know, you open my, <laughs> my, my eyes and now I open your ears. Wow. <laughs> I, I am wondering whether um, any of the doctors are aware of the role of selenium uh, in viral infections. Because selenium is, uh, there's this uh, German f physician who... Uh, who explains it as um, selenium kind of functions for lay people. He says it's like birth control for viruses. If you have a virus, let's say um, uh, any herpes viruses, if you're low in selenium, you will have more outbreaks than if you are on regular selenium. And especially with um, chronic spike proteins in the blood from getting the vaccines, especially now, you know, listening to all of you, you're talking in the past about the early treatments. And I'm sure there's still people who have COVID now who need early treatments, but it sounds like it's gone down. And the next wave of patients is going to be vaccine, you know, people who didn't tolerate the vaccine very well, or who keep getting COVID or you know, spike protein acting up that they get from the vaccines. And I'm just wondering whether there is awareness about all that selenium research. And if there isn't, I think I'm in contact with Carolina. Uh, I can contribute more information about that. I just thought about it listening to this space. So I'm not prepared to say that much about it, but I could prepare myself for another space uh, and talk about the yeah, we're, incredible we're uh, other space pretty soon if if you want to give him a chance to answer the the first question 
Yes. Yeah, uh, Doctor. Also, can you answer that? And then yes, yeah, we're going to be doing a space on vaccine injuries. So, selenium has been looked at for many years. There's a, it's an, there's an actual increase in cancer rates with high doses of selenium. So you've got to be really careful, and that's why most people won't really put it on their list. You don't want to be deficient, but it's been done. Um, multiple studies have been done on selenium, and there's a toxicity issue with it, and that's been one of the reasons. It's not. It's not. It's easy to get into toxicity. I know the guys who are working with it, the guys you're talking about, um, they know this already, but this is why you don't hear a lot about it. It's a known problem. Um, it's in, it is associated with higher cancer rates uh, when you do. That's, that study's been done on selenium and cancer. I was very involved in the 1980s looking at natural supplement derivatives that could actually be helpful in, in cancer. And selenium was one that we looked at. And I can tell you that in, in, the, in the animal studies that we did, um, selenium was the one actually increased the cancer rate. So it, it's a, it's a drug that, I mean, it's a, a vitamin that uh, has a necessary nutrient, but there's a lot of issues with it. And uh, for the most part, it'll never take off in a big way because it's really not as powerful as some other things. Vitamin D is way more powerful than selenium. I, I can tell you just from my own research, and that's from somebody who's been doing that kind of stuff for, you know, going back 40 years. And I'm happy to kind of go over the studies and talk about it more. But I don't think it deserves a lot of talk on this on this conversation today. Thank you. Over. Okay. Um, we have a, a, a speaker from Colorado, Lorena. For a bit, I think I want you to speak. I'm actually licensed in Colorado, so um, <laughs> very special guest, Congresswoman Dr. Laura. I mean, I wish Dr. Dr. Lauren. Yes, Robert, coming in. Yeah, let's like the- um, More appropriately, GED Lauren Bobert. Um, Congresswoman from Colorado Third District, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, thank you so much for having this space uh, about COVID nineteen and early treatment and all of the misinformation that has been spread about COVID nineteen. Um, the Twitter files that were just released uh, about the financial gain from Big Pharma, uh, Pfizer regarding COVID nineteen. This is uh, extremely alarming. Um, but I, I, I want all of you to. Um, know that the GOP, the new House majority in Congress, is going to tackle this um, at an oversight level um, to the best of our abilities. Uh, We are going to issue subpoenas. We are going to bring in Big Pharma. We are going to bring in the CDC. We are going to bring in Anthony Fauci. And we are going to hold them accountable to all of the lies that were spread over the past few years shutting down small businesses, saying that they were not vital, that um, they were not um, sufficient to, to be um, operating. And, and many small businesses uh, closed and will never reopen because of government overreach. The military personnel who, was dis- who were discharged, the frontline workers who were discharged for refusing the vaccine when we were told that the vaccine um, prevents you from ever, ever, uh, getting COVID-19. And that is a complete lie. And the Twitter files show that there was censorship of the American people. And I just want you all to know that, um, the Judiciary Committee, the Oversight Committee, and many other committees in Congress are going to be issuing subpoenas uh, for the people who were in charge of this and exposing the truth. I was on a Twitter space earlier today with um, Dr. Drew, and we were discussing the importance of the Twitter files and the release of that and um, the effect that government overreach 
had with COVID-19. Um, this is a huge problem in the United States, and this is something that I am aiming to um, to get on the front uh, the front lines of and combat. You know, one thing that we see is the Democrat Party, they're always in unison. But why? Because they can't think for themselves. Because they need leadership to tell them how to think. And then as soon as Republicans take the majority in the House of Representatives and we have an actual debate on the House floor over leadership issues, over important issues that matter to every single American, over over the position of, of, of who is going to be second in line to the presidency of the United States of America and, um, and the issues that we have with that, what concessions we want, what we want Congress to look like in, reflect, uh, 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 in reflection of that um, speaker's vote. We, we hear, oh my gosh, it's chaos, it's dysfunction. Listen, y'all, I am a mom of four boys. I know what chaos and dysfunction look like very well. This has been a part of my life for a very long time. And the the week that we saw with the speaker's vote, that was not chaos. That was not dysfunction. That was the most productive week I have experienced in Congress to date. We were engaged. 434 House members, representatives present on the House floor. There was one vacancy we were present on the House floor debating the issues at hand, and we had conversations, engagements with our colleagues on both sides of the aisle re- regarding the issue, and we built relationships. We strengthened relationships, and we're coming out of this stronger than how we went in. We, we were able to get the concessions that we made into order. Uh, and, and to Speaker McCarthy's great credit, he accepted them. He saw the merit in what we were requesting and accepted them. Now we will have single subject le- legislation. Any amendments made to legislation, whether it be the House or the Senate, have to be germane to the actual title of the bill. No more Nancy Pelosi con game where you title the bill one way and get to load it with a bunch of garbage that means nothing to the actual title of the bill, like the infrastructure bill, where we spent $1.2 trillion and only 9% of it went to anything infrastructure-related. So no more of that. No more omnibus bills. No more $1.7 trillion omnibus bills where members of Congress have less than 24 hours of um, uh, 24 hours to actually read the legislation. We have 72 hours to read a bill now before we actually vote on it. So the Senate is held to that. They, they no longer can just send us over an omnibus bill and give us no time to read it before we vote on it. No, they have to send us 12 individual appropriations bills and we have 72 hours to read each bill. So um, all of this is, um, you, I, I believe that it is very beneficial to the American people and shows the American people that we are taking this majority very seriously, no matter how slim it is, we are taking it seriously and we are going to be effective in everything that we do and holding the federal government accountable and holding the federal government accountable to the overreach that took place with COVID-19 and holding Big Pharma accountable and holding the CDC accountable and holding Anthony Fauci accountable. And I could go on and on with so many other agencies and individuals that we are personally 
going to hold accountable because the American people have done been done so wrong during the past few years. And I, I just am so appreciative of you all allowing me on the space, giving me the mic to speak. And I'm happy to answer any questions that you may Congresswoman, have. Congresswoman, I have a question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to... Sorry, could I just ask a quick question? Um, could could you add to that list that you're going to hold accountable the licensing boards? Because us physicians who are trying to do our job are constantly held to the fire by the same licensing boards that are supposed to be uh, protecting and supporting the way we practice because we're actually upholding our oaths that we took. Yeah, and, and uh, Lauren, um, you know, this is Richard Urso, Dr. Urso here. Um, Stella, um uh, Molly, uh, Molly here, and uh, Brian Tyson, uh, myself. We've been uh, working with the Conservative Partnership for like the last three years, um, significantly. We've been over uh, into the Senate with Ron Johnson um, uh, and some of the others there, Mike Lee, uh, Cruz, um, Rand Paul. Um, we've spent time in Washington. Uh, we're happy to lend a hand. Um, we actually know what medicine is supposed to look like. The agencies have actually. Um, let us down. They are captured, and we understand a lot of what's happening there, um, and a lot of us can help. So um, we'll be reaching out to your office um, and and would like to participate. We're already really close with Chip Roy here in Texas um, and Andy Biggs and Scott Perry. Those are the guys that we know pretty well. There's a few others in there um, leaving out uh, Massey, Massey, Tom Massey. Uh, so uh, we'd love to work with you on that and uh, look forward to doing that because there's a lot of work to do. And, and we understand where the failures were in medicine, in the agencies. Uh, as I said, I, I actually uh, invented an FDA approved drug. I, I know the industry not really well as some do, but I know it well enough to know what's going on now and needs to be changed. And those guys do need to be held accountable because they actually know that their policies killed 90 percent of the people. That's what happened. Thank you. Um, I'm glad, uh, Congresswoman, that you're on tonight uh, with us, and I'm thankful for you coming on and speaking. Like I said, I'm licensed in Colorado, and I'm proud of that. Uh, we were silenced. Uh, we were shut down, and um, we were not allowed to give the American people informed uh, informa- the information they needed to stay healthy. Uh, but we stood up and we fought. Uh, Brian Tyson is here with me and other doctors. And we really fought to make sure that we were there to take care of the American people. Like uh, Dr. Oso says, we are available because we need to be brought to the table so that everybody needs to be brought to the table. I keep saying that we need to have a post-mortem. What happened? How was the medical industrial complex able to overcome people? What happened to the doctors? If we don't sit down and confront what happened, identify what happened. It, like I said, everybody has this queasy feeling in the stomach that something else is going to happen. So we're thankful for you being here. And you know what? I think the best thing that happened to our Congress this time was the slim majority because it made uh, <laughs> it made them sit down and listen. And I'm, I'm glad Amen. for what you guys did. I watched you guys. I was like, this is what democracy looks like. And I'm thankful that you guys stood your ground and make sure that uh, things can be done properly, and yeah, so we're here. You know, you can always, you know, contact us, and we will be there to make sure that uh, we give whatever information and experience that we've had to take care of the American people. Thank you so much, Dr. Congresswoman, for joining us. Yeah, yeah thank, you. thank you, Dr. Emmanuel, and um, thank you, Dr. Urso. Um, I, I first want to start with um, yes, we will be holding the licensing boards uh, accountable. Um, this is something that I will take up personally if um, other colleagues don't don't um, um, do so before I do. 
but this is something that we absolutely need to take charge of. Um, there was so much misinformation, disinformation, censoring, silencing of the American people during the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, I, I'm a small business owner. I never intended to be in politics, um, never intended to be involved with the federal government. Um, but during my first campaign, my restaurant was shut down um, through overreach of the state government. Um, and, and they shut my restaurant down and this really just ignited me to fight even harder and, um, take a stand for the American people, um, to, for those who have been being, who have been silenced, um, through this, we've had questions, we've had concerns, um, we've been shut out, we've been called conspiracy theorists. And now there's so much information that shows that we were on the right side of the argument. And, um, and so I'm happy to, her, uh, to walk with, or to, excuse me, to work with each and every one of you, um, on this issue. And, um, I, I, you know, I certainly applaud Congressman Chip Roy from Texas. Um, he has been outstanding in all of this, even with the speaker's debate. Um, he was one of our masterminds behind the negotiations that we were um, making. Um, Congressman Matt Gates from Florida was imperative to that. And, um, and we, we had started that debate um, months before the American public had, had seen um, the inner workings of that. We started last summer and were not taken seriously because there was supposed to be an overwhelmingly um, Republican majority. And that red wave did not manifest. And so we ended up with the slim majority where us conservatives had to be heard. Um, it was it was unacceptable to um, ignore us. Um, and unfortunately, we were we were um, somewhat ignored for a few days um, while negotiations were still being reached. Um, but I could proudly say that we came to better negotiations and agreements um, at the end of that, than, than how we had even started. Um, so I am extremely proud of Congressman Chip Roy, um, Andy Biggs, Matt Gates, um, and, and others who sat in, in all of these aggressive, rigorous meetings with myself, um, with the speaker in, in regards to the changes that would be made. And, um, I hope that my hope is that we can make the American people proud with the investigations and the hearings that we have on um, judiciary, on oversight, and on other committees um, regarding all of these issues and so many more. There are so many more. Um, and and I, I hope that we don't let you down. Um, I, I have been um, just a citizen looking from the outside, an arm, uh, armchair quarterback saying, Congress, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? And um, that's what's led me to be where I am to, today. Um, I, I never intended to be there, as I said, um, but I wanted to do my part to serve my country and produce results, to be a part of the solution. And so that's why I stepped up. I left my family, um, which is an understatement. I see my four boys um, maybe four times a month. Um, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not expecting any uh, applause or gratitude towards that, but that, that's the life that I chose. Um, I, I leave my family every day to fight for my country and get the best for each and every one of you. And I'm proud to do so. 
And so I'm honored to be back, to be fighting for you, no matter how, what capacity that is um, that I'm fighting for you in. Just know that I have your best interests at heart and I'm advocating for you every step of the way. I am not a politician who considers the next election. Is it, are you going to be reelected? Is this going to be the end of you? I don't care about that. I care about what is right. And that's what I'm fighting for each and every day. And, and that's why I'm here with you guys. And I'm so grateful for you that you are so interested um, and, and concerned that you're spending your evening on this Twitter space to be more informed. Thank right, you, Congressman. Um, Doctor, Doctor, uh, amazing. You know, I just want to say we all watched you over this last couple of years and we know what a warrior you are. You were, you were like, I would actually watch your commercials and I didn't watch many commercials, but you've been a warrior and thank you so much for your words of encouragement and your words, uh, you know, doing what you're doing for your country. It's, it's so powerful. And thank you so much. Wow. It's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, Congresswoman, I watch, I check your reelection every minute, three, four times a day. Did they get her back? Is she coming back? So we're grateful to have you. And so, Carolina, I want you to open up for the other people that are here yes. that want to ask questions. And Dr. please Denver, limit your questions to um, Dr. Denver and Chaya, I believe, have a question real quick. We'll go to Denver, sure. Denver and then Chaya. Yes, sure. thank you for the opportunity to speak. My name is Denver Yuland, primary care physician in Minnesota. Pleasure to talk with Congresswoman Boebert. And um, my concern overall with, with what we're headed into is that the World Health Organization met uh, last week and discussed amendments to the international health regulations. And they'll be voting on these in May. And as I understand it, uh, there's the potential to hand over sovereign decisions from our country regarding pandemic management to the World Health Organization. And I'm wondering if that's on your radar. Yes, thank you. Um, so that is on my radar. And honestly, um, anything that hands over our authority to um, the the World Economic Forum, um, this is problematic for me. And I am absolutely opposed to that. Um, we have members in our own party who are um, aligned with the WEF, which is extremely concerning. And um, that's why, um, as mentioned before, I'm so grateful that we have such a slim majority because any five of us at any time can shut down um, anything that the majority is trying to do if it is unlawful, unconstitutional, or unbeneficial to the American people. And um, this is something that I am very much opposed to. Um, the World Economic Forum um, has uh, a plethora of, um, of, of comments and, um, and statements from it that um, oppose the conservative agenda. Um, in fact, they even say you know, that they're pushing for a, um, a global liberalism agenda, um, uh, a, a global liberal world order or so. And, uh, and so this is something that is extremely alarming to me. Um, the WF is not something I support, is, um, is not something that I look to for um, it, it, knowledge or insight um, other than just knowing what um, the deep state has 
for each and every one of us. And that's not a conspiracy theory quote. Um, the, the deep state is very real. I work in Washington, DC. I know how it operates. Um, I know the effect that it has on political decisions. Um, when we take the speaker's vote, for instance, um, there were plenty of lobbyists, um, who were coming after us. And, um, I, I, I don't think that that's how, um, the American people should be reflected is, um, through the persuasion of lobbyists who, Oh, Congresswoman, go ahead. I think somebody accidentally hit the mute button. Oh, sorry about that. I guess they wanted me to stop speaking. Um, no, no, go ahead. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I mean, lobbyists have a lot of pull. I, I don't know where I was muted, but lobbyists have a lot of pull in Washington, D.C., and that's something I'm certainly opposed to. I take very few meetings with lobbyists. Um, it has to be something that I'm um, very supportive of to even take the meeting um, and certainly to to take the check, but there are five thousand dollar checks that are offered out um, to members of Congress from lobbyists on a regular basis in exchange of their vote for something. And I would much rather receive a thirty seven dollar um, contribution from a supporter in the district uh, than a five thousand dollar check from a lobbyist who is trying to dictate the direction of our country. And I'll I'll stop it with there and leave it up for another question. Chaya, go ahead. Yeah, something I brought up in another Twitter space call and um, a couple of the doctors were on there said I should, you know, repeat this conversation is about um, fertility issues post-vaccination and even maybe post-COVID. And this is also for the congresswoman. She's got four sons. At some point, they're going to get married and have kids. Um, there's a very big high concern uh, that we're not looking at um, fertility um levels doing egg reserve testing and any of the physicians that they end up speaking to uh, on the side this is something that needs to be put out as a PSA that any teenage girl and above or young woman looking to have kids whether they've been vaccinated or had COVID they need to have a baseline egg reserve check done Um, we don't want it to end up to be like the movie Handmaid's Tale right so I think that's something that needs to be looked at Um, part of the security of our country is that we're able to have reproduction here and we have to don't have to source it outside of our country and then our blood supply. I think that this has come up. I think you've seen some cases. There's there's patients that take uh, certain medications like IVIG, and uh, and people are concerned about vaccinated blood and all this. And there has to be some type of a system where people have the ability to access um, their own unvaccinated blood, if possible, and what that looks like. I don't know. I think we're gonna we're focus, gonna be doing. Let me answer that. We're going to be doing a space actually on the vaccine, vaccine injury and COVID long symptoms. And why we want to make that like a, 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 a space on its own is because there are a lot of questions. There are a lot of there's, there are a lot of technicalities and the, that we really need to sit down and dig deep into the, the vaccine, what it is, why it causes the problems. And uh, we're going to be holding a space on that. So yeah. if you stay tuned and we'll talk about that and then you can... Yeah. And if I could respond um, briefly, um, there's there's been um, a lot of sudden deaths in in America um, that has risen um, extensively. And, um, you know, how do you how do you tell someone you love? I told you so. Um, Do you send a letter? Do you send a card? Do you send flowers? Do you make a joke? Um, Make it funny? 
Um, it's really, um, how do you say I told you so? Cause we were called conspiracy theorists, uh, for so long in, in, um, and saying the vaccine isn't ready. It, it's not what they say that it is. And, um, this was a, an extreme concern. I'm not a medical professional. Um, so I can't provide a me- uh, medical advice to anyone. Um, but for me and my household, we we denied the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, we did not take any COVID-19 vaccines. And now we are seeing um, potential um, uh, effects uh, uh, regarding um, um, the the the. Uh, the effect of, of, of young youth try, trying to procreate and, and have, um, have their own children. We've seen the sudden deaths, um, the, the heart issues that people are having and suddenly dying, seemingly perfectly healthy people who are suddenly falling over um, dead with heart attacks. And um, this is something I refuse to normalize. Um, not being a medical um, professional, um, this is something that I, I find highly concerning. You know, there are vaccines that I would not allow my children to take even before COVID-19 because I wasn't sure of um, their if they if they would be sterile afterwards. Um, I was concerned for their safety, and you know, I'm I'm very grateful. Um, I'm actually going to be. Um, a Gigi, um, not a grandma, not a granny. I'm going to be a Gigi in April. And I am so grateful that my son and his girlfriend chose life. Um, I, I'm grateful that they were able um, to to procreate. Um, this is something, I, I guess this is the first time I'm coming public with on this Twitter space. Um, but this is, this is I was going to get it from Shauna, your mama anyways. So. <laughs> Carolina, I don't even have to look. I don't even have the screen up. That was Carolina. Um, yeah. um, also, uh, Congresswoman, um, yeah. uh, universities are still requiring the kids to get boosters and athletes mm. on those, on these university teams, even though they're being required to get their boosters. Even with the CDC are- coming out and saying that there's, um, that there's issues with these. Um, that is yes. extremely alarming. We have been battling um, at the top line our military personnel, um, our service members, and um, we we have to take it further. We have to take it further to our frontline workers. We have to take it further to our college students. Um, and um, you know, I'm 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 ashamed to say we've only taken it this far, but we've taken it as far as we could have gone with Democrats in the majority, um, you know, telling Democrats, uh, look, this is our service personnel who are, um, who are being damaged by this procedure. Um, and we, we have to take it further now that we're in the majority and um, be sure to communicate to the American people that it's, it's everyone who has been forced to take the vaccine that um, is in a precarious situation. And, and so um, this is our responsibility to communicate, um, to politicize. I'm fine with politicizing it. The Democrats certainly have. The Democrats politicized making this a priority. Um, 
It was on every news station, whether it was Fox or CNN, it doesn't matter. It was on every news station that you have to get vaccinated. It was in every radio ad. It was in um, all of the newspapers as, as flyers and all of this stuff. And, and so they politicized this. And we have to politicize normalizing um, natural immunity over the vaccines. Hey, I'll tag Dr. on let, let me, oh, let go me ahead, Dr. On, Person, then we'll Caroline. go to Dr. Yeah. Molly. So let's tag on, because there's three, I'll give the quick summary. So the we know data on fertility, 35% reduction in sperm counts in Israel. There is some recovery, but who knows what happens after four times. We also know that there's high accumulation in the ovaries. There's lots of ACE2 receptors. That means lots of production of, of spike. That means lots of inflammation. We know that means there's going to be a change in fertility. What do we see in the data in Europe? 8 to 10% decrease in fertility this year in all the countries that are about 75% or more vaccinated. Then as far as the blood supply, of course it's in the blood supply. It's no assay or anything being checked for. Number three, the mandates are, are ridiculous because it's ineffective and it's harmful. And num- uh, lastly, uh, what uh, uh, Congresswoman Bober just said, uh, natural immunity is the Achilles heel. If you give a vaccine to an already immune patient, some of those are going to have a hyperimmune response. Some of those are going to die because of it. And you take those children between under age 11, it's 0.1 per 100,000 infection fatality rate. That means that that group has a one in a million chance of dying from the infection. You give that group who's 80% already has natural immunity, you're going to kill more children than you ever would have saved, even if the vaccine were perfect. Natural immunity is the Achilles heel and no mandates, not a single one should be allowed. All right, let's get to uh, some. Okay, some. Yeah, some so, people. Yeah, we have a few people that are asking questions. So after Molly, we're gonna see whether um they can ask. Um, we have three people we've brought on to the speaker group, and then once you ask your question, we're gonna drop you so that we can bring more people on. Go ahead. To build on that, one of the worst uh, abuses in this is the healthcare worker mandate. You know, m- the majority of those people had natural immunity. And, you know, we've, we've cut the workforce in half, a ton of people, it's decimated the, the workforce because those people are now disabled. So I would think that would be a priority is getting rid of that. Hospitals have now admitted that they forced that because of CMS reimbursement, not because of patient safety in any way. And then what are the chances of ending this emergency? Because that ends a lot of the problems and people are still dying from these shots, as you pointed out. I doubt they're going to end the emergency because the minute they end the emergency, then then they they can't force us to do anything. So maybe Congresswoman, you guys you can you guys can take that up with ending the emergency uh, that's allowing them to do all this to 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 the people. And I don't know. Can you say something about yeah, that, Congresswoman? I, I, Emmanuel, the emergency. Um, Sheila, I I I do believe that there are many members of Congress on the GOP side who are in support of ending the emergency mandate and um, who are actively trying to do so. I'm co-sponsor on, on many of those pieces of legislation. Um, and this is something we have to do, but un- unfortunately we, we don't have the Senate. We don't have the white house. And so we have to be loud. We have to take stand. We have to use our voice. And this is something I learned in the minority in the minority. When Nancy Pelosi ruled the Congress with a, with a hard iron fist, um, I, I learned the, the only thing that I have is my voice. Um, this is how I was able to 
disrupt the disinformation governance board um, as a minority member, um, a freshman member of Congress, I was able to use my voice and my platform to disabolish, um, to abolish, excuse me, the disinformation governance board with Nina Jankowitz, the chief of disinformation, um, uh, and, and completely, um, undercut that and, and, and get them to abolish it because we got the information out to the American public. So that's exactly what we need to continue to do and persevere to do now that we have the majority in the House of Representatives um, to continue to fight for the American people, to not lose heart, to continue to take, it, take a stand and speak loudly um, for all of those who are um, disenfranchised and um, af- negatively affected by all of these mandates. And this is something that has to end. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Congresswoman. And keep being a warrior. We're cheering you on. Um, Firebrand, you had a question? Yes, thank you so much for this space. I would just quickly like to say to everyone, please, can you tweet the space out? It changes the algorithms. It's seen very positively. That's our ticket for being in a space where we are being allowed such knowledge. I just want to quickly say thank you to all the doctors and all the people that are here because today I smell freedom and I feel hope. I was taught as a child the best the best medicine is prevention. Sorry, I've got a slight sore throat. The best medicine is prevention and it's the mindset. If you're strong in head and you say you're going to get better, you'll get better. My question is this. I have never been vaccinated. I have never had a PCR test, but I have an underlying condition. I am an asthmatic. I'm very well. I'm healthy. I walk six days a week up a mountain. And I want to know this. I'm a Brit born in the UK, moved to Spain for health reasons. I need to go back to the UK. But I also want to know that is there a a COVID exempt certificate? As a doctor, and I'm your patient, and you know that I'm healthy, I'm doing all the right things. And is there, is this document available anywhere in the world that a doctor can say, well, you have underlying conditions, you do not need the vaccine? Because in the G20, they have proposed that the passport will be coming in, the COVID vaccine passport. It's going to be here within the year. And it will literally, if I don't get my affairs sorted out, I'll be locked down to Spain. Because in order to fly, I will have to show that I've had the vaccine and all the boosters. So is there a doctor anywhere in the world that could actually provide this certificate? Because I'm healthy. I've never been vaxxed, no PCR. And I'm, that's my question. And also, just to finish off with that question, the mindset is the key. Regardless of what they've done to us, as long as we unify and we use our voices, that is how we will win the war. We've got to come together on this one thing and it will save humanity. And it's to say no self-ownership of body. So, doctors, could anyone give me this certificate? Because I'm going to go to my Spanish doctor next next week to see if he will. Thank you. I, I would like to answer that on a spiritual level. Um, uh, if you don't mind, um, not a congressional level, 
Um, God says he sends his word and he heals people. God says declare the end from the beginning. Um, he says declare a thing and it shall be established. And that has been my mindset with COVID-19 from the very beginning. That Jesus came and bore our infirmities in Preach. his body. And he has healed us. By his stripes, we were healed. That's what First Peter says. By his stripes, we were healed. If we were healed, then we are healed. And so this is the mindset that I live by. And I think that that's what you're conveying here, that what you speak into existence is what is. That is your existence, what you speak. And God created the universe by speaking. We have seen this with quantum physics, that at, at, at the heart of every object that we see, that there is sound, that there are sound waves that respond, that there are atoms that move and respond to what we say. You can have a table in front of you and think that it's an inanimate object, but in reality, it is moving because there is voice, there is life, and God spoke the world into existence. And if God <clears throat> framed the world by his words, then we who were made in his creation, in his image, can also speak our worlds into existence, that we can frame our worlds into existence. And this is something I've spoke over my children. This is something I've spoke over my myself, my family, that by his stripes, by Jesus's stripes, you were healed. If you were healed, then you are healed. And this is something I have completely spoken since COVID-19 came about. This has no jurisdiction in my home. This has no authority over my family because Jesus spoke the ultimate world word and said, it is finished. And I live by his word more than anything else, more than anything that Congress puts out, more than anything the CDC puts out, more than anything the World Economic Forum puts out. I live by the word of God. And God says that you are healed, that you are whole, that if you receive Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, that you make him master of your life, then you are restored to perfect union. Restored to perfect union before the fall of Adam and Eve. And 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 excuse me for getting preachy, but that is where go on, go my, on, go on, go <laughs> thank on. you. That is where my faith lies. So in the midst of all of this was God. Was God Almighty? Was his word? Was his son? Was his spirit in every step of the way? And government overreach clouded so much of that it created so much fear with so many people throughout the world not just america throughout the world and fear is contagious but folks courage 
is contagious. Faith is contagious. And I am imploring each and every one of you to have faith in Jesus, to have faith in the completed, completed, redemptive work of Jesus, because that is our saving grace in all of this. Awesome, 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 Congresswoman. Listen, uh, you need to come on the space where we talk about COVID vaccine injuries and um, the spiritual implication of COVID. Because right now, uh, we're talking about the medical thing, but there's a deep spiritual and sinister implication in this whole COVID and vaccine and uh, the World Economic Forum and everything. And I'm, I'm telling you, we're going to be talking about that. Uh, when we talk about vaccine injury, we're going to go also into the deep spiritual implication of what this whole pandemic is, go- is about. And you, you are so right. We a lot of people got scary. A lot of people did things that they did. They did that because they were scared because they didn't have a hope. And I'm so thankful that you came today and just preached. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Stella. Thank you, Jackie. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm very grateful to join you all tonight. I, I am going to leave. Um, hey, Congresswoman, before you go, I, yeah, uh, okay, military sure. whistleblower here. Hey, how's it going? Major Becker. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, great. My the, my opinions are my own. I don't represent DOD, Air Force, all that good stuff. So, hey, real quick, look, I'm a plaintiff in a lawsuit uh, that's suing the Department of Defense for um, mandating an unlicensed uh, vaccine. You know, pharmaceutical companies have came out many times and stated they haven't produced the licensed version, the licensed product, which is a violation of Section 564 of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, right? So this whole country, uh, it's basically anthrax part two, if you're familiar with uh, that case law. Uh, Doe versus Rumsfeld. We're, do- we're repeating that mistake. And so we have a bunch of military members that are ready, re- ready to speak on all these issues, speak at the hearings. We're just having a hard time connecting with staffers and uh, military, like your military reps, uh, another issue that I wanted to bring to your table, too, is public policy versus shadow policy. So the NDA repeals the mandate. But I uh, I just spoke to an attorney, a military attorney in the Air Force. We call them ADCs, Area Defense Council. And he has a client who's still on the hook for a discharge board. And, you know, I know you spoke about the service members. We separated 8,600 service members DOD wide because of this, you know, what I'm calling and my attorney's calling an unlawful mandate. And so, you know, we're really trying to, to, to uh, heal, to get better, to restore the faith uh, and trust in our leadership. But we absolutely need accountability uh, for, you know, what Secretary Austin did. And there's rumors, supposedly, um, that he hasn't divested his stocks, right? There's no Form 4s to show that he sold his stocks in Raytheon. There's no Form 4s to show that he sold his stocks in Tenneth Healthcare Corp. And Tenneth was profiting off of the mandate. So there's a lot of issues and I'm hoping that we can connect, uh, you know, like I said, with one of your staffers, with your military reps. Uh, we have a lot of folks um, that are that are ready to speak on these issues. David, I'll send you a text message about it. And uh, Dr. Um, Congresswoman, he's one of the whistleblowers. You know, he handed me all of his material so I can send that to you as well. Yes, please do. And um, my my staff is very responsive to this, so please send me any information that you have. Um, We are doing everything that we can on our part to make this right for our military personnel and and our our frontline workers as well. 
Um, so please send me anything that you have. I promise it will be um, communicated to my staff and to the appropriate committee staff um, that has jurisdiction over that so we can make it right. Absolutely. Yeah. The other thing, too, is there's uh, the uh, first of all, yes, thank you for all for the support. And then the second thing is 96 um, percent of the military is vaccinated, according to Secretary Austin. And so we have some ideas uh, to maybe get ahead of the damage that's been done. If if what we think about these um, if we what we think about these vaccines is true and that for sure, I'd like to talk to you uh, offline about. I would welcome that. Thank you. Well, thank thank you so much. Thank you, David. The next person to ask questions is Patrick, if you're there. I am. Can you hear me? Yes, we hear you. Oh, my gosh. Like, my hand is shaking. I cannot believe that you actually joined us. I'm so grateful to hear uh, your message and, and, and your position on this, your platform on this. Like, literally, I... I, I felt like I was going to break my thumb with how many times I was sitting the heart emoji and the 100% emoji. Um, oh, did she leave? Oh, yeah, yes, she, she had said after she had to leave. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, I, I, but I'll, I'll tell her. I'll text okay. her. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, let's get back to uh, people that have questions on early treatment. Like I said earlier, we're going to have Post a space on vaccine injury and things that we can do to help people that have been jabbed. And then we're going to host a space on the spiritual implication of what's going on. Um, so uh, uh, go ahead and ask the questions. Anybody that has questions on the early treatment so that we can wrap up. It's almost midnight. Yes. Hi, this is Pam. Can you guys hear me? Yes, we can. Yes. Yes, I've um, asked this question, I guess, in another space. And thank you all so much. You're just brave people, and bless you all. Um, being proactive, preventative, um, I'm unvaxxed, three years, teacher in New Jersey, had to get tested for a year. I have not gotten COVID yet. I'm on, um, just as a general, I know you can't give actual advice, but I'm on, uh, God bless Dr. Zelenko, I'm on a DC stack. And I just want to ask a, a poignant question. I also take ivermectin, and I'm afraid I'm getting mixed signals. 12 milligrams once a week, is that too much? Should I stop? Uh, I'm just curious. What you um, feel. We cannot. Okay, I can't give you medical information, but right, you actually right. uh, are giving a, we I give ivermectin by weight, and usually it's anywhere from 12 to 24 milligrams weekly. So um, That's we, what I take. Yeah, we can't well, give you any medical information because we need to look at your weight and height and all that stuff to make sure that uh, yeah, we're I'm giving you the right frontline doctors mm -hmm. and I'm, I, I get it through compound centers in New Jersey so, so if you so go to the doctor they probably give you the right dosage yeah. yeah yeah I know all that I just thought thought of it's you know like like you said I'm not think I, mean, I don't think this is over so I just wanted to so be proactive so, mm -hmm. I, I'll give you know I think uh, let's let's make the question I think this is a good time to kind of talk about that, uh, Stella. Maybe we can kind of generalize the question. Yes, generalize. Is what do you do in the case where somebody wants prophylaxis? Um, you know, what do you – let's kind of go around and say, what do you recommend in general um, as, as a rule of thumb? What, what are the things that you're recommending to patients? Okay. Um, are you using ivermectin for prophylaxis? Are you using hydroxy? Are you using the, 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 uh, the Covimin stack that we have? 
What what are you recommending to patients? I actually do, we give ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine depending on what the patient wants. So if they want hydroxychloroquine, we give them. If they want ivermectin, we give it to them. Both of them are equally effective. And then we make sure that they are on uh, the, the, we have we could, the COVID vitamins that we put together as vitamin C, D, zinc, and quercetin that they can take on a daily basis, and then they take hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin on a weekly basis. So uh, okay. we're able to, um, like I said, we we created um, the telehealth services. You can get that on our website, drsellamd.com. We have doctors in all 50 states, pharmacists in all 50 states that will ship the medicine right to you. So that's what we do for prevention. And of course, if you've been jabbed, we also advise you to go on like on daily aspirin. You know, so, um, the, but basically it's the vitamins and hydroxychloroquine. And of course, good air, walk around, make sure that, you know, you take care of your health. Yeah, I'll, I'll tag on. All right. So one of the things of concern, right, is what are the side effects of these drugs, right? So yes. you know, hydroxychloroquine has amazing side effects. I go over them all. Ivermectin also. If you look in under clinicaltrials.gov, you'll see hydroxychloroquine is being used as an in 113 clinical trials for its use in autophagy inhibition in cancer. But it also, you know, lowers hemoglobin A1C, B dimer, sed rate, improves bone health. Um, it's improving the effect of, uh, the risk of heart attack, stroke, pulmonary embolus, um, uh, uh, decreases platelet ag- aggregation, so preventing blood clots. So in, in general, there's a lot of good side effects from it. Is it having an impact on the microbiome? Um, yeah, it looks like it is, uh, and so that might be some some concern. But from a clinical standpoint, <clears throat> patients that are taking it prophylactically are doing better uh, with COVID. Same thing goes for ivermectin. Um, it's also being used. You see now that they're using it uh, as a checkpoint inhibitor in, uh, uh, with checkpoint inhibitors in, in breast cancer. So you're seeing that has these anti-tumor effects. Um, historically, um, you know, um, we've, uh, I have been using ivermectin hydroxychloroquine as eye drops, uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine since the mid to late nineties and ivermectin since about 2002, uh, to, I mean, um, yeah, I think 20, yeah, 20 years ago. So, so basically these drugs have been in a sense in use for a lot of people for a long time for different reasons other than for worms. Okay. So I'm just going to say, I think in general, that's another one where if you look at the data, it might even be more effective as a prophylactic in the rice dose once a week. So I think there's a lot of reasons to take them. Um, and I think the, the quote-unquote side effects, many of them are beneficial. And that's my thoughts. Thank you. And when you talk about microbiome, I always advise my patients that are taking prophylaxis, you can take a, you know, um, yogurt that has, um, you know, that has the, uh, uh, the micro, geez, my brain just, you know. You know, you, you can take yogurts with... Um, yeah, so good, like good bacteria and bad bacteria. Good bacteria, so, exactly. Good bacteria. My brain was yeah. just, you know. Yeah, so I basically, <laughs> I take the yogurt with with the micro, um, the good bacteria, yeah. So if people yeah, are worried yeah. about that. so um, Yeah, I take a prebiotic. And a probiotic, that's it. It's like right, right here. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, like with probiotics, yes. I take probiotics. I take yogurt. With, I eat yogurt with probiotics. If you're worried yeah, prebiotics, about your pro, yeah. prebiotics, prebiotics, probiotics for anybody who doesn't know, basically you're talking about seeds and soil. So in a sense, Good you don't bacteria. want to put probiotics into bad, you don't want to put probiotics into bad or anything growing into bad soil, right? So you think of prebiotics as soil, probiotics as the, as the seeds that grow. So in a sense that there's some utility in that. A lot of the formulas out there are garbage. 
So I can tell you that I formulated these products. I've formulated these exact products. There's a lot of garbage out there. If you got it at the grocery store, it's garbage probably. So anyway, um, you can keep doing it. Uh, but if you got it on the shelves in the grocery store, it's probably not that great. So I take um, uh, BioComplete by Dr. Guntry. I ordered that. Yeah, I haven't. I looked at this formula a while back. I mean, the Bifidobacterium bifidum is probably the most, if you look at the impacts, um, on, you know, if you look at the people who did the best, uh, that, that work's been done, Sabine Hosden's done it. Basically, the people who did the best during COVID had the highest levels of bifidobacterium bifidum. But again, you're talking about, in a sense, is that a product? So when you pour them in your stomach, is that going to make you more healthy? Um, it's a, it's a finding, in a sense, like homocysteine is a finding in people with heart disease. But lowering homocysteine doesn't necessarily make you, uh, it doesn't actually, it's never been uh, associated with a better clinical gain. So is putting probiotics into your system going to lead you to better health? I I don't know. I believe it does, but the data uh, is not really clear on that. But I do believe it, and I'm with you, and I would keep taking them. And Gundry has spent a lot of time on his products. A little pricey, but uh, probably a good product. Thank you, Dr. Urso. I just want to remind everyone we have 25 requests. Um, so please ask your question. Take about 30 seconds. Uh, if you want a particular doctor on the stage to answer, uh, let's do it quickly. The next person, Dr. Stella, I already got lost. Do you know who's next? I believe it was Nikki and then Paulito, Tim, and then Darla. If not, then I guess that's the new order. Can you hear me? Okay, we hear you, Nikki. Yes. I just want to say thank you to Dr. Stella. Um, my uncle back in 2000, I'm not going to make it too much of a story time. So back in 2000, October, 2021, he got yeah, sick. Girlfriend, you got 30 seconds left. Okay. <laughs> By the way, got- Dr. Stella, Nikki was pounding on the, on the crazy doctors that you were on with the space <laughs> earlier. She's a champ. Go ahead, Nikki. <laughs> I was letting them have it. That was over the whole EUA approval. They thought everything was approved. I'm like, the hell it is. So anyway, I just want to say thank you to Dr. Stella. Um, my uncle got sick back in October 21. Um, he, my aunt called you guys. She's wishing she would have drove him to Texas, but she called your team. Um, and your team called in a prescription to the pharmacy. It was five things. I think the ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine were probably sent separate. So the five basic drugs that you would do for like a pneumonia. Um, she got the runaround from the pharmacy for, I think it was three days. And she had to call you guys back to have you call a prescription in to the other pharmacist because the pharmacist actually, the manager over there had the nerve to say, after making him wait three days, we won't prescribe, um, we don't, we don't fill prescriptions from that doctor. And we have her text messages. She was working on a lawyer and, you know, I'm not, I just want to make, we were so upset. He ended up having to go to the doctor because they didn't get ahead of everything that was going on. He had to go to the clinic, Cleveland Clinic, um, checked in. They, had him go to the other, the main campus. They were going to do ECMO and we know how this all goes. And unfortunately he ended up passing away. Um, but I feel like if, if he would have had access to that original, you know, it wasn't, the pharmacy wasn't filling, you know, the high, the controversial meds. They were just like the basic meds for the pneumonia and they weren't filling them. So, you know, on your end and on our end, you know, what's the recourse we have against these people for basically, you know, 
potentially if he would have had that, he could have maybe lived. Like you said before, if those early treatments are given, you know, you get into a position with the family, like they get to the hospital and they panic and they're stuck. And then they end up with the room to severe and all that shit. And it goes, it goes down. So my question is, what's the recourse for you as a physician and for us as family, when it comes to these not feeling even basic medications that aren't even being asked for like off label. We had a, when we started out in, you know, one of the things that happened, we we went, we had staff sitting down on standby, calling three, four, five, six pharmacies before we could get to somebody that would fill the prescriptions. I remember calling a pharmacy in, 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 uh, in uh, Minnesota at a, 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 a man that was in the house, 350 pounds. He was scared. Yeah, he, he was diabetic, 350 pounds. And he said, I'm so scared, Dr. Emanuel. Don't let me die. Don't let me die. That day, I called the pharmacist. I said, give me your name. Because if this patient dies, I would personally come after you. I was so irate. that, And I hung up on them. And they immediately called the guy and they called him his medications. And he lived. So what we did as a, a comp, as a comp, or the work that we did is that we created, like I said, we created a closed system. Now that, and I tell people, please don't wait till you're sick and they can't ship the medicine to you. But what recourse do you have? That was part of the emergency uh, declaration that so that you can't sue anybody. You can't sue those doctors. That's why they couldn't, they couldn't sue the, the governor of New York, Como, for killing people in the nursing home. That is the sad part. And this is why we will probably need a Nuremberg 2.0 to bring these people into accountability. Thank you, doctor. Um, we're going to go to Paulito. And then Tim. Doctors, Carolina, thank you so much. Uh, I've been a pest to a lot of you. I'm sorry, but I'm not crazy. Um, um, I have tinnitus. I have uh, um, vertigo. I have uh, joint pain. I have, uh, what else do I have? I have so many things, surgeries. Um, my doctor uh, gave me... Uh, said everything stress and anxiety in two years 2020 january i got sick and it was downhill from there and uh, a lot of symptoms i have hypertension i'm taking medication for that as well 16 milligrams of uh, candacertin to and my blood pressure is still high uh, i don't want to take any more but because uh, i have another surgery tomorrow actually thursday to repair tendons in the shoulder that were uh, you know partially torn and I don't know why they got damaged like that but so anyways and and pretty much my doctor said after three years of hospitals that it was uh, anxiety and stress and it's not and uh, I know what it is and I appreciate you guys putting on these spaces and and uh, as, as soon as I kind of started like digging around for work purposes I seen what was going on and that's helped me a lot trying to understand exactly what's going on and I appreciate that. And if it wasn't for people like you, people like me would never figure out what's going on. I'm just a normal guy that goes to work every day and hasn't missed a day of work in three years other than the surgeries. But this is my story. And I just uh, want to make sure that uh, a lot of people out there I know feel the same way because I, you hear it and you hear it from people here on Twitter. And I appreciate it. Thank you. That, that's it for me. I just want to drop you, down Pablito. and I appreciate everything. Thank you, Pablito. Tim? Okay, can you hear me? Hello? Yes, we hear you. Okay. 
Uh, I want to start with uh, saying God bless you, Dr. Stella, in the all-powerful name of Jesus Christ, and thank you for all of your work and your standing up. Um, and also to Nikki, I'm also in East, Northeast Ohio, so I want to make sure we connect. Uh, I followed you. Um, I went to my pulmonary specialist. Uh, I'm going to keep this short. Um, one month into the outbreak in March of 2020, I called him from a hotel and told him how I felt and the symptoms that I had. Now, he kept me with an emergency pack on the road because I'm a truck driver. So I always carry a Z-Pack, prednisone, and albuterol inhaler because I was diagnosed with COPD. That's the reason I was seeing a pulmonary specialist. He told me early on on the phone, and I wanted to get your take on this, and I know a lot of research hasn't been done, um, but he said he believed that this was a bacterial infection that was manipulated in a lab to look like a virus so that it was mis mistreated by doctors. So I wanted to get your take on that because he told me to take the prednisone. Um, I stayed in the hotel. I took the Z-Pack. In two days, I was feeling better. The other thing he told me was not to break my fever. He said that the fever would actually kill whatever was in there and to take enough ibuprofen to keep my fever under 103 but above 101. And that's what I did for two days, and I was better. I mean, I was, I was to the point where I couldn't walk 10 feet without losing my breath and I felt like I was going to fall over just from weakness. So I wanted to get your take on if, if you've heard anything or seen any studies on how this may have been a manipulated bacterial infection that was released rather than it being a virus. And thank you. Um, I don't think most of us that are actually taking care of uh, COVID uh we don't know what it actually is. In fact, it wasn't isolated and, and this was not released for everybody. But I can tell you this, that it, it acts just like a viral infection, like the flu or like a RSV. And because there's a lot of co-infections that come with, with the, the infection, you know, most people that get COVID, they end up getting secretions and they get superimposed bacteria infections. That is why we do treat them and they do well with uh, ZPAC. And of course, ZPAC also has some anti-inflammatory. And if there's, um, Dr. Also, if there's anything you can add to that. And I think that's, that's a mute point, actually. Yeah. So, um, you know, this, I'm going to say this, um, you know, we've got it. We've got a nuclear bomb. We've got a lipid nanoparticle. We've got a messenger RNA. They can write any program on it. They want, they wrote the spike protein. The spike protein has been shown in the Salk Institute to be the main cause of the disease. The lipid nanoparticle is also uh, inflammatory. We know there's some respiratory pathogen likely and I'm going to say 99.999% likely to be this pathogen. Um, it's well documented. They have patents on it, numerous patents. They have, you know, all these things that are in the, in this spike protein that never were in any kind of uh, coronavirus prior. So I think um, to kind of go into the speculative uh, nature of something like that is it's tiresome and it's a waste of time. And it's it's time to sort of own up to the fact that 
They have a lipid nanoparticle messaging RNA platform they're going to use to put in your body, do whatever the heck they want, whatever, whatever protein they want to make. That's it. That's the goal. And the goal is basically that. They don't need to have any special other things. I mean, that's, that's enough of a goal. Put a lipid nanoparticle messaging RNA. When you start getting into all these other, you know, conspiracy thinking thing that's are not data driven, okay, not data driven. Um, we don't need to go there. We've got plenty of data that's horrible, horrible data. We already have. So I'm going to say, um, no, I don't, I don't go for any of that because it's unnecessary. We have lots of information that's really bad. And so that's where I'll stay. And, um, and uh, you know, we've, we treated this, quote, unquote, um, <clears throat> this illness very successfully with the drugs we have. And uh, it's responded extremely well. So, you know, I feel really good with where we're going. We have treatment. The main thing is, are we going to stay in a, in, a, in, a, in a confused, hopeless, despairing, angry state? No, we, we are, you know, we're God's people. We're at the top of the mountain. We need to take the, the role of that, what that role is. That role is basically, um, we don't need to look and be confused by everything they're doing. It's, we know what they're doing and we just need to move forward. That's, that's it. Over. Thank you, Dr. Urso Darla. Hi, everyone. Um, I just want, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay. Um, uh, thank you for this time. Um, I really appreciate it. And um, I just wanted to let you know my story. I'm a COVID-19 um, pneumonia survivor at 71 years of age. I did not take the vaccination. Uh, I started to feel ill on a Wednesday. Saturday, I tested, um, I did an at-home test kit for COVID, and I tested positive. Uh, Monday morning, well, late Monday afternoon, I went into the hospital, and I was uh, debating whether or not I should do the, um, what is it, the uh, intravenous uh, antibiotic bodies. And I finally... Uh, settled on having that done and I did that and they took a chest x-ray and I had pneumonia so they sent me home with um, what's the name of that antibiotic that someone said earlier yes and um, it took two weeks for me to overcome uh, the uh, virus and um, I recently just had an upper respiratory infection, and um, I was on another antibiotic, but it didn't go into pneumonia. And uh, I was wondering, why did it go into pneumonia? You know, like, why did the COVID go into pneumonia on me? Um, and I went to a pulmonary specialist after that, and so, my lungs are so, fine. So let's talk about that. So what do they see on this spike protein? An ACE2 receptor that's never seen before in another um, uh, another um, uh, coronavirus, and also what else? The TMPRSS2 serine protease, which helps to get down in the early lungs in the time you had it. So that's why it got there. It was designed to get in your deep lungs, and it's actually causing kind of a inflammatory vascular um, disease that basically looks like a, an organizing uh, pneumonia. There's actually an inflammatory component. The virus is dead after a very short time. You may have a secondary bacterial infection with it, um, but actually the disease process from COVID is basically 
inflammatory vascular. And, uh, and for the most part, um, you can get a secondary pneumonia on top of that, but it's designed to do that. That was designed into the spike protein. That's why it happened. Thank you, Dr. Okay. I think we have a few more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead. It's long. I'm sorry, Lola. Lola is next, and then Jake, Kimber, then Catherine Long, and then Julie, and then MMDO. Hopefully you remember the order. And please keep it to about 30 seconds, guys, because our doctors do have to go to bed and, and treat their patients and uh, are super busy. And Dr. Molly, thank you for bearing with us. Dr. Lori, God bless you. Go ahead, Lola. Yeah, go ahead, Lola. I think you might be um, looking at my name. Uh, first of all, I'm Lola. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, it's all right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I'll, you, matter of fact, I'll give up my speaking moment to you because I was here a while and I tried to get on. No, no, go for it, Lola. Go ahead. Yeah, just what's your question and for who? I don't, I don't have a question or a for who. Oh, okay, thank you. Go ahead, Long. Okay, Kimber. Hey, I just wanted to speak directly to Stella and say I have... This is but I've only been on Twitter for 24 hours because God told me to join Twitter. I left society three and a half years ago, went, went off grid, raised babies, gave birth to them at home, whatever. And I just can tell that. And I'm so happy that we were born for a time such as this. And what I have to just I have two, uh, two I have two questions quickly. Um, The first is, what do you think about fasting? I'm starting to think about a 40, I'm calling it like a 40 day reset with fasting and stem cell repair. And, um, just looking at the science behind that, the micro, the macro, um, how to heal our bodies and fasting, um, is talked about a lot, you know, in, uh, you know, different texts and things like that about stem cell repair, DNA repair. Um, and also beef liver capsules is what I have an ax, I have access to organic, um, just an hour away from me, beef liver. And, um, I'm going to be making capsules and stuff like that, but beef liver fasting. And what do you think about alkaline water? 9.5? Is that just like a hoax? Because my well has 9.5 pH naturally, and I'd love to bring it into the cities for free for people. Stella, you want me to answer a few of those? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So okay, alkaline water. The planet is alkaline. It's an alkaline water planet. So anybody who says that the plant, you know, either alkaline water is not. It's it's what the planet's water is. Planet's water seven point four pH to seven point eight roughly. So in general, it's got a negative ORP, which means that the 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 uh, the the, um, the planet itself has a negatively charged alkaline water that's water so the only time it changes when you send it through a water treatment facility it changes the rp from negative to positive so yes alkaline water is the water you're supposed to be drinking so your well is good 9.5 keep drinking it that's great um i forgot the first question but i had an answer to that too um what was the first question again 
Um, she fasting. was asking about beef liver and asking about beef fasting. liver, Fa- beef liver, you know, good, yeah. autophagy. So, so here's the thing about, you know, um, <clears throat> fasting, your body's smart enough not to chew up your heart and brain. Okay. It's going to basically chew up the inflammatory components of your body. So if you're doing fasting. It's a really smart way to, in a sense, get rid of some of the inflammation in your body. So it's a great idea. Most of the time, uh, you know, I recommend, um, you know, you can do it in a lot of ways, but if you're doing more than two days at a time, you're going to run into problems probably. But in general, um, you know, most people are doing like four hour windows of eating. Um, and for the most part, it's like feeding your dog, you know, dogs, if you stay, they stay lean if you feed them in a short window every day. But if you eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you're basically triggering things that create an insulin response and insulin creates a downstream cascade of events that eventually leads to basically no lipolysis for about eight to 10 hours. So you basically can't burn up, you know, body fat when you're, when you're eating things that stimulate your insulin. So in general, if you can stay in in an autophagy response, you're going to burn up a lot of the inflammation in your body. And basically it's going to be, you know, uh, in a a sense, you talked about some of the science, basically a lot of the science is basically done on little nematodes and things like that. So we, we don't know how, clean all that science is or how much it applies to human beings but in general autophagy makes sense beef liver um i think the guy who does that is uh, the guy who's big on that is a steroid freak um you can do it you're not going to look like him so anyway over um with fasting i actually wrote a book on fasting both of the spiritual and the health benefits on fasting and um i I think i might not be able to uh give you guys a good um information on fasting here but fasting has a lot of health benefits like i say it resets the body and uh detoxes the body we i would um i would probably address this when we're doing uh the talk on um on the vaccines and some things you can do to detox yourself so fasting is good alkaline water this is the i do believe that people make too much noise about alkaline water it's natural but remember that your stomach is acidic so if you drink 9.4 ph water it's going to hit your stomach and it's going to be acidic anyway because your, your stomach has to be acidic to be able to deal with all the bacteria. The acid in your stomach has to deal with killing some of terrorizing the food that we eat. So it's, uh, should you go out and buy alkaline water? I don't know whether it's going to make your body more alkaline or something. Molly. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let me, I hate to jump in on you, Stella, but let me jump in. Whenever the, your stomach's at a pH of about three, when you put alkaline water in, the stomach resets the pH because you push, put something in an alkaline state of about nine what it does is you have a balanced equation it's going to pour hydrochloric acid in the stomach and pour bicarbonate into the blood you get an immediate alkaline tide so yes it works it basically creates it's a it's a it's creating an alkaline tide in your body almost immediately uh, dr stella didn't you advise me at one point to also for a different thing to have um tonic water with it has quinine right was that the same as hydroxychloroquine, no, other issues? Like alkaline water. Tonic water it's, has quinine in it, and a lot of people did well on tonic water. Okay. Um, yeah, but it wasn't an alkaline water. Anyway, uh, uh, Richard, like I said, this is, by the way, so let's move on to the next question. Oh, hi. Thank you uh, so much for all the valuable information. God bless you all, and um, uh, it's awesome to uh, to be part of this. Um, I, I got COVID in 2021. Uh, my my, myself and my boys uh, were not anti-vax, but we didn't uh, we didn't believe in in the expedience of of the vaccine or any of the boosters. And um, I got pretty sick. Uh, you know, I did everything that you guys are are saying. Um, one thing I'd like to do is be on a regimen of 
ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. It's rather expensive and it's hard to get, and our doctors don't seem to uh, to want to prescribe it. And is there a is there a place where we can get it that's affordable? And um, uh, most of my family are believe in all the fear, and and you know they believe in. CNN and the government and everything that they're doing. And so uh, a lot of my family is vaccinated. Uh, they're all getting sick with COVID. Um, you know, we, we passed the test, me and my boys, we all got sick with COVID. Uh, we're, we're here, we're alive, we're healthy. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of concerned about uh, family members uh, getting sick and, uh, you know, trying to, you know, convince them to, to start taking something to help, uh, um, you know, get their body rid of, of, of the vaccine and, and all the different boosters. And, um, my father-in-law, uh, he takes colchicine. I have culture. Looks like somebody could keep muting everybody. And I don't know what happened with that. Oh, sorry about that. Anyhow, um, I was just curious about colchicine and also uh, getting affordable ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. If you go to our website, drcellamd.com, you can get, uh, like I said, hydroxychloroquine. I can tell you, but we give like 50 tablets that should last anywhere from six months, from a year to to two years, depending on your weight. And that is about $100, including your appointment. So it's not as, it's not that, it's not that unaffordable sure. you know, something. so if you go like I tell everybody we created a system and we created a closed system so we have ivermectin ivermectin tablets are a little more expensive the ivermectin compounded by pharmacies are, are a little cheaper but like I said you go to drstellamd.com and anybody can get it all over the country doctors state, so Stella you're, you're that's what I was going to ask you're in every state correct Yes, we can see patients in all states, and we have pharmacies that can ship in all 50 states, including Guam, including Alaska, Hawaii. We've seen patients in all, everywhere. And one of the things you've done in doing this is try to look and see if you could get the price down over this whole time. Because remember oh, yes. how many, yeah. Yes, we worked with pharmacies. We, we, we gave them a, we, we had to work with pharmacies and we we I got the prices myself from wherever, and then I spoke to the pharmacist and about okay, we're gonna send you a lot of patients. Just bring down your prices for our patients, so we're able to work down like a a pretty uh, um, affordable price for both ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And but like I said, ivermectin is more expensive. It's almost about maybe maybe four to five dollars a pill. But if you get the ivermectin compounded, it's cheaper. Hydroxychloroquine, uh, usually we can get your year supply for like $100. Um, from the ph- our pharmacist can get that to you. So, like I said, go to our website, um, get signed up. And I tell everybody, get in your medicine cabinet. Don't wait. Don't call me at night at 3 a.m. to come get you out of the hospital. I won't be able to. You know, just on tag on that, Stella, because, um, you know, the other thing is the COVID immune support stuff. I think you're, 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 you've got that there too, correct? The, the, see, the, uh, you know, we're talking about vitamin C, D, zinc, and quercetin. Uh, Richard, you and I put together the formula for um, uh, for the protocol for people to take to keep their immunity built up. We have we've built up supplements for 
we've we what I, one of the things I like to do is go on the NIH and look through studies, you know, and see what does studies on propaganda, studies on this and that. And we take these studies that they've done and then we put together supplements that can help people. And uh, we have, we, I mean, we have a lot of stuff. We've done we've done a lot of work and we do a lot of stuff. So um, I'm I'm kind of you know proud of the things that we've been able to do and to help the American people and the people of the world at large. At large. Thank you. And you guys have uh, both provided a lot of information to not only Selenko, but a lot of different doctors that are now using the protocol at the FLCCC and, and many, many others. So thank you for that. Um, Jay Hote, are you there? Go ahead. Oh, uh, yes. Um, thank you, Carolina. I DM'd her uh, this information. I was just going to read. Uh, I'm here in Texas and I'm, I'm looking down. There's a thousand people in here and uh I just want to, uh, there's bound to be some Texas people. I do see some people down there that I know from Texas. Uh, next Sunday night, uh, I don't have a time where I would have posted it, but next Sunday night, we're hosting a space with, uh, Texas for vaccine, Texans for vaccine choice. Uh, and they are, uh, uh, I, I put the tweet in the bubble, in the purple bubble, uh, of what they do. And, uh, they've actually, uh, started looking at all the legislation that is coming through this session that has just started. It's just beginning here in Texas for, you know, uh, medical freedom. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that happened last year, obviously, you know, people losing their jobs because they wouldn't take the vaccine or, or whatever. Uh, well, these, these ladies, uh, Rebecca and, uh, Michelle are going to come on and we're going to talk about some of the legislation that they're pushing for. And, um, it, you know, nothing medically that I will be speaking. My wife's a nurse, but I can't speak medical. <laughs> but uh, you guys are our heroes. Uh, Dr. Stella, my wife won't believe that, or Emmanuel, she won't believe that I spoke to you on space. She's in bed. But uh, thank you guys for all that you do. And if you can just kind of want, I will send this to Carolina uh, when we have the space set up. Anyone in here, please follow that bubble or I could put it up in the nest or whatever. I didn't want to do it without permission. But uh, it's something that we can drastically do as, as citizens to get our legislators to do the right thing and to make the laws that need to be made here in Texas to where we don't have this travesty that we had uh, back in 2020. So thank you guys for letting me announce that. Thank you, uh, Carolina. Thank you. And Dr. Stella and Dr. Ursa both have helped me uh, here in Texas for some of your events, by the way, uh, back in the rally days. Um, so, yes, definitely. We are glad to support you. Yeah, they, they will have a rally next uh, Wednesday, I believe, at the Capitol. <clears throat> yes, thank you. OK, Carolina, keep us informed and let's see how our schedules go. Thank you, Sarah. Shout out to her. She's an amazing girl. She she told me about you guys, so I wanted to make sure I don't miss out. Uh, Catherine, are you there? Yes, I am. I'll make it real quick because the doctors are probably looking at their pillows. Um, Dr. Emmanuel, you're a rock star. I found you on Alex Jones. You and Dr. Zelenko are like you and Alex and Zelenko changed my life. Um, so this is for the medical panel. Um, it's not about early COVID treatment. You may not want to touch on it, but it's really bothering me. So that's why I, I hung around apart from this being super interesting. Um, the mRNA going into the food, uh, it's coming up more and more and more um, by the computer guy. So I just wanted to get your opinion is if uh, the vaccine can be ingested and if it can be, you know, 
if we can be vaccinated and if you have any opinions about it at all. Thanks. Okay. So, um, yes, it can be. And, and for the most part, a lot of the stuff can be destroyed in your stomach acid, but the lipid nanoparticle portion is going to be placed into the animals in our, you know, our cattle and our other, other, um, uh, plants. It's going to be placed in a lot of our food sources. That's the goal. Um, whether or not it has a, a tremendous uptake within our body and starts producing uh, the, the proteins, I don't know. So I, I don't have a lot of information, but they're already doing that. They're putting it in the food supply. Um, they're, they're looking to do that in pretty much all our domesticated animals and our domesticated plants. So that's the goal that's happening right now. Well, that's why you need to grow your own food and have your own cattle. I have my mumus in the back that I think we're going <laughs> to, you know, if you can grow your own food, get some chicken and everything. We have to be prepared for what is coming. And uh, I'm so thankful that uh, uh, Representative Bobby uh, uh, Lauren actually uh, went into got preachy. What is coming is going to be crazy. So please look out for the space we're going to be doing on the spiritual implications of what we're going through, the timeline of where we are spiritually and how you can, what you can do to be safe. But I want to tell, give everybody a word of encouragement. There will be a great reset, but the great reset is not going to be done in Davos. The great reset is going to be done by the Lord Jesus. And you should read the Bible all the way to the end in Revelation and you will realize that, yes, finally, at the end of the day, God is going to come and, you know, you know, crash this whole system and then he will, you know, get us out of here, bring us back. We will remodel the world. And we're going to be happy after without the devil. That is the whole idea about this whole system. There will be a great reset. It will be done by God. And I think it is time for everybody to turn back to God. Amen. Jake? Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you, all your doctors and everybody that's been contributing to this. I really appreciate all the time and effort y'all put into trying to save humanity in our country and and uh, really appreciate it. My uh, wife just gave birth on the 31st to uh, our fourth child. Uh, none of us had been vaccinated. I've been banned, blocked, and deleted off of practically every social media program uh, and platform because of me trying to spread the truth since, you know, late 2019, even before they had announced that COVID was going to be in the United States and uh, that it was still in China. And um, anyway, we my wife gave birth to our child at home because we didn't want to be in the medical system because we did that with our previous son that's now almost two. And uh, we didn't want to get birth in the hospital again. And so birth was beautiful. It was awesome. One of the most amazing things that I've ever experienced in, in our home, surrounded by loving people. Uh, and unfortunately, my wife uh, did not stop bleeding. Uh, the placenta uh, was did not remove completely from the uterine wall. And we had to call the ambulance and take her to the hospital. And they ended up having to do emergency surgery. And she ended up having to get a blood transfusion. Uh, we anticipated this on the way to the hospital, thank goodness. But at the same time, it, it was uh, no benefit to us because uh, we requested uh, non-vaccinated blood, but we were unaware that uh, vaccination status of a blood donor is not does not follow the blood. And so my wife ended up having losing two and a half liters of blood and getting that transfusion during the surgery and thereafter. And so now we're fairly certain that uh, she could have vaccinated blood in her body. And, you know, we eat non-GMO, all organic. We grow most of our vegetables and uh, raise our own cattle. Uh, 
we raised 450 chickens this last year and we homeschool our kids. And so we've been trying to do everything that we can to be a change, the change we want to see in the world. Uh, but here we are, uh, unfortunately ended up and I'm pretty worried. I mean, we pray, you know, doing everything that we can to trust in God, but at the same time, you know, uh, you can't be in a, a burning, a burning house and think that God's going to save you if you don't get up and walk out. So, um, ultimately I'm trying to do everything that I can as quick as possible, uh, which I know that this is about early COVID treatment and I've heard that stated multiple times, but you know, time is of the essence and I want to do everything that I can to help my wife and, uh, get her the help that she needs so that we can cleanse her Bro, body. Let me give you right there. You're a child of God. The Bible says in Titus three verse five. That salvation is by the washing of regeneration. And uh, we have prayed for a lot of people that took the vaccine and regretted it. And we've seen people, we've seen miracles. I mean, we've seen paralyzed people get released. So I don't want you to be fearful. Your wife was injected something she couldn't. And just tell her to pray and ask the blood of Jesus to cleanse her. It's the same blood of Jesus that redeemed us from the Adamic nature. What happened in the Garden of Eden was a DNA corruption. And when you get saved and you give your life to Christ, you're, you get a regeneration. And this spike protein or the nanoparticles or whatever they inject in us, it also changes our DNA. But guess what? You can get regenerated and get healed. So I will not. I don't want you to be worried. Go, down, go on our website, drstellamd.com, and there's a th place there that says if you've been vaccinated and you regret it, this is a prayer to pray. You don't don't even worry about it. The Lord is totally going to regenerate your wife. So don't worry about it. Thank you. All right, Carolina, who next? Donna? Hi. Yes. Um, thank you very much, everybody, for staying up so late. Um, so in March of 2019, I got sick. Um, it was presumed that it was COVID. They wouldn't test me because I didn't have the COVID markers of um, a high temperature and a cough. And um, <clears throat> 2020, I found out that I had a very severe mold allergy. Um, and I, in 2021, I found out that there was mold in my apartment. And um, I subsequently moved out of my apartment, but... Um, the point is in 2019, when I got really sick, I started doing research and I started taking supplements that I was finding online, like NAC, ashwagandha, things of that nature to reduce um, some of the symptoms that I was feeling. And I stayed the course with some of those supplements throughout the course of me finding out that I had a mold issue. Um, I moved out of the apartment and I stopped taking most of those supplements and I wound up getting covid um, I took ivermectin and within three days I was better, but I was wondering if there is any, um, if anybody's looking into a possible correlation between people who have, um, an inflammatory response to mold and, um, severe COVID illness, is that something that's been looked at? I mean, if you had mold in your lungs and your lungs were already inflamed, it's just like any other co co uh, pre-existing condition that will probably get you sicker. And like you call about ashwagandha, we actually did, I mean, we put together a lot of stuff, including ashwagandha and in, in, our, in our supplements to help people. So I will tell you that um, that mold in your lungs is just a pre-existing condition. Your lungs were already kind of injured, so it will probably get you a little sicker. But 
ivermectin works yeah no it was a lifesaver i'm i'm very happy that i had it on hand thank you guys very much for everything thank you uh donna k are you there yes i am thank you um dr stella (laughs) you are heaven sent I am so grateful um, to find this space for the first time. Of course, I've heard of you before and heard you on Alex Jones. And you're such a just breath of fresh air with these other spaces because I have just been getting on these COVID spaces, wanting to shout to the world for people to stand in their spiritual authority. And I'm not being called up. And I have felt there's a block there because I feel the time that we're in, it's a test of our faith. What are we putting our faith in? If I'm not putting my faith in Christ and I put my faith in a vaccine, then I'm going to suffer the consequences. So I see it clearly that I feel like the reason I wasn't being called up to give people, you know, some answers and solutions for healing, um, is because our creator doesn't want people to just heal and be comfortable. I realized that two nights ago. Christ wants us to have a relationship with Christ. And so I understand that, you know, we can go through suffering until we get our relationship right with the creator. It's just become crystal clear with these spaces. But coming on here, I feel such an alignment um, with you and your message of, you know, spiritual authority and healing in addition to the medical, you know, every, it all serves a purpose, but the root is our relationship with Christ, with our creator. And so what I wanted to share is just um, a practical skill, which most of us know um, to literally help with COVID um, even with the, the negative effects of the jab. I, I've been in ministry for many years, um, as a spiritual teacher and, um, a public speaker dedicated to Christ. Um, but also understanding the quantum physics of human consciousness, wellness and human behavior. And with COVID, it's a spirit. It's an energy. Every word, every letter, Every number has a frequency and an energy either giving life or killing life. One of the two. COVID obviously has an energy and frequency of death. I will not want to go into energy and frequency because as a Christian, that goes into new age. And I'm like, kind of like already freaked out. (laughs) Not going to quantum and energy. We'll talk about science and they will talk about Christ. And um, I'm, Thank so. you, Doc. What's, what's your question real sure. quick? And I'm going to ask all the speakers to just have your question ready, spit it out in 30 yeah, seconds. A question. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I would... Okay, two things in the question. Um, what I wanted to share is, and it's in the Bible, you know, every word creates life or death um, of, our, of our mouth. But the answer is to forgive. Hello? 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 Can you hear us? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. My earbuds went dead right as you called me up. So I'm like, no! I'm sorry. 
for minutes. It's okay. You for you. Go ahead. Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Anyway, following to or is here and a lot of you're cutting in and out. Cut- Do you want to drop out and then come back in because it's chopping? You're, you're chopping. We're hearing every other word. Okay, we're going to go to Nereida. Hello. Hi. God bless everybody. Um, Stella, Emmanuel, I was, I saw your very first video when this, all this started happening in 2019 and you came out with bravery and you were saying that you were just telling everybody to calm down and you have the spirit of God in you. And I remember that. And so now we are two years into this and I was always from day one I always said don't get the vaccine for and I would tell other Christians, you know, don't live in fear. God had not given us a spirit of fear but a power of love and a sound mind. And now I'm I don't know how God's leading me, but God's leading me to to be kind to those that are vaxxed because they're so afraid. And a lot of them, you know, they put their whole faith in the government and propaganda and in fear. And now they're scared because they're being hurt. So how do you want me to minister to those that have already had this, are getting sick, just for them to continue? If you go on my my Twitter right now, there's a short video that I did to bring hope to the vaccinated. Like I said, we're going to be doing a whole space to deal with uh, um, uh, spiritual and physical and how we can, what are the things that that we do to treat people that are vaccinated and regret it. It's important that they have to regret it. If they don't regret it, you can't force them to do whatever. So we do have detox that we've put together. And of course, we have the spiritual cleansing that we do. So there's a video on my, uh, uh, I did yesterday. Just look at it and and then go on our website and you'll see a lot of the prayers that we tell people to do. And we have a whole detox. You know, we have a vax detox. So um, I don't think that, I think we should, you, you said something very important. We should show kindness and mercy to those that are vaccinated because we're all the prey. You know, they were so scared that they got vaccinated. Right now, they are so scared that they are vaccinated. And I know that they used to wish death upon us, but we have to look yeah, at it. Did. Uh, we are all the prey and show mercy to those that are vaccinated. Look out for this space where we're going to be dealing with vaccine injury and how to be cleansed and purged from it. I'm going to get a few doctors that work on that space. All right. And make sure you follow Dr. Stella Emmanuel because I know that some people were dragged on from other uh, other uh, viewers that joined. So make sure you are following Dr. Stella and everybody on the panel so that you enable the notifications. And that way, when she does go live, you do get it. Uh, you get the notification. We're going to go with uh, Bitcoin. Go ahead. Hi. Yes, thank you. Just quick question about chlorine dioxide. Or dioxide. I've, um, I've been making and using this as needed for over a year out of fear of you know vaccine toxicity. I'm just curious on your ideas on chlorine dioxide. We people have used chlorine dioxide, and we have seen a 
I've, I don't use it personally, and but I've I've I have a lot of anecdotal uh, about people using it and and other patients using it. Uh, I do because the reason why I've not really gone into other forms of treatment is because if it's not broke, you don't if you don't fix it. <laughs> you understand? What I'm saying we have a protocol with hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and all the stuff that we give people. And because I can still prescribe it, and I have doctors that can prescribe it all over the country, I've not had a need to go to look into other things. I've been busy. But I know there are anecdotal reports on people that use chlorine dioxide. I don't. I can't tell you anything about it. Okay. Thank you. Just to follow up on that, I, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, I did get through frontline doctors and stuff, but just to take it on a prophylactic basis, you know, ongoing, it's very expensive. So chlorine dioxide is very cheap to make. That's why I've stuck with that. Quercetin too can, you know, vitamin C, D, Z, quercetin can help too. Anyway. Thank you. Um, Tisha? Hello. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, vaguely, but yes, we can hear you. Okay, great. Um, yes, I wanted to, um, to kind of ask about the shedding. I have two sisters, one that was vaccinated, one that wasn't, and both have gotten very recently lung and brain cancer. Um, so yeah, shedding? Shedding yeah. happens. We've had a lot of people. Shedding does happen. It's it's a legitimate concern, and and it's uh we there's a lot going on on shedding with people that have taken the vaccine. But we're going to be discussing that with the uh, uh the vaccine. Like today, today's topic was really about early treatment, and I know we've gone mm -hmm. into many other things, and it's kind of like over past midnight here. So we just look out for the space we're going to be doing on vaccine. We're going to start that a, a little earlier so that we can have time to talk all, all day. Will do. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, Rod? Hey. <clears throat> Where have you been my whole life? This is like, I mean, all of y'all. I mean, this is like the best, you know, space that I've listened to since they started this thing. <laughs> I mean... Uh, Y'all are heaven Holy sent. Spirit with Dr. Stella Emanuel, for sure. <laughs> right. Y'all are heaven sent. I was blown. Um, <laughs> no, She's I just got a couple, of, a couple of quick questions. Um, <clears throat> what is the shelf life <laughs> as far as, you know, your average uh, pill medication? All right, let me say this, right? Um, there's something about expiration date that a lot of people don't understand. Expiration date most time is not spoiled by. It's not, uh, expiration date is more like most effective by. You know what I'm saying? So, so right. most medications, even my food, like my food in my fridge, I don't throw away my food because it's expired. I throw away my food when it tastes bad. We are like the most wasteful society. And because we've become so wasteful, because everybody looks at best buy or expiration date to being spoiled by or it doesn't work anymore. And that's not true. So most pills, medications for me, I use them 
for years. They actually did a study. You know, when I found this out when I started uh, doing, um, I used to go do missions and medical affair in Africa, and I found out that uh, uh, pharmaceutical reps they'll come and they'll give me their their medications that have expired, and they'll tell me, "Oh no, it works for two three years." And then we found out that they actually did studies in the military and found out that most pills still work, are still available, they are still they are still um efficacious for years like two three four years so um i would say <coughs> expiration date i i don't give it much too much credence actually especially especially if it's like a pill or maybe a fruit or stuff in my house so that's me uh, you know so you should probably go and study the history of expiration dates <clears throat> thank you so much and last question um, I've heard this, and I don't know how true it is, um, <clears throat> and I'm pretty sure you'll give me the right answer. Um, are antibiotics bad to take? Because I've heard that basically you are just nuking your body. <laughs> antibiotics are taken when you are sick. Antibiotics are not things you just take on a daily basis when you're sitting around. What does antibiotics actually do? It reduces the amount of bacteria or amount of the virus or whatever uh, bacteria that it's in your body so your body's immune system can have the ability to repair. That is actually what antibiotics do. So if you're sick, there's no point like, I'm not going to take antibiotics because they are bad. All medications that we take is a risk versus benefit. If you're having antibiotics, uh, uh, if you're having a bacteria in your blood that's going to kill you you need to take some antibiotics yes it might mess up your gut flora for a little bit but so you can take probiotics later so antibiotics are about risk and benefit it's not something you should just take randomly okay well thank you very much and god bless to all y'all thank you ryan yes thank thanks so much for calling me up um a year ago, I was uh, vaccinated two times, and uh, due to work pressure and family pressure, um, I, I had COVID two times, um, including a year ago, um, right after I got vaccinated. And I'm afraid I've, I maybe have have COVID now um, again because, although I tested negative on a test tonight, I, I've lost my sense of taste and smell. Um, my question is, really, my my real concern is about ten weeks ago. I started developing involuntary muscle spasms in my body um, and twitching, and now it's mostly happening in my my legs. But other parts of my body, every doctor I've seen hasn't been able to help me or tell me what's going on. Um, my my question is: um, one, would it be unusual? Have you heard where somebody develops muscle spasms ten months after the vaccine? And then two, is there something I can do about it? especially now because I'm freaking out um, that maybe I have COVID again. And is there, is there something I can do about it? Cause it's, cause it's been pretty, really, really dark for me the past um, 10 weeks. And I, I really don't know what to do. And I, I can see this, I can see my muscles twitching and happening. Um, and I don't know for sure if this is COVID or vaccine related, but I suspect it is from everything I had read and um, seen on, on Twitter and other places. Uh, Ryan, uh, number one, if you think you have COVID or you have symptoms, go on our website. We'll treat you. We'll give you hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. We'll give you all the medications that you need, the steroids that you need and everything. Number one. Number two, um, if you've been vaccinated, repent. 
and ask for the, the blood of Jesus to cleanse you. Number three, if you are having muscle muscle twitching, I would that's the way I would treat people that have muscle issues, and um, I would treat you as a patient. Um, there are muscle relaxants you can give people and everything. This the the vaccine is and COVID. They are both what I would call spike protein disease, and we don't know. We don't know the whole ramifications of what they actually do. So, um, Dr. Oso, if there's anything you can say to that. But get treated immediately. Go to drstellamd.com, get, sign up, and we'll see you. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's tough because it's an individual thing, and knowing all the nuance, it's definitely treatment for you. And I think there probably is a lot of this is connected. So I do agree with what you're kind of thinking. Remember that the spike um, gets access via the lipid nanoparticles um you didn't have not you had the vaccine so the the spike gets access to all um of your body basically um you know it's going into the brain the bone marrow the adrenals um the testes the heart it's going all over um and distributing everywhere that's so now you have access everywhere so that's why it's a multi-system disease is there a big vascular component absolutely and is there inflammatory uh pathways that are being um um, that are part of this, both. I think there's multiple pathways, and that's why, you know, typically in medicine, instead I both train this way, is, you know, you don't usually have peas and carrots. You know, if somebody, a new, a new young person gets a disease, they're not going to have rheumatoid arthritis and, uh, you know, and some other unusual genetic disorder at the same time. You know, they're just, that's just not the way it works. But this is the difference with the spike protein, messenger RNA, lipid nanoparticle platforms gets into your nervous tissue it gets into all these different tissues and it causes uh different uh pathways of disease and different mechanisms of disease so i think in general first thing to do is treat you right that's the first thing we don't want to do too many things at once but clearly there's probably an inflammatory mechanism the there's no reason why you couldn't get rid of this muscle spasm issue um there's a lot of ways to approach that in a lot of nutritional ways i don't want to go into it too much because it's you know, it's, it's, you know, there's the, the, the treatments at first to treat the COVID portion of this and then move on and treat the other symptoms. Um, and in general, uh, I agree with uh, what Dr. Stella said. Thank you. Richard, do you think that maybe he could use COVID light because of all the supplements we have? In yeah, I mean, but first I would, you know, treat the acute phase, right? Yeah. And then and then we yeah. go into Absolutely. some of that other. And I really do think natokinase is a good choice uh, mm-hmm. for people that have long-term injury. Um, it's simple. Um, there's a role for triple therapy potentially. Mm-hmm. In some of these patients, they have lack of plasminogen, plasminogen, plasminogen activator inhibitor one. So it's like it's um, PIO one. It's basically um, a lot of this is you know we don't have all the all the answers. all the answers. That's one of the problems. Hydration though, a lot of hydration because remember. Yeah, I mean yes. When we have yes. one of the things we found COVID patients where we had a, a rise in their creatinine kinase, so. This was like very hypermetabolic situations, and hydration was so good in flushing out some of the spike, flushing out some of the um, toxins out of the person's body. So hydration is something I would tell you if you can just get maybe a, a liter or two of Pedialyte a day. We really, we really saw that work very well with people that we did labs on, and they came back with high creatinine kinase. That shows that their muscles were affected. Hydration really helped. Yeah, and I can't, I mean, you know, and, and Stella is, and I would uh, both agree on this. This is normal for viral disorders 
where you get electrolyte issues, you get hydration issues, and a liter or two of fluids really makes a big difference. So that's number one. I personally, I'm a big, bigger fan of bone broth um, as my replacement. Uh, it helps the gut. Um, so, but I think uh, either way, you're getting electrolytes, you're getting fluids, and I think at the end of the day, it's a matter of actually the the, the bottom line is getting fluids, getting electrolytes. Um, but I think long term, if you're still having those issues, there's answers. And uh, the first thing I like in a you know, we use, and I won't go into it because we, that's a whole nother call, but ivermectin, colchicine, steroids, uh, low-dose naltrexone, um, you know, Brelvi. I mean, there's so many different, you know, kinase, triple, uh, triple therapy. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things to talk about, a lot of things that we could call in another call. Uh, but you're, there's an answer there for you. Uh, don't get gaslit. <laughs> don't believe the gaslighting. That is what I always tell doctors. If you can't figure out the problem, it's not psychological. It, you you have the problem. You can't come up with the answer. You have a problem. There's an answer to it. Keep keep digging for it, and there's an answer. For now, get the acute COVID treated, and we'll take care of that. Thank you, doctors. Uh, the pre uh, the preacher, can you come on and ask your question? And please uh, take it to thirty seconds. The doctors have been extremely patient to give us extra time. Okay, uh, my name is Francisco. First, I would uh, just like to thank Dr. Stella for her brilliant work in helping and informing people about this disease. I'm the son of a professor of nursing who retired from two Brazilian government universities, but who still does research. So I help her with the graphics and computational, computational, computational parts. In 2020, we were in the Amazon rainforest, and then we received the word that the airports were going to close. We were locked in the hotel for two days. When I took the opportunity to study the facts, I could find on the networks about the event. And I still managed to find out a lot of information for it, it was raised, such as the names of the research teams in Wuhan, which were, were erased from records and some results by census who were testing ivermectin on virus strain with a positive response. Since then, we decided to use this medicine with family and friends, and we haven't lost a single relative uh, of those who use this medicine. Therefore, today, according to our family doctors, we are discussed the case. Uh, we use it in every 15 days without ever having any problems, including with other type of viruses. We are very scared now because the new communist government that took over Brazil promised for, to forcibly vaccinate the population that does not want to be vaccinated. Having even forcibly vaccinated the prisoners of the event in the invasion of the, invasion of the Congress who were named as terrorists and are suffering abuses in prison. Because the, the current heard now that we, as we are conservatives and patriots informed about the new globalist agenda, we are against this vaccine, vaccine. I don't know what to do to help avoid this evil with our people because side events, events increase every day more in the world, but they are hidden from the great media here. I call for help. Não, é só Eu preciso falar português. Eu preciso você me liga. Ok, Carolina. Eu sei você. Você está no espaço de Kevin. 
Yes, we, we gave you guys the training on what to do with the false flag. But Dr. Stella, this is a group of people that I was explaining to you um, that in the, the concentration camps that they're setting up for the people that they trapped, they're forcing them to take the vaccine. They're literally holding children down, holding fa- uh, pe- people down to take this vaccine. And their concern is that now that they're under a corrupt regime uh, of dictatorship, they're going to all be forced into the vaccination. So so this is where we were asking you the question yesterday. So I just wanted to um, see what you have to say about this, Dr. Ursula, saying that they need support, helping guys. Yeah, you can do a space, Carolina, so that we can come and give them hope. But I think it is, this is, for example, if they're going to put you in a concentration camp, force you to take a vaccine and not give you any kind of treatment, I would say it's time to turn to Jesus. Because that's the only person that can help them in that situation. And yes, I'm going to send you the videos. I mean, all they do is pray and read the Bible. I, I have all the that's videos good. that I will send you. That's amazing. And, and it, they're it still works. vaccinating them right now. So there's got to be something else we can do as well, additional to spiritual support. Yeah, I'm saying that when they vaccinate them, that vaccine, uh, Carolina, you really need to go to our website and print that prayer that we do okay. for vaccine. Because yes, I'll translate it and send that, it. Yeah, translate it and send it to them because if they can vaccinate them and they can pray and cleanse themselves with the blood of Jesus. And when we're in stressful situations like that, you can always call on the Lord and he will help. If that's what they are doing, I'm telling you, they should stand strong. Because you know what? Like I always say, the devil can kill this body, but my soul and spirit is living there forever. You know, And that's where we are right now. Because uh, this, Carolina, because this, I, 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 I give myself the nickname to preach because I'm talking about Jesus. Because I know the end is near. Okay, In, with these events, we know that the end is near, and uh, I will, I will try to, to, to take this time to, to talk about the word and talk yeah. about. Jesus we'll give you and the. God. The website, and then I'm going to give you the prayers as well. And it's very important that, lo voy a decir en español, es muy importante que esta, esta información la pongas y la imprimas para que esta información se la lleves a la gente que está siendo inoculada. Okay, you can have this conversation because we need to go. So, okay, yeah, okay, okay. Thank you, Richard. Yes. Julie? Yes. Yeah, no Thank problem. Thank you a lot, buddy. Uh, no. God bless everybody now. Uh, Julie, are you there? Oh, hi, I'm here. I just have a quick question. Um, it's about treatment. Um, somebody mentioned um, the hydrogen peroxide nebulizer, and I wanted to find out what Dr. Orzo would say about that. And I also want to ask what probiotics he um, would recommend. Thank you. So, um, yeah, I love the hydrogen peroxide. It can make you cough a little bit more. Um, so I think um, usually do it one part hydrogen peroxide, one part saline, a uh, two part saline is what I was using. Um, so um, there may be others doing different formulas. Um, I'm getting a little pushback. The other the other question was um, what was the other question? Oh, about the probiotics. Um, I think in general, I, I'm the the best science we have on 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 this right now is the bifidobacterium bifidum. Bifidobacterium bifidum needs to be in your probiotic. Um, I, someone earlier talked about prebiotics. I do think that's a good idea because it basically supports the growth of these good bacteria. But I also find that a lot of people who take prebiotics, prebiotics basically have a lot of GI upset too. So, um, I think getting a good product and the one I use, um, 
I have one and I, I give it to most of the patients um, and I'm blanking on it right now. I got it in my head um, The and I, I, I have printed out in the clinic, but it's a, it's in a glass bottle and tablets um, and I'm, I'm going to blank on it. I apologize. I can try to get it to Carolina, um, send her what it is and, and she could put it out. Um, and so people can see it, but the, the key component um, that we've seen in the patients that have been the, the, the best able to actually resist this coronavirus is the bifido people with the most bifidobacterium bifidum. And that's, that's a key, key uh, part of the GI system uh, as being a healthy um, uh, uh, system right now. It's the best, that's the best thing I say. If you look at kids with autism, um, they have a very narrow um, uh, 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 spectrum of, of bacteria. Um, a lot of people who have other health issues, um, actually having a broad based diet makes a difference. So if people only eat like vegetarian or vegan, um, they have a less diverse, uh, microbiome. Um, so it's a, it's real important to kind of have, you know, um, a, a diverse, um, uh, a diverse, um, I apologize. I've got some, some, some other stuff going on behind me. I apologize for, for kind of being slow on this answer, but, but basically that's one of the things, the microbiome can be supported. And I think the bifidobacterium is the most important and a broad, diverse whole foods, plant-based meat-based is good too. I mean, meat is good. They've been, it's been denigrated, but it's not true. Um, I think there's a lot of good data on that from the microbiome studies that have been done by Sabine Hazard. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Do you have, do you also, okay, um, I think we'll take five more questions and because, uh, yes, Rebecca, are you available? Rebecca yes, and then Julie. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering what is the current treatment for COVID because there's a lot of talk about vaccines and what you can do to, um, yeah, basically. So, hey, Rebecca. Um, so Rebecca is, uh, so for people who don't know, Rebecca is a journalist from, uh, I'll let you answer, Stella, hold on. She's a journalist from um, from Norway. She's been fighting the fight, the globalists over in, over in Europe. Um, she's had, a, you know, she's on there just basically, she even says radical things like there's, um, she knows uh, that there's a man win, and uh, she gets chastised for saying that uh, because she she doesn't acknowledge that there's more than two sexes. So um, she's been a warrior over there in Europe. Um, and uh, Stella, why don't you go ahead and say what you're doing? Because I think you've been treating the most patients. I have a regimen. And let's hear what you have to say. I was saying, Rebecca, you probably need to listen to this space, the, the recording of this is because this was all about early treatment beginning to end was about early treatment, really uh, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, uh, budesonide, and z And if they are having nausea, we give them a... Um, um... No, I think I think the question was more like, what are we doing for the Omicron that maybe we weren't doing for other stuff? I think that's really what the question is. Um, actually, I'm doing the same thing. It still works. I'm, I'm doing the same thing for Omicron. Like I, in fact, one of the most difficult things to treat was the Delta. And yeah, totally. Delta, Omicron is a breeze. Yeah, I agree. Uh-huh. So I think that's that's basically where we are. We were using six and seven uh, different things for, for, for Delta. And now we're back. I mean, I pretty much use atherosomycin, either ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. And I use prednisone. So uh, that's about it. It's a very simple treatment. For me, butesonide has really, really worked because, uh, especially when people have diabetic, they are diabetics, and you know, butesonide would. If I was to use four things, I use hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, depending on how sick they are, and then I give them butesonide and Zipac. So we, it, nothing has really changed. The, the, see, 
coronaviruses, they're about almost 90% the same, and they get treated the same. Nothing has changed much about the way we treat them, you know, and it still works. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I think, you know, Brian, same thing. Brian's using more hydroxy than he is ivermectin right now um, because it's been easier to get a hydroxychloroquine than ivermectin lately, and they both work. <clears throat> and like you said, I mean, there is some issues with prednisone, uh, I think, in general. Um, you do have to watch uh, a lot of these people are that are actually going to be really sick are already diabetics or insulin resistant. And so, yeah, I agree with you, Stella, but I still use the prednisone. I think it's, I think it's more effective in, at least for what I've been seeing. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really careful about telling all the patients to, you know, basically you, you can't go, you can't eat carbs. Basically, if you, if you do, you're going to end up in the hospital. Um, <clears throat> I got burned once on that and I'm probably the last five or 600 patients, but but basically, it's uh, it's worked real well, and I think, like you said, it's it's not a complicated thing. I think I have had a patient pass away about a month and a half ago. She had uh, she was at chronic kidney disease, about to get a um, uh, a uh, uh, thinking about you know getting dialysis, and uh, um, and then she um, called, uh, asked for treatment. I gave her treatment. She used it for a day. Family was worried. Took her to the hospital. They gave her remdesivir, and about two days later, she had passed away. So. You know, we're still seeing patients that are with comorbidities. And now if you want to know, the, the average age of death um, is 82. So people are still dying, but they're, they're people with comorbidities. And so you're going to see that in respiratory disease for pretty much flu and other things where there are deaths going on in COVID. And I think one of the things that Stella, one of the things she called me, not I think last week and said, people are not paying attention that we're still having problems and people yeah. are actually dying of COVID. Yeah. So. That's why we, we had this space, Richard. I call Richard. I say, Richard, we have we have left the narrative of early treatment, and we're talking about a whole lot of stuff, and we've left the narrative of early treatment, which is what people need. Whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, COVID is treatable, and it's much better done like in the first five days. So that's why we held the space to remind and, people that early treatment works. And the other thing I think, Stella, what we're seeing is, the people are getting sick are the vaccinated, you know, the, the Q, uh, the, the IgG switch, um, the immune tolerance. We're seeing the people in the hospital are the vaccinated people. They're the ones dying at higher levels. And uh, I just want to give a shout out to Rebecca again. Thanks so much. Um, you know, if you got a chance, follow Rebecca. She's been a warrior, a journalist in Europe uh, fighting the fight over there. They don't get as much support. They literally get potentially arrested for saying what she, what, what I just said. Um, uh, you know, that if you uh, she put out a quote of that there's a man and a woman and they threatened to actually find her and throw her in jail. So it's really different over in Europe than it oh, is over yeah. in the United States. So, Rebecca, Remember, thank you so much. The, if you're out of the country and you can't get hydroxychloroquine, you can use tonic water. You can use quercetine and zinc and vitamin D. These are things you can buy on Amazon. You know what I'm saying? We can ship our supplements all over the world, but we cannot ship hydroxychloroquine ivermectin to you. So remember that these things, uh, there are things that you can do that can help if you're not in a position where you, you, you can go on drsellamd.com and see a doctor and or, or go to Dr. Oso's office and, and, and get the medications that you need. There are things that can do to help, to help you come back and fight the disease better. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, yeah, it's a long way from Norway to, to my office, but uh, thanks so much. Bye, Stella. Um, one other question for you: Are you um, are you are you seeing um, any issues with blood clotting at all? I, I just had that one patient probably in the last like four or five months. 
Are you seeing any? Actually, we put our sick patients on on um. We put all all of them. Everybody that comes with COVID, we put them on baby aspirin. You know what I'm saying? We put them, and when they get this is the issue. We're not able to assess the blood clotting because if they get that sick, they always end up in the hospital. And most of the time, we're not. If they came in too sick, they end up in the hospital, and we're not going to see them. But when we see patients, we, we are aware of the fact that we're dealing with a disease that can clotting. So baby aspirin is part of our regimen. Thank you, doctors. Um, can we go over to Julie? I think it was Julie, Linda, Den Denkins, RL, 1TX, and Nora. And then we still have eight after that. So please answer uh, 30 seconds, and then I have to drop you out quickly. Um, my question is about um, the electrolytes for diabetics. What would y'all recommend for that? I mean, we'll rec recommend general electrolytes. See, remember that um, when, you, uh, like, Pedialyte, they are electrolytes for diabetics. They are actually electrolytes that are done for diabetics that has less sugar. And, you know, we we'll recommend. But the issue is most people that are sick with COVID don't eat. So even if they are diabetic, they still need electrolytes. So they, they do have electrolytes that for diabetics that have less sugar. What we have is Covilite that we put together and just about any kind of patient can take it. And most diabetics know how to check their blood sugar to make sure that it's not going higher. What what say thou, uh, Richard? I agree with you on that. So, you know, I'm totally in alignment. Um, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, this is one of the biggest issues. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad we keep emphasizing it. Uh, thank you. Linda? Yes. Hi. Um, Dr. Stella, I'll address it to you, but it's really for all the doctors. <clears throat> I'm a scholar of communication, and I've been following the COVID story for years. I, I'm a friend of Dr. Urso's and have been in communication with him quite a lot. M my interest has been uh, at the communication and the way in which um, you doctors have been censored and canceled and uh, otherwise muted for years. And uh, Dr. Stella, you have said you had this fear, this dread that something's coming up soon and that's going to happen to you again. And my interest is in... Um, interviewing I, i'm a phenomenologist and i want to interview as many doctors as i can who have uh, gone through this and chronicle your experience for posterity i want to be able to um, put together uh, wh what is it that has been communicated to you how have they communicated it and get it down for uh, posterity for other scholars i'd like to be able to publish it for uh, the wider audience and also, I want to, I think that we have to fight, as um, Lauren Boebert was saying, we have to be able to assert ourselves and fight against the people that would silence you and others in this fight. It's as much a communication uh, problem as it is a medical problem, I think, perhaps more. So um, if you're interested, I'd love to be able to be in that fight with you and and help in some way to uh, get your stories down so i just would okay. be interested in that if you're interested yeah dm me and uh and and we'll, we'll see how we can get some things done definitely it was a communication issue 
They shut us down from telling people the truth and allow people to die. And that is the part that is a nightmare till tomorrow. The fact that each time they said 100 people have died, 10,000 people have died, all you could say is that they didn't have to die. That's right. Absolutely. Thank you, Linda. Long mm-hmm. claw, and then uh, Dan Kings. Hi. Uh, many thanks and blessings to all of you for your your help through this. My question is, back when um, there were rumors of medicine, um, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, even um, NAC being uh, hard to get, um, I kind of stocked up on on them and I have my own traveling medicine kit. And so my question is, do I need to be concerned about any of these expiring? I know these have expiration dates, but, you know, I don't know how accurate they are. You know, it's interesting. I was just going to say Stella and I talk about this a lot. Um, so we're big believers in having um, um, some prophylactic, some uh, therapeutics that are available if you do get sick. So uh, she's got some great ideas on this. Um, we both um, probably would say it's a fantastic way to be prepared because you never know what's going to happen. Most medications are going to actually be quite stable past their expiration date. If they're kept in, you know, good conditions, you know, you don't want to keep it in the car in 110 degrees in Texas. Um, So in general, you're going to go past the expiration date. The expiration dates have really shortened uh, since I've been in training. Uh, You saw oftentimes be two or three years down the road. Um, I often, uh, I I don't want to, I can't really make any recommendations for you, but in general, I often take, uh, medications past their expiration date um, that are kept in a in a in, a, in the proper environment uh, in temperatures um, you know around seventy degrees. So uh, that's my thoughts. Stella, do you want to add anything? Because I know you thought about this a lot. Yeah, I said I said about this earlier. I said people look at expiration date; it means spoiled by, and expiration date is not spoiled by. Expiration date is well, we can swear for the efficacy by this date. It doesn't mean that the medication stops working. You know, so um, we just are a wasteful society. And I do believe that many expiration dates are put there so they can throw away and get new ones. Here's the thing. Okay, you stock ivermectin in your house and it gets crazy and CBDC is here. You can't come out of your house. You can't go out without taking uh, the mark or something. You're going to take the ivermectin. So we are in a time right now that when it gets desperate, you would you would pick that piece of bread cut off the molded part and eat it. Thank you, doctor. Um, one TX and then Nora. Uh, and then we still have five other people waiting. So please drop out quickly and ask under like 30 seconds. Thank do you. I get a, do I Thank get a you. chance to? Thank you for allowing me to ask questions and getting the chance to be answered by professionals. So um, I'm talking from Quebec, Canada. I'm a PhD student and not non-vaccinated it's been a struggle since like almost 92 percent of quebec uh, got one shot at least so it's not been easy this these two last uh, years my first question is um many of my relatives actually uh, going from four years old to 60 years old um somehow have expressed and been diagnosed with um carpal tunnel syndrome or sometimes arthritis 
uh, because they had like a lot of pain in their fingers, uh, sometimes in one hand, not the other, uh, a lot of uh, swelling uh, in their fingers. And I'm just wondering, is this can be caused by the um, eventual microthrombosis uh, reactions induced by uh, mRNA vaccines? Uh, my second question is, um, uh, since I'm not vaccinated, but my partner is, so I'm a little bit, a little bit uh, like worried about like an eventual uh, pregnancy. Uh, so, what what are the risks and the concerns that I should be aware of? Um, am, I, am I gonna get the spike protein through my fetus, for example? Is my baby gonna have it? Uh, is there lesser risk since um, one of us is vaccinated? Um, is there going to be risks during the pregnancy as if, as if I was vaccinated myself? Uh, so those are my two concerns. And thank you for asking. So I'll kind of address the second one first, because, you know, shedding is a real thing. It's not a it's not a it's not a question of it's a question of the amounts. So we know it's real. Um, if you look at the Journal of Immunology, they uh, acknowledge that ex- circulating exosomes uh, four months later, those are going to go, they could go out through many areas. So what that is, an exosome is an excess of spike protein is made inside the cell. The cell wraps it in its own lipophilic uh, capsule and it spits it back out of the cell because there's no more room on the outside wall of the cell. Anyway, circulating exosomes um, um, are, 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 are around and they, and also mRNA can cross across across the um, and through mother's milk it can cross across the uh, placenta so all these things are potentially there i think in reality that um if it's been you know a month i would be concerned to some extent um if it's been a year i'd be less concerned what they found from the jabs um for for sperm counts it does lower sperm counts and it looks like it recovers over time I, nobody's done a study to see what happens when you get four or five shots so I think I would highly encourage him not to get any more. Um, the data is clearly, um, he's, you know, is clearly horrible data. Um, and, and I, and I have, you know, lectured on this extensively. So I'm not going to go into it here, but just there's, there's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't want to get it, including the lipid nanoparticle portion being a, a cellular toxin um, and the mRNA component uh, lasting for two months or more, making tons of protein, which would be wonderful for a genetic inborn error of metabolism, but not for a foreign protein. So um, the spike itself is the toxin. So in a sense, uh, that's providing most of the damage. Um, and, you know, yes, I think it's going to be in some ways um, an issue, but probably a minor issue if, if you're waiting long enough. I can't remember what the first part of the question was, but uh, if you can jog my memory, I'll answer that and Stella can answer too. So. And um, about the spike protein and fertility, there actually are issues on spike protein and fertility, not just about the shedding. Uh, this this space that we are in as humanity is a space that is going to bring a lot of confusion and a lot of problems. Uh, and we do know, um, and there have been studies and we've, a lot of anecdotal studies from GYN doctors and stuff that there's a lot of fetal death, there's a lot of um, uh, malformations and a lot of inborn uh, errors and stuff. So I don't know what to tell you about uh, having a baby with a vaccinated person. I don't know. We don't know. So um, those are risks and benefits that we take. So we don't know. This is the world that we're in right now. And your Thank first you, question was, I can't remember your first question. 
Hey, can you jog my memory on your first question? Oh, yeah, I remember. You were talking about uh, hand swelling and people having uh, all kinds of arthritis. We don't... Uh, this spike protein affects the whole body. So we don't really know the depth and the length or the amount of problems that it can cause. And of course, because uh, this microtrombi can form anywhere, it can cause all kinds of problems. So we don't... Yeah, we don't. So, I'll, I'll answer it this way. There, there's definitely some throm, uh, inflammatory throm, thrombotic process. There's also maybe a biomimic process where you basically can you know, create epitopes that are on the spike that may be in part of, uh, part of your own body. So there's, there's, there's autoimmunity. Um, and then there's you know, pure inflammatory components where, in a sense, it gets engulfed by macrophage-like components and taken into the cells and then attacked and, and creating kind of a what, like we might see in a multi-MS-type situation where oligodendrocytes are engulfing lipid nanoparticle portions of this uh, product and, and then being attacked by uh, some of the other um, components of the immune system and creating, um, creating problems. So there's a lot of reasons that it could be multifactorial. Um, and I'm going to say that uh, that's part of the process we're going through. And thankfully, we have groups of people that are partnering together to do that. And I think, unfortunately, the federal government is basically spending you know, millions of dollars on advertising and very little money on uh, on supporting these kind of important studies. So uh, we will get to, we will keep working on it. And uh, and I think the answers are, there are treatments for all this stuff. I think Stella said it real well. We don't really know what's going to happen with fertility. We do know that it's affecting fertility, period. There's there's 8 to 10%, I said it earlier, 8 to 10% less um, uh, uh, fertility in Europe and all the countries where they're, you know, about 75% back. So that's what we're seeing. It's definitely affecting it. And it makes sense. It's going into the ovaries. It's going into testes. It's affecting sperm counts. We're seeing it. Our, our anecdotal reports coming from the, from the OB gins. Jim Thorpe has talked about it immensely and so have others. It, we're seeing it in the clinics and we're seeing it actually in data. So it's, it's harmful. And I would, I would be uh, very careful uh, about continuing on with somebody who's going to continue to get four and five and six vaccines. He needs to stop getting vaxxed, and that would be my recommendation. Thank you, Dr. Uh, T- 1TX, you're next. Hey, thank you very much. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Thank you. I want to thank, thank you guys for the platform and allowing just the layperson to uh, voice their concerns and questions. I've got a couple of questions. In 2005, Michael Hollick, an endocrinologist, uh, published a paper about the vitamin D epidemic as it relates to deficiency. And in 2016, he published another paper regarding toxicity. And I think that one vitamin D is not a vitamin. It's actually a hormone. And many people don't know that. And we should be treating vitamin D or the hormone uh, like we do any other hormone deficiency. And we don't do that very well. Another paper was published in 2020 uh, by Quest Diagnostics, and, and that paper was a retrospective study regarding the vitamin D deficiency as it relates to positivity rates. And it showed essentially that if you had a vitamin D level of 55 or greater, your positivity rate was lower for COVID-19 than it was if you had a deficiency, which was less than 20. And so my question, I guess, and I've got a couple of questions, so I'm going to end with this. What are your thoughts about the vitamin D level and 
as it relates to toxicity, because myself, I take 20,000 units a day along with vitamin K because that's important. And along with magnesium, because we know that magnesium is deficient as well in many cases. So, yeah, so so let's, let's jump into that. Basically, um, you know, if you're the normal levels are considered between 30 and a hundred and 30 is basically like I've said before is a half a tank of gas. Every, every cell and every white blood cell in your body has a vitamin D receptor and that vitamin D receptor is basically like a data analyst for your immune system. So if you want a good functioning immune system, you need to have good good vitamin D levels. Uh, the toxicity issues are primarily calcium-based. Take vitamin K2, make sure your calcium doesn't get too high. I think you can run your vitamin Ds up over 100 easily, um, and you'll be fine. Usually I recommend a level uh, on the higher end of normal, which is you know, 70, 80 uh, or so. But if they're running a little higher, the key factor in the toxicity issues it's not like vitamin A where you're going to destroy your liver. Nobody, I don't think anybody has ever died in the history of mankind from vitamin D toxicity ever. Just like vitamin E, you can overdo it, but you don't get true, true um, debilitating morbidity and mortality from vitamin D. So you can, you can jump up your calcium scores, and the way you control that, you need to take vitamin K2. If you're not doing it, then you're not being smart. So you know you need to supplement with vitamin K2 because it's hard to source from your food sources. Uh, it's in beef, butter, and cheese naturally in natto. So, those are the those are the thoughts, and um, and it's been a huge part of my practice since about 1995 when I recognized its importance in cancer. Uh, so it's it's I think it's extremely important. Um, and like he said, you can be more efficient with it. Also, a little bit of magnesium uh, can help it too. So, uh, well thought out, well said. Uh, I'm in agreement with you. The toxicity issue is basically. Uh, you can fix that with vitamin K2 uh, if you happen to have a little bit higher calcium scores. The other thing to think of, calcium scores up uh, multiple myeloma. Yeah, pre- yeah, right on target. So uh, real quick, a couple of questions uh, as it relates to black seed oil or uh, nigella sativa. And then um, what your thoughts on polyphenols are in, in relation to COVID and the treatment of COVID. And finally, so polyphenols question. are overrated. Uh, I don't mind doing them. But I think they're overrated. Uh, I've been making. I'm mean, like I said. I've had a bunch of products. I usually um, throw them in and dust them into a lot of products because people, you know, are really sp- spend a lot of times thinking about like ORAC scores and stuff like that. I don't think it makes a difference. I, I think there's a sort of hormesis effect. I don't know if you've read about hormesis. Maybe spend a little time looking at that topic. Um, so basically, um, um, I, I, what was the other question? So, well, I hadn't got to it, but, uh, you know, I've been in uh, the medical field for nearly 40 years, and I've only seen a few cases of pancreatic cancer. And it seems like here in the last seven or eight months, from my perspective, I can count on both hands and both feet more than uh, 20 cases of pancreatic cancer, including a personal uh, family member. And I'm in, and I mentioned that I was in a Bible study and somebody prayed for somebody with pancreatic cancer and then people started talking about it. It seems like that is becoming a more and more, um, uh, relevant, uh, issue as it relates to some of the cancers. And I'm just kind of curious what your take on that is. Uh, well, you know, the spike protein disturbs DNA damage repair in a big way. Um, so Stella, go ahead, take it away and then I'll, yeah, I'll follow that, you. Uh, cancers are all everybody people cancers are up not just pancreatic cancers even people that have been in remission for years they are getting aggressive they are coming back and they are coming back aggressive because like i said this spike protein disease 
uh, that the spike protein has been injected in people is actually uh, messing up people's immune system. And uh, usually it's your immunity that fights all these little cancer tumor cells that start in your body all over the place. So, yes, that's something that we all are seeing. And, you know, cancers are up, but not just pancreatic cancers, all kinds of cancers. Even people yeah. that are- I agree, with, I agree with you, Stella, there. I agree with this. So I do, I have an oncology practice and we're seeing a lot of recurrences, turbo cancers. Um, you know, in general, I've been using some drugs that um, uh, historically, I, you know, I uh, was chief at one of the, that probably the top um, uh, a cancer hospital in the world. Um, so basically, I, I would tell you this, we are seeing a huge recurrence of cancers and there's recognition of the fact that the DNA damage repair mechanisms are being interfered with by the S1 portion of the spike protein. So this is not a make-believe thing. Um, they actually retra- had to retract one of the studies. They put so much pressure on the authors. Uh, but a couple other people redid the data. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a, an opinion that it's affecting DNA damage repair. That's part of the wonder of the spike protein. Uh, the first spike, pro- the first coronavirus to ever affect DNA damage repair, the first spike protein to ever affect uh, tumor uh, immune viral surveillance and through toll-like receptors. The first one I said to uh, have an NRP1, the first one to have a, a TMPRSS2 to get in the deeper lungs, uh, the first one to have a GP120 fragment, the first one to have, you know, it's a uh, w- most wonderful ACE2 receptor. So uh, I, l- I probably left some stuff out. So in general, um, yeah, tumors are on the uprise. Uh, there's mechanistic reasons. We're seeing it. Um, they're basically, it's hard to get the data. So we need big places where the tumors are being, um, are being uh, treated at these big cancer hospitals. But they're not, they're not putting that data out there. They are flooded with more tumors, more cancers, more recurrences. And what I'm seeing is, is I just had a patient come in, triple vax. Uh, he sent me a nice note today. I wish I could read it, but I'm going to read. I'm going to I'm going to read because it's buried in my text. Doctor, so thank you so much for all your help. Um, you know, I had uh, fourth stage uh, uh, melanoma uh, all over my body, and uh, since we started treatment, and, and just for this fellow, I'd given uh, uh, fenbendazole, um, low dose naltrexone, uh, high dose vitamin D, and uh, phenylfibrate because phenylfibrate is good against neural ectodermal tumors. And, uh, and he said, I got my PET scan back today and I got my, um, all my tests back today. Uh, and there's no tumor in my body. Uh, thanks for all your prayers and thanks for all your help. So you can overcome a lot of these things. There's strategies that we don't even talk about. The fembendazole, mabendazole, the ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. A lot of these things have anti-tumor properties, autophagy effects. They are things that are, this is the other thing that I've been holding under the radar um, and it's it's time to just let it out. You know, we've got things that are incredibly effective against a lot of these solid tumors, and um, it's time for for let that loose. But that's for another talk. Yeah, I think uh, it's one a.m. in my time, and I know everybody has many many questions, but I don't think we're gonna get off this. And I'm sure, Richard, you have to do surgery at five a.m. Right? Oh yeah. <laughs> so, but I'm yeah. ready. You'll keep going. You want to keep going? Keep going. Uh, we stay up all night. Stella and I are are, are not early birds. We're, we keep know. going. All right. Can so, I just um, jump in real quick with something? And the other thing about Stella is she told me she sleeps fast. So I guess that, that you know, she doesn't need that much sleep. Ah, she's lucky. No, it's not about sleep. It's not about sleep. I pray at night. So I, I need to get on my prayer. Yeah, she, she's an hour past her prayer time. So, uh, so, so, so that's beautiful. All the questions. So, uh, so let's do one more question. And then Stella. 
Mm-hmm. Send us off with a prayer. Yes, and then we can we can set up this space again, and we'll, like I said, we'll be back to do a lot lot more talking. But I am like one hour past my prayer time, you know, so uh, I've been doing that. But yes. Anyway, go ahead, uh, one Doctor Urso. Uh, this is Ron Reese. Uh, I've done a lot of research on the zinc and hydroxychloroquine and uh, the Zlinko protocol. Can you guys hear me or hear him? I can, I can hear him. you, but not him. Okay, I think he, he, he disappeared. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Can, can I jump? Okay, one more question. Dr. Stella, how do you feel about the ivermectin paste? Because in New Jersey, you know, we couldn't really get ivermectin at all, like the, in the beginning, especially the last two years. And I had a lot of friends that were taking the ivermectin hey, paste. Off. Hi, yes. Can anybody hear me now? Yes. Okay, we can hear you. Great, great. I'm let, sorry let about that. This sure, please. Hold on, Richard. I don't have any feelings on ivermectin paste. And the reason is that I don't want to be quoted like, oh, she gave people horse medicine when I can actually just provide, uh, prescribe regular ivermectin to you. So I have, I deliberately did not look at the ivermectin paste to see what dosage we need to use or whatever. I just did not want to know it because I didn't want to have to give anybody advice on it. So, Reese, yeah. Okay. The la- last question, super briefly. Yeah, this is, I hope, I, I want to bring some clarity to some of the issues here. Uh, I've done a lot of research on this. No, no. Do, do you have a question? Yeah, it is a question, but it's also, it, is, do we understand that zinc is the primary antiviral in the Zelenko protocol? Yeah, we talk about that. Yeah. We talk about this, that. That's what we talk about. Hydroxychloroquine is important, but there are other ionophores. If we understand yes, the mechanism, we... so, oh, yeah, Ron, so what happened is they, they covered can we discuss this, the uh, mechanism the, how it works? They already did, Ron. Yes, yeah, they, they, Ron. And the other Ron thing, Ron, um, about it's... hydroxychloroquine, the ionophores, the quercetins. Yeah, you know, we we did we covered all that. Maybe you. Yeah, are, we can. We, we'll put the playback. Yes, you yeah. can go back. This was about early treatment and. You know, the hydroxychloroquine, the mechanism of action, ionophores, quercetin, and all that good stuff. We covered all that. And, and, do, and, and don't forget, hydroxychloroquine, a big part of its effects are an endosomal acidification. Yes. And I don't want to go too much into it because it's a big thing, but it's not just about zinc, ionophores, and RDRP. But it's, do also we know? it's also about endosomal acidification. It's also about affecting the Golgi apparatus. The ribosomes, it's a lot more than just, just zinc. Okay. So I don't mind going there, but it, it don't talk about stuff when you don't know what you're talking about. So it's not only about zinc. Okay. So I don't, I'm not trying to be rude, but it's yeah. not only about zinc. Yeah. Zinc and quercetin and everything works, but hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, ivermectin has about almost 20 different ways that it works. So yeah, we, we covered all that in the beginning. thank you guys very much for joining this space we're going to be putting two more spaces follow me 
so that whenever the space come up, you can join. We're going to be putting a, uh, putting together a space on vaccine injury, and we're going to be putting together a space to discuss the spiritual implication or where we are uh, in the spiritual space and all the stuff that's been done by the World Economic Forum and what we need to do about that. So thank everybody for coming. And uh, uh, like I say, it's past my prayer time. And I know Dr. Oso has to be up in the morning. And we, we, we are so thankful for all of you. And uh, you can share, share. This space was recorded. So please share it, share widely as possible. Follow us. And when we come up again, we will probably start a little. I didn't know it was going to take this long. We're going to start a little earlier so that we can have way more time. God bless every single one of you. And let me just pray if you guys will let me. God, I pray for everybody that's listening to this space. I pray that uh, whatever has happened to us as humanity, that God, you will take sovereignty and help us. That you, you will show us mercy. The enemy is too strong for us. We are standing in a position where we don't know why some of the things have happened to us as humanity. And we just pray and ask for your sovereign help, Lord Jesus. And ask that you open the minds of people to know where we are spiritually. And also know that you are the healer. We doctors, we do our thing, but you are the healer. So I thank you for everybody that has come. For those that have taken the the vaccine, we pray for their healing. For those that have have long symptoms, so can't whatever, Father, we pray that you will just touch people, heal them. Most of all, we rebuke the spirit of fear that has been released over humanity. And I pray that our hearts will be at peace and will rise up and stand in one voice and not be divided. Thank you, Lord Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Dr. Stephan, I tell everyone in the audience to... Amen, doctor. Thank you. Send a DM and uh, I will log everybody's name that did not get to answer a question. Uh, uh-huh. The doctors know that I micromanage, so you please get on next time you see Dr. Stella Emanuel live on here and join right away and send a request. I will go over your name and I will give you priority in the order in which it was received. Thank you, guys. Amen. God bless everyone. God bless you.